uh, Jekyll Island one other time down at the Ramada Inn, and, and um, I was in the breakfast in the morning, and, and um, there was a guy in line right beside me, and I hadn't seen him at the meeting the night before, and he looked awful rough. And I said, um, did, did you tie one on last night? And he said, yeah, yeah, that's what I come down here for. And uh, so he took about enough on his plate to keep a half of a baby bird alive. And uh, so I was watching him, kind of tracking him. You know, I'm always interested in that. And he picked at his food for about two minutes and got up and left. So drinking is alive and well. Nothing's changed with that. And last night um, we went down to a convenience store down here to get some stuff and saw Bruce and Connie down there and some other people. And when we, when we pulled up, started to walk in, there was a lady in the back seat of a car that was needed, looked like she might be on her way here. Uh, but she was struggling a little bit and looked like they were having trouble kind of containing her, keeping her in the car. And she was, I couldn't tell if she was just, you know, it was halfway of a call between a mating wolf and, a, and somebody hallucinating going on in the car. And when we were uh, inside, there were, when we got in, there was another lady walking around in there, and she was buying a bottle, real short hair, and she had those stick limbs that you see on the, on the long drinker, and uh, God knows. And then it wasn't very much longer than that. The lady from the back seat of the car escaped and was in the store, and uh, somehow they were in like a mini uh, verbal altercation with the lady behind the counter. And, and uh, so, I mean, drinking going on, there's, there's no doubt about that. And from all appearances, it isn't getting any better. Again, just if anybody wasn't here last night, my name is Steve Mitchell. I'm an alcoholic. I appreciate, uh, again, the opportunity to be with you, and I appreciate being here this morning. And, and to tell you a little bit about what we're going to do in the, in the next little bit. I'm going to take a look at some of the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, and the agenda says we'll do steps one, two, and three, and you could certainly argue correctly, I think, that we lingered on the first step for a while last night. I hope you have an idea that I'm, I am, I'm among you uh, because I need to be. I'm not here on moral grounds. I stayed with drinking as long as I possibly could, and if I could have stayed longer, I would have. In fact, is that's where I'd be today. If booze still did what it did for me as a 15 or 16-year-old kid, I'd be in one of them broken-down country western bars this morning. And I'd have me some half-dressed slinkstress up in there with me telling me how good I am. And she would know it was a lie, and I would too. But, of course, it was just like them women last night. It doesn't matter because you don't know you're there. So, I mean, there had never been any reason to escape that. So, you know, I left there because there was no other choice. I stayed as long as I possibly could. So you could argue correctly, I think, that, that we spent a fair amount of time last night on the first step, but we'll, we'll, we'll visit that again at least a little bit this morning. And, and I hope that we lingered a bit on the second step last night. I mean, what Alcoholics Anonymous is, of course, is a way of life that uh, specializes in returning people from the scrap heap of life and moving them into a way of life where we can take our place. And there is great healing and great hope in that second step. So we'll spend a little bit of time on that, and then, then we'll move off when we do the third step and, and move into that. Uh, I, I don't know about sticking as close to the agenda as on the thing. It's a bit of a challenge uh, um, to share with you. This is the first time I've done this. I've done a lot of things with the steps and a lot of workshops. And uh, my sponsor, sponsor, and I did one together in Richmond. And um, I've done this with my sponsor before and things like that. But I've never done it all by myself. And I'll tell you, it's a bit of a haul. Uh, it's a bit challenging. It's, it's, it's extremely intimate. It's kind of like being naked with somebody of the opposite sex, I think. It's, uh, uh, it's probably exciting and all that, but it's also a little scary. So, Because what I'm going to try to share with you is my personal journey through the 12 steps. 
of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's an intimate thing that no matter how you look at that, even though you've been on that, it's a, it's a concurrent journey, I hope, for you. And when you get a crowd like this, you usually get a crowd that's a that wants to do a little bit extra, that goes beyond. And they're always very kind in their attentiveness. And because, I mean, we're people who are gathered together that want to do a little bit extra. I mean, the odds of us escaping a bar and coming to Jekyll Island together, I mean, it says we are people who normally would not mix. I personally believe everything it says in Alcoholics Anonymous literature to be true, but I don't think you'd have to read that to know that, would you? <laughs> I mean, we're people who normally would not mix. We're gathered to here in the rain, my kind of weather. I absolutely love this kind of weather. It puts me in mind of uh, spending a little time with my wife with nobody else there and the door locked, and I'm reading good books. I don't know why those two things, they don't have much to do with each other, but that's what the rain has always reminded me of. And the first, first, uh, in priority, number one was that, and then number two would be reading the good books. So we're, we're gathered together, and, and um, I'm going to share my journey on the steps with you, and, and it is a bit of a challenge. I checked with both Bruce and Jerry, and, and um, Bruce gave me the leeway to, to, to um, tamper with the schedule a little bit if we run down and, and maybe not uh, take so much time on each one or to, to change that a little bit or to change with the breaks. And I appreciate that very much. That's a, uh, that takes a little bit of the edge off. And Jerry, too. I've known Jerry for a long time, and I've always liked um, Jerry and Jill. And, and um, Jerry said that they're flexible. And, and uh, I guess you can do about anything with those tapes you want except change what the speaker says, right? You can even probably do that in this day and age. I think some of the politicians have tried that, haven't they? Well, uh, we're on the thing this morning to talk a little bit about history, and one of the things that, that uh, it, it took me a while, I guess, I, I've, never been, um, I've never been overly rated on my brains. I'm not exactly an idiot, but I'm, I'm, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, and that's, that's probably been an advantage to me in Alcoholics Anonymous. What I am is I'm, I'm more steady and consistent, and I've learned that consistency in the spiritual life is very much of a spiritual principle. I mean, it, that's the only way that, in, uh, that you get in the shape that you need Alcoholics Anonymous is by doing the same thing over and over. So when an alcoholic says that, you know, every so often you hear an alcoholic say that I don't like to go to the meetings because you hear the same stuff. I haven't heard anything new in a church basement in over 20 years. You know, I mean, if anybody that says that they have trouble with repetition shouldn't be an AA because the only way that you get in the shape that you need AA is by doing the same thing over and over. I mean, you've got to stick with that bottle, don't you? I mean, this is not for the faint of heart. You've got to be serious about drinking to ever drink your way into Alcoholics Anonymous. But I was a little bit slow in coming to understand some of the finer elements of history. And I think what I've learned about history is, is I, I was probably sober 10 years without any exaggeration before I come to understand why we study history in school. The simple reason we study history in school, my ex-wife, among other things, used to teach history. But the reason that I think we study in history in school, I suppose most people have always known this, is so we don't have to relive it. That's why we talk about our drinking in Alcoholics Anonymous, not, and not as a prisoner of our drinking, but to stay current. I honestly don't think I've come close to drinking since I was sober about a year and a half in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, what I have done on two separate, distinct, and protracted, protracted occasions, I've come close to losing my mind at eight years and at 19 and a half years, and I'll share some of that with you. But I don't think I've come close to drinking. But it took me a long time to understand that as I stay current with that and stay connected to my drinking, that's one of the reasons we work with newcomers, so that I can stay stabilized. I mean, I think if I forget for too long of a period of time what I was when I was drinking, I think I'll drink again. I was at a thing a while back. My wife was with me, and the speaker talked about standing out front of a Skid Row mission after having his teeth kicked out, and 
he said he couldn't identify what the feeling was that came to him, but the feeling was that there was no direction that he could take in life and at the end of that physical direction run into somebody who was glad to see him. And I told my wife then, I said, after the meeting, I said, that's a feeling you never forget, that idea that there is no place to go and that there's nobody that's going to be glad to see you because you've burned every bridge. And as I thought about that a little bit, it became more clear to me that that's the good news because I think if I forget that again for too long of a period of time, I believe that I'll be doomed to relive it. Now, I'm not a prisoner of those things. I mean, I live as a free man because of my recognition of them and my connection to them. So I think that history allows us to operate with freedom. Another thing I think that history does is it allows us to have appreciation for things. I'm, a, I'm a, um, enthusiastic about history. I'm interested in history, period, and I'm extremely interested in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. What I've done in the last couple, three years, I see uh, Cheryl here if I get lost. She's pretty much of a... Or, uh, She's pretty much of a wizard on AA history. We were, uh, uh, we were um, joshing with her last night, and she said that she had that first step down pat. So when we pushed her a little bit, she knew powerless and unmanageability is two of the words, but she couldn't quite get the rest of it right. But I'm sure that she'll zone in on here and, and, and help me if, if, if need be. But um, I went back the last couple, three years, and um, I've made a, an exhaustive sort of a study of the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, what I did in doing that, I, and again, I, I don't speak to you as an expert on Alcoholics Anonymous or on an expert on our history. I'm just, I'm one guy who the program has worked very well for. And what I've been done, I've been asked to come here this weekend and share my experience, strength, and hope. And, and that's what I'm doing. And I hope I'm going to be able to do that in a, in a humble and an attractive kind of a way. But I'm not an expert on any part of, of Alcoholics Anonymous, certainly not on the history. What I have found fascinating about Alcoholics Anonymous history, and I think another thing that history allows us to do when we really look up close, is it allows us to understand that the people that were functioning in that, in, in that time frame are no different than we are. You know, I've made that history tour twice in Akron. I was up there speaking at, a, at an anniversary, and they took us on a history tour of Akron, and, and uh, it's a moving experience. We went to Dr. Bob and Ann Smith's home, and there was some renovi renovation going on, and uh, we saw where Dr. Bob used to hide his bottles. And uh, we went to the grave site of Dr. Bob and, and Ann Smith, and, you know, they, they wanted to make kind of a mausoleum out of that whole thing. And, you know, Dr. Bob, he's always kind of been my man of the two, of Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson. But Dr. Bob said, no. He said, I think Ann and I will be buried just like other folks. And we went to the Mayflower Hotel. It's now a home for old people. But, if you know, an enterprising alcoholic can do things that, that uh, you're not supposed to get in there. It's, you know, it's off limits. There's a buzzer, and you've got to be beeped in. But we got in both times. Uh, last time I was there, in fact, is there was some kind of an alarm going on. Um, we were up there, at, and uh, there was some kind of an alarm going on. And um, there was an Akron City policeman shooting through there. I mean, he was moving. And uh, when he saw us, and, of course, he knew we weren't supposed to be in there. There was a handful of he. I mean, he stopped long enough to find out what we were doing. Now, he was professional but businesslike. And we told him, rather businesslike, what we were doing, that we were members of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, oh, you want to see the phone, you know, and, <laughs> and told us where it was. But, you know, to, 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 to walk that thing where... Where, you know, where Bill Wilson, you know, and they've recreated some of that, but where Bill Wilson teetered between going into the bar, you know, and, and, and eventually made the call that put him in touch shortly with Dr. Bob. But to think about that and to think a little bit about Bill Wilson, you know, at that time, I mean, what was Bill Wilson doing in the finest hotel in Akron broke? 
you know, you'd have to ask that question. I mean, he's on business in Akron from New York without any money. He's down to his last $10. And, I mean, I suppose you could stay in the finest hotel. That was a brand-new place at that time. And I'm sure it was much less than $10, but they talked about it. You know, he was concerned about even paying his bill, having money to get home. So there are people very much like us. You know, that Bill had a, uh, you know, was, was egotistical about things. But So I went back and read all kinds of stuff, and it's been fascinating stuff. I read about the Rockefellers, and it's amazing how God has worked, thing, worked, worked things out. You know, um, and I'm going to kind of be bouncing around with this history. It probably won't follow anything in terms of sequence, but it's just, it's kind of designed to lead us into the miracle of, of, of the 12 Steps. You know, the, and I, I mentioned last night about how the non-alcoholic has always played such an integral part in the, in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, and it's, I like to take a global concept like history and make it personal. You know, I need to know my own history to stay here. I mean, I need to be very clear about my history. I'm an alcoholic who plans very much to stay sober until I die. I also plan very much to stay alive and stay connected and stay enthusiastic about life until I die. I heard my sponsor sponsor say one time that his plan was to stay alive, alive until he died. I mean, I certainly don't. I had all the living death I wanted when I was drinking. I mean, I don't want to walk around being depressed. So I need to know about my own history. But what it does is I understand the bigger history is it makes it all come together in a much clearer way. It's important for me to know what the non-alcoholics lived with in my life, what I did to them, what they did for me what they made possible for me to get into Alcoholics Anonymous. I've known for years without my great aunt taking me in, uh, I'd have been dead a long time ago. I had one foot in the grave when I got here. So you'd certainly have to say she was a friend of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I read a book a while back on the, on the Rockefeller dynasty. And I, I'm not sure my literal facts on this, and I don't think it makes any difference. But, you know, uh, John, the Rockefellers are, are partially at least greatly responsible for our principle of corporate poverty. You know, they called all those people together, and there was millions of dollars in that room, probably uh, could correctly say hundreds of millions of dollars in that room. My wife is a, is a CPA, so I know a little bit about some of the uh, tax stuff now. Not much. I know enough to turn all the stuff over to her to get her to do it. <laughs> but um, it, this was before the tax laws were changed, like in, in the 1930s and when they had this dinner and everything. The very year... That, that the Rockefellers gave us. I think, didn't they give us $5,000 once and 1000 a time or two, and they made it possible for us to get a little bit more? The Rockefellers paid something like $84 million in taxes that year. I mean, that was, that, what they gave us was simple pocket change to them, and it was not that they were trying to hold on to their money, the reason they didn't give us more money. John D. Rockefeller said, and near, came near having a nervous breakdown at one point in his life over trying to give money away before he got people assigned to help him do that because he was a very conscientious, um, concerned man, and he got hundreds of requests for money, and he tried to labor over those. And he also tried to give people what he thought was appropriate for them to be able to help themselves. What's that old joke about if you, get, if you give somebody some fish, you can feed them for a day. If you teach them how to fish... Uh, you know, they can eat for a lifetime. That's what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. We teach people how to fish, how to live. So I think the real principle involved in that is the Rockefellers didn't want to hurt us. You know, they saw that throwing money at this thing, which could have been, an, uh, you know, a, a walk in the park for them, would not work. 
So it's an interesting thing to look at that and, and, and what it is that they did for us. They set us in a direction that's, that's kept us very well today. And I know that it's certainly been a principle for me in my own life. I know that, you know, I was never kept out of anything in Alcoholics Anonymous because I couldn't pay. I was always factored in from the very beginning. Where I got sober, people went out to Sambo's after the meeting every night. I was always included in that. Stuff was always picked up for me. I mean, people even bought my cigarettes. Today, they'd probably call that enabling. That word has kind of caught on a little bit. That's why I said last night that preface to the 12 and 12 uses the word enable correctly, or it says an enable the sufferer to become usefully whole. But people did things for me that made it possible for me to eventually do for myself. And I remember how good I felt. You've got to remember now, I was 25, almost 26 years old. I wasn't uh, new to life. I'd spent four years in the military. I'd spent a year in the war zone. I mean, I'd graduated from high school. I'd been socialized. I'd had a good religious education. I mean, I'd lived in the world. I hadn't lived in a vacuum any more than anybody else had. But it was a small thing like when I first got a job doing lawn work and got a job in a junkyard when I was able to put money in the basket and able to start picking up the ticket for coffee, how good I felt about that. You know, and it's cer certainly a, a, a simple truth that the person who pays the bills calls the shots. So if, you know, we probably would not have Alcoholics Anonymous today had it not been for what the Rockefeller and his folks did for us. So that's one indication of our history and, and how it's kept us in, instead. Talk a little bit, um, again, and, and Cheryl, keep me on track here. Um, but about how our, how our founders um, moved forward into this thing in life. You know, when... Um, Ebby Thatcher, there's a book, and I, my buddy that's with me, Jerry, um, is also a, a, he's a real student of Alcoholics Anonymous history. And we've got with us a list of things, if anybody's interested in it, of books that you can get, of AA history books. I mean, we've got a lot. You know, the big book and our, our forwards to the first, second, and third edition and other stuff. And there's a lot of history in there. Dr. Bob and the Old Timers, um, AA Comes of Age, Pass It On, are all replete with history. So there's a lot of good stuff, but there's been so much good stuff written in the last few years. It's not conference-approved literature. A guy over in Hawaii, there's a recovered attorney in Hawaii who's written a, a number of books about um, people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, Mel Barger, who's still living in, um, in Michigan, has written a book on the life of Ebby Thatcher that's a fascinating book. He's the guy that carried the message to Bill Wilson. In fact, is even though Ebby continued to drink off and on, I think got sober, his sponsor said at the International Convention uh, in Minneapolis that Abby was sober the last three years of his life. But Bill continued to refer to Abby, even though he drank intermittently off and on. Bill continued to refer to Abby as his sponsor until he died, the man who carried him the message. So I think it's worth knowing more about Abby. There's a book written about Clarence Snyder, who was um, maybe the man who's responsible for our name. He was from Cleveland. He's the home brewmeister in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. I heard him speak in Omaha at a speaker's meeting. He went two hours and two minutes on the clock. Um, but it's a fascinating book. And there's a lot of other stuff. You know, Sam Shoemaker's uh, stuff with us, the guy that was the administrator of the mission in, um, in New York where, um, where Bill Wilson went drunk and, and went down to the front and, and um, turned himself into God. But all kinds of stuff like that. And, you know, maybe where I could start with this, and if I could, just keep some thoughts in a sort of a sequential kind of way. Leading up to the, to the, the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous, Ebby Thatcher um, had been drunk. And Ebby's um, from Albany, New York, by the way, and there's a park in, New, in Albany named after um, the family. 
But Evie had been drunk and was, uh, was kind of one of those people that, that sometimes well-to-do families um, get stuck with. And, you know, with alcoholism, they can help put you somewhere to keep you, you know, keep you out of the way. They can also kill you. And I think that that's what they had done with Evie. And he was in court uh, getting ready to be committed, and, and three men appeared in court to try to, um, to uh, ask the judge to do something different with that. And one of those men was Roland Hazard. Now, Roland Hazard was also from a well-to-do New England family, and he's the guy that had ended up in, in Switzerland, I think it was, but under the care of the great psychiatrist Carl Jung. And he stayed under his care for a long period of time. And I think that, you know, it, it, another thing that, that's, that's profound out of history is that's where our principles come from. I mean, that's how we learn stuff. Now, it may be true that every generation has to redefine them for themselves, but one of the things that came out of that, I think if I, and again, I'm, I hope I'm correct in my facts. I, I'm, 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 I'm figuratively in the, in the ballpark anyway. I think that Roland Hazard stayed in therapy with Dr. Young for a year. And it left there with the idea that, that return to drinking was unthinkable and impossible because of what he'd learned. And, of course, what they were making was the mistake that so many of us have made is if we understand our condition, somehow it'll change it. I mean, I would never think that if I knew why my nose was broke, it wouldn't be broke. You'd have to be psychotic to think that. But yet we sit in the bar. I sat in the bar day after day after day trying to figure out why I was the way I was, thinking somehow that if I knew that, it would go away. And I think all any information about why I'm the way I am does is makes my situation worse. Um, but th I think that's where we found out that, you know, that self-knowledge will avail us nothing because he returned to the United States, Dr. Young. And I, and I think Dr. Young was finding his way. I've read, I read his account of his life story. And he's also a man who had his own great personal journey and ended up having a, uh, a spiritual awakening. One of the things that Dr. Young ended up saying was is that, it, that the alcoholic's thirst for alcohol is on a low level what man's thirst for God seems to be. You know, and can you imagine what would have happened to us if uh, um, Roland Hazard would have ended up talking to Sigmund Freud instead of Carl Jung, you know, who did not believe in God? It could have been quite another thing, couldn't it? I think part of what history does, too, is it shows us the miraculous, how all this has come together in a way very much like my own personal sobriety, and I, I, I think probably like yours, it had to happen the way it did. You know, it had to come together the way it did. I mean, it could have missed on any turn. You know, we, we'd have a different room here today because none of us would be in it. You know, it, it just came together the way that it did. But anyway, after he um, ended back up flat on his face in the United States drunk, he, he was returned to Dr. Young. And what Dr. Young gave him was the prescription of hopelessness, the diagnosis of hopelessness. He said, you're hopeless, but I've never seen a case recover to the extent where alcoholism exists as it does in you. Now, that, that's, that's a difficult information, isn't it? Because here's a man. And remember, there was no Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, there was no way out. Prior to Alcoholics Anonymous and alcohol, now there, while there were, just like Dr. Young said, there were exceptions since the beginning of time. I mean, there's always exceptions to the rule, aren't there? I worked in a large Catholic hospital in Omaha for many years. This is where I first met Jerry and Jill. But there was a priest in that hospital that would very often cut across all the bounds of healing. There was a lady one time, a case I personally know of, she was scheduled for surgery in the morning and her, the inside of her body was, was rotted out with poison. And um, father came in there that night before and put his hands on her and, and uh, he said the next morning he had a very difficult time getting the surgeons to look at that again before they cut her. But when he finally got him to look at it, it was gone. 
I mean, that's a case where God cuts across the bounds. I mean, obviously, if you believe in God, you've got to believe God can do anything he wants to do. But generally, he follows out the, the prescribed manner. So generally today, you know, if you want somebody to get sober, what we do is we try to get them to Alcoholics Anonymous. But even at this time, Dr. Young said throughout history, throughout recorded history, there's exceptions. Here or there, people have had what are known as vital spiritual experiences. And he said to me, these experiences are, are phenomenal. Now what that meant, and, if, and to me what that means is here's a great psychiatrist who had enough humility to say the same thing we're saying in this room today. He's saying at the very end now, he probably could explain things a lot better Certainly I know that I could, but I suspect he understood some stuff that none of us understand. But what he was really saying is, is that these experiences are phenomena. He was saying, I don't understand them. He was saying, I don't know how to bring them about. And, and, and surrender certainly is phenomena because nobody knows where it comes from. I mean, I've, I've worked with alcoholics that I believe would have cut their ears off to stay sober. You know, that, and they, for whatever reason, they were not able to surrender. I've seen other people surrender that you would have bet the farm against. So it really is phenomenal. But anyway, that's what he told uh, Roland Hazard that that um, uh, you need to you need to avail yourself to some kind of a religious movement, and that's what he did. Uh, he came back and and got involved with the Oxford group, and you can write the story as well as I can. I mean, the vital spiritual experience happened, and he got sober. And and as part of that, he uh, he carried that message to that judge who released Ebby to him. And Ebby was released, and, and uh, for a period of time, I think at that time, I think when Ebby was first introduced, he was he, he made it a couple years, but he was sober a very short period of time when he carried that message to Bill Wilson. It also puts the lie. Sometimes you can hear all kinds of stuff in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, can't you? I heard a lady say one time her sponsor told her to go out and throw eggs at a tree. I mean, I don't know what that'd do for you. I mean, I don't, I don't think I was that confused drinking unless I was in a blackout. But, I mean, you can hear all kinds of stuff here. So it's important to know what it is the literature says. But in that case, uh, it says that Evie was, was sober a very short period of time. And as part, I think he was supposed to, I think what they were calling that at that time in the Oxford groups, they were calling what he was supposed to do testify. And he was supposed to find an alcoholic that he could give his testimonial to. Now, the words sometimes are interchangeable, but, all, I mean, all they do is describe things. It's like the word sponsor. That's just a word and the way we use it. But people have been sponsored all their lives. I've been sponsored in my profession. I don't know many people that have moved into a job that haven't been sponsored by somebody. It just means that somebody cuts across those bonds and takes an interest that's very special. Well, as part of their own uh, testimony, they were supposed to find somebody and go talk with them. And Evie went and looked up his old drinking friend, Bill Wilson. And it says in the book, you know, they'd been drinking buddies and, and they'd even um, chartered an airplane one time to complete a drunk. And uh, you can just kind of see, uh, you know, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous coming in on a runway drunk. You know. But anyway, that's what happened. And, and um, when, when, when um, Abby first called on Bill, what Bill's idea was was to get him to drink with him. You know, he was not mindful. So, I mean, Bill was the same as us. He was an alcoholic that was blocked off from the source, and he was just looking for a drinking buddy. He had no thought of, of, of his, what his friend's well-being might be. Well, and again, as, you know, the, the circular, circular nature of how God's grace worked. You know, Bill shortly was to get sober and stay sober till he died in 1971, and Evie uh, stayed sober for a couple years and, and stayed, you know, drunk off and on and had a very difficult um, time, but... You know, you'd certainly have to put Evie up there at the top of the list of people uh, who did things for us. And, and even looking at that, I mean, there's all kinds of people that, 
that um, that we should probably single out. You know, Dr. Silkworth, who was, um, you know, the book ca calls him a, a medical specialist in alcoholism, and, and um, some have called him no less than a medical saint. Some have said that, you know, he rightly should be uh, seen as a founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Bill Wilson's secretary made that statement about Clarence Snyder, too, the home brewmeister in the big book, that had he not had such an obnoxious personality, he probably would have been seen as a third founder of AA. Clarence is greatly responsible for our name. He was greatly responsible for women being in Alcoholics Anonymous. Dr. Bob particularly did not want women in Alcoholics Anonymous. He didn't think it was good. And, and um, Clarence was having a lot of trouble because in Cleveland, where he was going to meetings, his sponsor was Dr. Bob, and they were commuting back and forth. But the Catholics were... were uh, remember, again, there was no Alcoholics Anonymous yet at this time. I mean, the Catholics were having trouble from the from their um, hierarchy of their church about being part of the Oxford group. So the Oxford group was just a group of people. That Frank Buckman was the founder of that, and he and again, I mean, that organization was born out of out of desperation as well. He was a guy that had lost his job and was suffering a great deal of resentment, and so he, he, he got away and went on a tour, and he heard a woman speak in a little small room and had some kind of a spiritual experience, and he, he forgave the people that had fired him and contacted him, and he started an organization called the Oxford Group. I think it, it, it was it maybe later was named Moral Rearmament, but it was born out of difficulty. So often, I mean, and, and, and again, if you take that history and make it uh, draw a line to our own personal history, that's what we're doing. You know, we're born out of desperation. That's the only way you can get into Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense to wake up and thank God for being sober if you'd never been drunk. I mean, you might thank God for a, for a bright day, but, I mean, you'd had to been drunk to thank God for the gift of sobriety. So all of our stuff is, has been born out of that. Um, and, you know, when they started going back and forth the meetings, they, it was obvious that, that they had a hold of something. And when Clarence talked about what he did, I heard him talk, like I said, in 1983. The term he used was, we fix drunks. They send them to me and I fix them. And that was the term he was still using in 1935. Interesting to note that he always had some, uh, some difficult feelings about the principle of anonymity. He believed in it for the other guy, but he didn't think that it was necessary for him to maintain his anonymity. So we got off to a start, and it was a slow start. If you look at what was going on, you know, when the book was written, I mean, what do they say? We are, you know, 100 alcoholics who have, and I heard a guy say one time that the number was like 70, and Bill Wilson rounded it off to 100, <laughs> you know, given his tendency to exaggerate. So the Oxford group had a great deal to do with, with our getting going. They gave us some principles that, that um, in fact, as Keith and I did a, um, a workshop a unity Day in um, Dunn, North Carolina, on the four absolutes. But the Oxford group hung their hat on four absolutes. And if you get around uh, Cleveland, AA, and, and Akron, I, I've, I've just done a l real little bit there, been in and out. But I understand they're still very prominent, and you see them on the wall of a lot of meetings, probably some people here who know about that. But those four absolutes were absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute love, and absolute unselfishness. Now, we fell in with them, and, and they're greatly responsible for our moving forward into Alcoholics Anonymous. But again, they had a broader agenda than we did. Bill Wilson was more interested in working with alcoholics, and he was going to the, doing some stuff with the Oxford Group in New York. Dr. Bob was doing some stuff with the Oxford Group in Akron, and Dr. Bob stuck with them much longer. Bill and Lois broke from it because they thought that Bill was not maximum, what they called maximum. 
In other words, he was not committed enough to the Oxford group things. They had some goofy tenets. Uh, they had some great stuff, you know, restitution for harm done others and service and all kinds of stuff. But they also had a thing called guidance where you'd get together and get guidance and then what you were supposed to do is share that with somebody else. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, what came out, can you imagine, I mean, if you had, you know, three or four alcoholics in there with, with, uh, with a bunch of other people, I mean, that guidance may not have been from God. That, uh, that people were given. It, it, you know, it might have been garbled nonsense. Partic- I think that's one of our principles of running it through a sponsor or a spiritual advisor is to filter that. You know, the information that we think we're getting from God may not be that accurate. About anything that I've been able to ever get to move in my life has had to go through another person on its way to God. It also says in Alcoholics Anonymous literature that the spiritually advanced have always known that they need to check the guidance that they think they're getting with God before they move forward. But the Oxford group's um, passionate um, design on Alcoholics Anonymous I don't think should be overestimated. I think we need to give the proper credit that they did great things for us and that they helped us and that the people uh, who did that, the lady that uh, when Bill Wilson made the call looking for another alcoholic in Akron, you know, when he was in danger of returning to drink, he was there on that business deal, and that's the telephone I was talking about at the Mayflower Hotel. When he made that telephone call, he was put in touch with a lady by the name of Henrietta Cyberling, a non-alcoholic. And she was trying to help Dr. Bob. She had gotten guidance that there would be an answer for Dr. Bob. She had also, and remember, again, there was nothing known to these people about alcoholism. She had recently gotten guidance that Dr. Bob should not drink, period. Not that he needed to cut back. He had been trying to do something about his drinking for a long time. He had been praying about his drinking for a long time and been trying to get help. But Henrietta Cyberling had recently gotten guidance that his answer would come, that there would be an answer for him, and that he should not drink, period. That was all new information. That all came out of people who were associated with the, uh, with the Oxford group. The Firestones in Akron, the tire magnets, they were, they were involved. And one of the Firestone's sons was a bad case of alcoholism. So there was something known about alcoholism, I guess, at that time, and people were trying to do something, but it was much different. Uh, from Dr. Silkworth, you know, we got the thing about, you know, the deflation at depth. What Bill was doing with people after he had his own spectacular spiritual experience in 1934 was um, he was trying to preach to people. You know, they, they, he, they called the experience he had a hot flash, and he would go out and try to, to preach to people. And it was Dr. Silkworth, again, a scientist and a, a medical man who told him, you know, Bill, you got to hit him with the hopelessness of what's going on, the ego deflation at depth. So their part in our history, I think, is, is, is strong. Long before the uh, Oxford group, there was a group of people in the 1800s who came very close to finding the answer to alcoholism. In fact, is they did find part of it, and they grew much faster than Alcoholics Anonymous has ever grown or ever grew then or now. Depending on who you believe, there were from, a, uh, from several thousand to half a million people at one time or another involved with the Washingtonians. There was a group of people, a handful of drunks at a bar over in Baltimore. And again, it points to what I was talking about last night. I mean, God's grace can swoop in anywhere, can it? You know, I mean, it moved me. Came, I mean, the, what started me towards Alcoholics Anonymous was a lady inviting me to her home out of Bill's Bar. She knew about Alcoholics Anonymous, even though she was a, a front-line regular at Bill's Bar. And I kept in touch with her. I lost touch with her for a while. But her life never changed. You know, she was still drinking and still hanging out in the bar and still jumping from man to man. But what she did for me, I mean, I'll never forget that. 
so I mean, how you figure all that stuff out? I mean, it's it it, it you know it 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 um I guess that's only in the mind of God. But the Washingtonians were the same place they had their beginnings, the same place I had mine. There was a handful of drunks at a bar in Baltimore who got together, and one of them said he was going to quit drinking. They joined in together, and they started what was known as the Washingtonians after George. They took their name from George Washington um, because he was the first two. So this handful of drunks got together, and they found part of the answer. They found that by sticking together, they could not drink. They did not have to drink. Now, what happened to them, and also, I think like I said last night, it's just as important for me to know what not to do as it is that I know what to do, isn't it? I mean, I need to know what not to do if I'm going to stay sober. In fact, it's very often I know if, if, if like if I'm trying to do some 11-step work and I'm trying to get some, some actual, uh, I mean, some conscious contact with God, I've, I very often know what I'm not supposed to do. I mean, I very often know that. So I need to know what doesn't work. And one of the things that we learned from the Washingtonians was is that we had to stick to our knitting. You know, our primary purpose, our singleness of purpose. We've got an answer for one thing. And lots of Alcoholics Anonymous writing talks about how easy it would be to think that we've got answers for other people. You know, we can jump. And, and we really do that, don't we? We jump from, you know, all our lives thinking we're less than other people. And now we get an answer. So we jump over here and we can set the whole world straight if they just listen to us. <laughs> and I think that our founders were no different than that. So it would be very easy. And uh, what the Washingtonians did is they... Uh, they would have speakers and they would have designated speakers, people who would go out and talk to groups of people and they would hold big meetings. Abraham Lincoln was one of their speakers. One of the things that Abraham Lincoln said was is that somehow what he didn't understand what was wrong with these people, but he, was, he really wasn't that far off from defining alcoholism. What Abraham Lincoln said was somehow these people had a thirst when it came to alcohol that he didn't have he, and that, that they, they should be helped. And uh, he was a speaker at one of the anniversaries of the Washingtonians. Now, where the Washingtonians, and they grew very fast. And you got to remember, this was in a time with no telephone, no information age, nobody just clicking a button, no cell phones, no TV, uh, none of that stuff. And, and, you know, they grew much faster than Alcoholics Anonymous. They went up into the, you know, the thousands very fast. And our slow, our, 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 our growth was like a, a glacier, comparatively speaking. Um, they made a big mistake. They started getting involved in other things. They got involved in the wet and dry issue. You know, some of you know there was the um, there was a group of people running around with prohibition, and 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 there was a woman. Uh, I forget the name of it now. There was a woman's movement that was against drinking. Temperance, temperance movement, but they were against drinking. Period. And so the Washingtonians got involved in that. And you can imagine, I mean, they had people over here who thought one way and people over here who thought another. And then they got involved in this slavery, anti-slavery movement. They had people who were pro-slavery, people who were anti-slavery. And that can certainly break things apart. I guess the most analogous to that right now would be the, the, the election we recently had in Florida. I mean, can you imagine if we got in Alcoholics Anonymous, somehow got involved in that? I mean, it made me crazy to begin with. Tell you a quick war story about that. It doesn't have anything to do with politics. It has to do with principles. I um, I won't tell you which one, but one of the candidates. I've been sober a while, and I couldn't hardly stand to listen to him. I mean, something welled up in me every time I'd see that guy talk. The other one is my man. I just love that guy. And and uh, but anyway, I'm talking to a guy on the phone that I sponsor, a, a young kid, and uh, his dad also agrees with me. 
about which one is the uh, one and the other one makes him some kind of revulsion wells up in him. So I'm I'm beating on this kid good naturedly that you need to, to switch over. Man, you need to grow up and start to think like your dad and I do. And, uh, you know, you really one of the reasons I think and just just like history, one of the reasons we continue to work with people is, is because that's how we take our place. But that's how we see. I mean, that's how so much of my stuff has gotten worked out. And uh, he said, well, he said, I'll tell you, he said, we've had a lot of focus groups up here and we really study the candidates and there's different kinds of, uh, uh, there's all kinds of little groups going on. There's people who are doing all kinds of local work at the university here that, that, te- that show you where the judges stand on uh, issues about environment and there's all kinds of stuff with that. And he said, I've looked pretty much at both of the candidates, evaluated all the stuff, and he said, I think they're both qualified for the job. I just tend to prefer this one over here. I'll tell you, I didn't have much to say after that. I thought, here's a guy, sober less than four years, who understands the whole thing. Everything that he's looking at has got to do with principle, and I can't begin to see the first principle because I'm so stuck on personality. Again, you know, I'm a slow learner in a lot of ways. I was sober a good ten years before I learned principles over personality had to do with my principles. I need to put principles over my personality, not over yours. Yours is fine. I mean, it probably does have a little bit that I need to cut you some slack too. But the real meaning, the, the, the real meaning of that principle is, is principles over my personality. That I need to do the right thing regardless of how I might feel. So what happened to the Washingtonians is, is they began to fall apart. And they fell apart rapidly enough. When you look at a period, a window of history, you know, we just celebrated what was the 65th anniversary of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's a fraction. In history, I'm 51 years old, and I've been here for most. You know, I've been alive for most of the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, my sponsor in Omaha got sober in 1955. When he got sober at 28 years old in San Antonio, Texas, he was the youngest man or woman in Alcoholics Anonymous in San Antonio, which is a major city. AA was only 20 years old at that time. When you look at a window of history, I mean, I'm always fascinated by people who knew Dr. Bob because I came in in 75. Bill had just died in 71. There was lots of people's offices you could go into in in the 70s, and they'd have letters hanging on the wall from Bill and pictures. I mean, when you look at a window of history, 65 years is a very short period of time, very, very short. So for the Washingtonians to come into being, I think, whatever that was in the 1860s or whenever it was, and then to fall apart as rapidly as they did, I mean, I think that we need to be very much aware of the mistakes that they made. And the primary mistake they seem to to have made is, is they thought they could be all things to all people. And nothing will throw me off. You know, I don't know why it's like this, but I tend to be that way myself. I mean, I'm sure that I would have had an opinion on the wet-dry issue. I'm sure I'd have had an opinion on the slavery-anti-slavery issue. You know, I certainly had opinions on that election in Florida. You know, and, and, and I have found, I don't know about you, but I've found in my own case, a lot of times the stronger my ignorance, the greater my opinion. <laughs> I don't want to be this way, but I've always been a person who thought that I ought to be able to practice law with a GED. <laughs> now, I don't want to be that way. That's just the way I am. I've sponsored some attorneys in Alcoholics Anonymous. I sponsor an attorney now. He's a, um, he's a divorce lawyer, and I told him that uh, I'm grateful he is. Mine was free. Uh, uh, I'm grateful, uh, but what I told him is, is you're getting rich presiding over the demise of the American family here. Uh, but, you know, a lot of times, I mean, I've had this experience a number of times with He's a fine member of Alcoholics Anonymous and, a, and, a, and obviously a good, a fine lawyer. But 
we have been talking about things with law or principles around legal things or just points of law or something. And, and a lot of times I've said, Chuck, I just don't think that's right in my mind. I mean, I go from knowing more about the law than he does. So, you know, it's important, I think, that we stick to what it is that we know. We've got an answer for one thing. We've got an answer that works for alcoholism, and, and that's what we've got. And what we've found here is that if we take care of that, then other things can happen. So I guess my point in saying all that, this was moving so rapidly that the, by the time that, that Bill Wilson, Dr. Bob, came along in 1935, uh, Bill Wilson got sober in December of 1934, and uh, Dr. Bob got sober, um, Cheryl, uh, where is she? June 10th, 1935. And, uh, but when they got going and, and Alcoholics Anonymous began to run into some trouble, I mean, we're really a problem organization, aren't we? We're people who are, our, our stuff is born out of problems. You could say correctly that all the gifts that, that we have that are, that are in place today you know, my own greatest gift in life, my sobriety, has come out of my own greatest defeat, my own greatest death. I had to die, so to speak. The surrender had to be complete enough. Old man to be fixed. I had to die, surrendered. That part of me died, and I hope, we'll, you know, will stay dead. But um, we need to know uh, what it is that's going on, and we need to stay current with that. When Alcoholics Anonymous began to run into some trouble... There was a man, and I think he was from North Carolina, who wrote Bill Wilson a letter that said, we seem to be going the way of the Washingtonians. There was fights in the groups. There was problems in the groups. There was all kinds of stuff going on. There was battlefronts. There was alcoholics dropping out. And you can tell that these people were no different than we were because you know where it talks about in the 12 and 12 with uh, Ed, the guy that was the atheist? You know, they said, when, oh, when is this gonna, guy going to get drunk? I mean, here you got AA members waiting for a guy to get drunk. Not, not exactly very spiritual, is it? So, I mean, there are people who were no different than we are. They were, you know, trying to find their way with this. But a guy wrote Bill Wilson a letter said that we seem to be going the way of the Washingtonians. Well, Bill had never heard of the Washingtonians. And that's what I'm talking about, about a little window of history. I think that Alcoholics Anonymous could fall apart. I think exactly what Bill Wilson said, if it ever did, it'll come from the inside. It won't happen from the outside. And I think history is going to support that we have come through in the last 10 or 15 years some of our most challenging times. And I think that, you know, where you find things in place, like where you find the ethic of sponsorship and where you find a home group and those things strongly in place, then you'll see the rest of Alcoholics Anonymous moving along very well. You won't see those meetings. I, You know, when I, when I moved to North Carolina in 1989, I'd never been to a meeting that you go in and sit down and the chairman opens the meeting and asks if anybody's got a problem. Somebody raises their hand, brings up a problem, then 15 or 20 brain scientists take a crack at that problem, and you leave there goofier than when you came. I'd never seen anything like that. scared me to death. I needed help when I left a meeting like that. You know, maybe it is true. You know, at one time, I thought it was sacrilegious to say you'd been to a bad meeting, and that may be true, but I'll tell you, I'll go this far. There are meetings that'll make you look for other meetings. And, I, you know, I'd never seen anything like that. So, you know, so it's very important to know, you know, what it is we're doing and how we're doing it. So it's important that we know about our history and, and, and what it is that keeps us together. And so I think that, you know, that's where the traditions came about. I think the traditions are very important. I think the traditions have a lot of application in addition to the groups. 
But I think their primary uh, reign is to teach us how to live together. You know, it says, could this erstwhile brand of erratic alcoholics find a way to live and work together? You know, once you get the booze out of us, then we begin to know a few things again, don't we? That ego who died that death and that surrender in the first step is not dead for long, is it? That's what work with others is all about. That's what sponsorship is all about. That's what, you know, everything that we do is to keep that, you know, at, at bay because it's always there. I recently heard, uh, I didn't want to, um, part of what uh, Cheryl and Lori were talking about on the way up here yesterday was that a man, a buddy of theirs that came up to this uh, weekend last year died drunk between now and then. And um, I was going to tell, I made a mental note, I got a telephone call Thursday afternoon, I was at work late, but a guy that I spent a lot of time working with, and, and um, in April of 1986, I took him down to a guy's basement and turned him over to him and said, this guy's making me nuts, you've got to do something with him. And um, that guy, I guess, had been sober over 20 years, blew his brains out um, Wednesday night. He had went back to drinking about a year ago, but he had been sober well over 20 years when he returned to drinking. And so I, well, I told Cheryl and Lori, I didn't want to try to one-up them, but I was over in uh, Lake Murray, Oklahoma last year about this time, and some people told me about a guy from Longview, Texas, who at Christmas time of, of 1999 had uh, took a drink of wine. He'd been sober like 44 or 45 years. He took a drink of table wine at Christmas time, and he went into desperation drinking and was dead in two weeks. You know, and I don't know how much stay in power I've built up in almost 26 years, but alcoholism is a progressive illness, isn't it? You know, and if I take a drink today, I seriously doubt I'd get off these premises unless it'd be to get some more booze. You know, I, you know, I don't have any illusion that if I ever took a drink of alcohol that I would ever get back to Alcoholics Anonymous. So I think we need to know those things, and we need to know what it is that makes Alcoholics Anonymous work. I mean, I need to know what my heritage is. I remember one time years ago, I, I told a guy by the name of, of um, General Kempston that, that the history of AA was like ice cream. It was interesting and it was fun, but you really didn't need it. And uh, he kind of shook his head and looked at me and said, oh, my child, you know. You know it was sort of like that kind of look where they look at you like they're going to start crying. How can you be so far off? You know, our history is what we are. It's our heritage. And that's where we learn what mistakes have been made that we don't have to make again. We, we, we begin to understand what our points is. But to think that this has been visited upon us and is going to stay here forever without any diligence is, is, is silly, isn't it? It's just like I don't think that the gift of sobriety was given to me that it's supposed to end with me. I don't think that the gift of sobriety was given to me because I'm a good guy that I should stay home now and watch television or enjoy my work. I think the gift of sobriety was given to me to pass it on. Somebody passed it on to me. And I think that, you know, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm appreciative of that, if I have gratitude for that, then that becomes an action. So our history is a fascinating thing. And I'll, I'll, let, that, I'll, I'll let that go with history. But if anybody's interested in talking about history this weekend, I'd be glad to spend some time doing it. And like I said, we've got a list of books with us. That fellow over in Hawaii has written a lot of fascinating books. And there's so much, um, so many contributors, alcoholic and non-alcoholic alike, have made AA what it is today. You know, to even, even, you know, to pick up the Holy Bible, the book of James and, and, the, and the book, the Sermon on the Mount, is what they were using in early meetings. They were using the book of James out of the Bible because it talks so much about action, talks about what you do, and the Sermon on the Mount, and the part that Sister Ignatia brought. I mean, Sister Ignatia is really responsible for the CHIP system in Alcoholics Anonymous. She gave people a religious medal when they left the hospital. So the part that religious people had to do with our history. You know what it says in the big book, to let resentments go towards religious people. 
you know, and make use of what they have to offer. And I'm not here to make anybody religious, but I think that it all somehow comes together in what we know as Alcoholics Anonymous today. Not a lot different in putting on this conference. I mean, somebody had to do all this stuff. Somebody had to get the room. Somebody had to make the coffee. Somebody has to do everything. Set, get speakers, set it up, everything. It doesn't just happen. And, it, you know, after this was done for me, then I need to know all of this so I can pass it on and it, it, it can continue to go. So our history has brought us to the first step. We, uh, step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that except to say I, I pretty much dallied on that last night. In fact, is I stayed, in, I still to this day, I've got a little thing for Bill's Bar. Um, sometimes I get stuck in Bill's Bar and having trouble getting out of there. But alcoholics really are exciting. They're exciting drinking. Now that, you know, I, I'm not interested in somebody vomiting on me anymore or anything like that or... About the second time, they tell you the same story for the third time, and it gets a little ridiculous, too. But alcoholics are exciting. A lady in Omaha that always talks about that, that for her money, alcoholics are in technicolor, and the rest of the world's in black and white. You know, and I think there's some truth in that. But the, what, I, what I would say about the first step is, I, and again, this is just how I see it. I, I, I personally believe all 12 steps are of equal importance. I don't think that there's any place in any Alcoholics Anonymous literature that you'll ever find that any one step is any more important than another step. I've never heard anybody that I'd be willing to follow say that any one step is any more important than any other step. I don't believe that. I think at different times, obviously, different steps. I don't think they're all of equal importance at the same time. But the only thing I know that even comes close in Alcoholics Anonymous history, uh, literature to say in that is around the first step where it says it's the only step we can practice to perfection. And the word I'll try to use throughout this weekend when we're talking about the steps is the word practice. I think it's a much better word. I, I think that, the, that we tend to think about working the steps kind of like we're going to strangle problems. About anything that I've ever tried to work on has gotten worse in life. And the way I understand Alcoholics Anonymous is much more about surrender and cooperation and allowing that power and that grace and its people and its meetings and all of our stuff to move us. So I think practice is a much better word. But the first step is the only step that we have to understand with perfection. I mean, that has to be clear. When I say I'm powerless over alcohol, there can't be any doubt in my mind about that. And I personally believe we had a speaker, a great speaker, Thursday night at my home group that said that what God's grace has done for him is it's made it so he's not powerless over alcohol anymore and his life is not unmanageable. And I know what he meant. I'm not going to trip you know, with that kind of stuff, but that's not how I understand it. I'm here today nearly 26 years without a drink, and I believe from the bottom of my heart that I'm as powerless over alcohol today as the last day I drank any mad dog wine. I don't believe I've gotten any power over alcohol. What I think is, is I've been connected to power here and gotten a ride through the 12 steps, God's grace, and the actions of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I need to be very clear about that and, and about having an unmanageable life. If you were here last night, I mean, you know, you can, again, you can be fairly confused. I'm running around the country homeless with a toothbrush sticking out of my pocket. I mean, even then I knew my life was unmanageable. You know, duck into one of those um, community bathrooms and, and uh, brush your teeth. Uh, you can be fairly far off and still know your life is unmanageable. So I've always known that not drinking was not an answer for me. And the way I understand that first step is what, you know, when it says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. What that means to me is I'm having trouble drinking. Drinking is not working for me. You know, I'm, I, I'm having trouble when I drink, and I, and I can't stay away from drinking. And then there's that line, which means another thought. It says, and our lives have become unmanageable. What that means to me is I'm having, over here, I'm having trouble drinking. That line means another thought, and then it come over here and says, I'm having trouble not drinking. 
And that's what I understand alcoholism to be. I can't live with alcohol and I can't live without alcohol. So not drinking is not an answer for me. You know, when I quit drinking, I became worse than I was before. You know, if there had been any way, I mean, I would have stayed right there and died. When I got sober, I kind of beat the rush of kids, particularly in my part of the country, and, and um, particularly at the Sunday night speakers meeting. It was real big in Fremont, Nebraska, where I sobered up at that time. The speakers meeting was real big because all these little towns had like one meeting a week or two meetings a week, and everybody would come into the speakers meeting on the weekends. And I would see these farmers get, you know, they, they were driving big cars, and they were well-dressed, and they, some of them were wearing diamonds. And you could tell by the, I mean, some of them were a little over their fighting weight. They were well-fed. And um, people would say to me that they were glad to see me before I had to suffer so much like they did. And I wondered, what is it that happened to them? You know, I mean, I'm about dead. You know, I mean, I, you know, I've, I'm not long away from hemorrhage and blood. Um, the first time I heard um, Peggy speak, Peggy Martin, was she, the reason I've always identified with her is she was almost about 10 years sober, and she talked about hemorrhage and blood and her feet all being all swollen up. And I was just past that. I was brand new in Alcoholics Anonymous. So, you know, I've always known that that first step is a reality. I, I also believe that that first step is not a very good place for me to stay. I don't think that there's much hope in the first step. I mentioned Gene Salazar last night, the guy who took um, uh, Bill Wilson's picture in Dr. Bob and the Old Timers standing at, at a Dr. Bob's gravesite. Always used to like to say that if the first step becomes operative, it has the power to keep a chronic alcoholic drinking, not drinking, from the time it moves in their life until they die. And I wouldn't argue with that point. I'd just say, for me, I'm not interested in just having that first step in my life. Because it's a, you know, more alcoholics kill themselves sober than do uh, drinking. There's, more, there's a lot more suicides in Beverly Hills than there are on Skid Row. Now, you could argue, probably correctly, that an alcoholic on Skid Row is killing himself with booze another way, but I'm certainly not interested in living on that first step. I think that in my case, I understand that I understood that first step to some degree a lot of years before I quit drinking. I remember one time, I told you I grew up in alcoholism, and, and uh, my mom, who's never, never had a drinking problem, caught me drinking. I, was, I, don't even, I think I was probably a teenager. I was home on leave from the military, but she caught me drinking in the morning. And I'd been real, real drunk the night before. And so, you know, she'd grown up in alcoholism. Her dad was an alcoholic, or all her brothers are alcoholics. And my dad, she'd been married to my dad for probably 20 years at that time, and he'd been drunk all of those years. And so, obviously, she talked with me, and I can remember explaining to my mom that I don't have a problem with drinking. My situation is different. I enjoy it. But from what I know about alcoholism, if it ever became a problem, I would just stop. And I knew that when I was telling her that, that that was not true. I knew that at the time. But that simply was not true. So, you know, it's not a good place to stay. It's not a place that has much hope. What the first step really says to me is it's an admission that I'm dead meat. It's really an admission that I'm screwed. I can't live with drinking. I can't live without drinking. So I'm not interested in staying there. So I think that my healing moved out forward through the second step. And like I told you last night, that started to happen for me the very first summer I was sober. Now, again, I think it's one of Bill Wilson and God's greatest coups that in this book, I, I, I find the chapters of the agnostics more full of just spiritual power than probably any other, just for me, any other short um, pages anywhere. And it, it's funny that that power comes in such a way to the chapters of the agnostics. You know, and it even asked in there, it's, it's a kind of a funny place, but, you know, they get around to saying God's either everything or he's nothing. What's your choice to be? 
That's a tough thing to ask an agnostic, ain't it? You know, over here I'm going to die because of booze, and over here you want me to believe in God, and our doubt is on us, isn't it? You know, the word prejudice is used throughout the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. So, I mean, obviously our doubt and our prejudice is on us, but it's something that has to, has to go away. So came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I, I understand that in a lot of different ways, but initially I think how that started to, to have meaning for me was through the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and through the people and through the literature. I began to hear things in there that I could identify with, and eventually, obviously, a little bit of hope was born. Again, the first summer that I was sober, I couldn't have put it in words at that time, but I knew that something was slightly different. I was as terrified as I'd ever been. I think I was as angry as I'd ever been. I don't think much was really different in how I felt, but I knew that something was slightly different. And I can remember um, when I was sober about a year and a half, I remember telling my great aunt that I thought that I had found a way of life that I could live without drinking unless I demanded to. And that's what I think Alcoholics Anonymous is. Now, at that time, I also remember telling her that I was still overwhelmed by all the problems of life, that, you know, that I didn't know what I was going to do and, and all of that. But, I mean, you know, if, if, when I think about it from this vantage point today, I mean, if, if there's power to do something about the illness of alcoholism, if there's power here to reverse a killer illness on a death march, then there has to be power to do something about any problem that possibly we could be faced. If that wasn't true, if Alcoholics Anonymous, the theme of this weekend, if Alcoholics Anonymous were not more powerful than alcoholism, then what AA would end up being is a crapshoot instead of a way of life because problems would then take us out of here. My observation is problems have very little to do with drinking. In fact, it is. Like I said, I think if once we start to sensitize, we engage life, most of us get more problems. We take our place here. And very often, I've watched people here deal with the eminence of their own death. I've watched them do it with tremendous class and dignity. I've watched people deal with all kinds of problems here. In fact, is you know, I, I th this again, there may be this may not be accurate. It may just be my experience. I've never seen one single man or woman that come to Alcoholics Anonymous and put the principles of AA first in their life and kept them there to the best of their ability on a daily basis that hasn't come out just fine. I've never seen one, no matter what kind of tragedy they had to deal with, no matter what kind of reversal no matter what kind of trauma, personal or otherwise, I've never seen one single case where people who put the principles of AA first were not able to weather that and in time find some way to live. And most of the time, I mean, peace came after, you know, after the thing. On the other hand, I've seen untold numbers of people who tried to patch up their life and everywhere where they were short thinking that they could do all that, their drinking would go away. And I've never seen that work. It really makes sense. It's more logical than the other way. You know, what we've got here is a very illogical illness. You know, it makes sense today if you just apply logic that I could take a drink and get away with it. I'm a much different person today than I was when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. We know that that's not true. But if I get away from the spiritual actions of Alcoholics Anonymous, then what I think would happen is this would start to look logical again. It would start to, I would start to approach this thing from a vantage point of making sense. So I think that the second step is the place where we start to move towards the... Um, um, where we, you know, where we really start to move towards hope, you know, that healing quality, that belief that something different can happen. What I needed was hope. If power, if 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 lack of power is the dilemma, then power is the answer. In fact, as it says in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, that the book was written to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered. It uses the word recovered repeatedly. It says we've recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. 
So the first step only is seemingly absolute, isn't it? I don't know, certainly in my case, and I don't know many alcoholics that I've ever worked with that haven't been judged hopeless by somebody. I don't know what kind of an alcoholic you'd have if they hadn't gotten on people's nerves enough to be hope. you know, that somebody would think they were hopeless. I mean, you'd have to keep them locked in a cell 24 hours a day. I mean, we'll agitate a few folks, won't we? So, I mean, if, if lack of power is the problem, then power is the answer. So where does that come? It comes in the second step with hope. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, you could certainly say that the things I did when I was drinking were crazy. I did a lot of crazy things drinking. I had a lot of crazy things done. I, uh, I had a guy hold a 357 at my head one night, you know, and I don't think ever, you know, they say that you can only sober up through time. That's not exactly true. Uh, I came back some when that guy put that 357 in my head, and I knew him very well. He, uh, he was permanent party in, in, in those bars where I drank. And uh, he met his death in a burglary. A policeman shot him and killed him, but... He, uh, he put a 357 at my head, and, and I can remember. I, I sobered up some, and I remember asking him. I said, Cecil, is that thing loaded, or are you just trying to scare me? And he hung it out the window and fired it. Now, the stuff that I had done to get myself in that position was crazy. Driving a car drunk is crazy. Getting in the wrong house is crazy. I mean, all kinds of things is crazy. I think today the craziest thing I could do, the most insane thing that I could do, would be to take a drink when I'm sober thinking that I'm going to handle it. You know, I think that if you filled Mother Teresa full of mad dog wine, she'd be crazy. You know, I don't think that's what that step means. You know, I'm sure it doesn't help. I mean, I'm sure that's part of its relevance. But I think it, what it means is, is that, you know, if I take a drink while I'm sober, there's nothing more insane could happen to me. In fact, is based on what I've told you last night and what I've shared with you this morning, for me to take a drink, I've got to be insane before I take it, don't I? So do you. So I've got to be fairly sick. I've got to pull out of the protection of Alcoholics Anonymous. Again, I'm protected here with you. While it is true that there's no human power, then that would be true that meetings are not the only thing that keeps us sober, right? It's part of the answer. But if there's no human power, but there is something that's visited, there's power in what we're doing here. You know, there's power in us getting here together and talking about these things and sharing our experience, dreams, and hopes. I said some prayers on my knees this morning. I said some prayers with my buddy who's here with me from North Carolina. You know, he held my hand and said a prayer. Um, you know, there's power in that. We're, what we're doing, there's, there's, there's all kinds of power in that. I'm not just going to walk off and get drunk. So if there's hope that I can come here and find a way to live without drinking, which is no longer just uh, theory for me. That's not your experience anymore for me. That's my experience. It would be hard to convince me Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't work because it's my experience. Exactly what Henry Ford said in life is true. It's a thing of supreme value. My experience. It's mine. I know that Alcoholics Anonymous works. I know that it works on any problem that you could possibly have. In fact, is what I found, and, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll share that eight-year and 19-and-a-half-year experience with you. The pain, not now, but a little bit as we get into the steps, the pain of that was more intense the only way I can even come close to describing what that pain was like is it made being homeless and wondering all the face of the earth look like kid stuff to me. The pain of that eight-year experience and 19-and-a-half-year experience was anything wor worse than anything I've ever experienced, drunk or sober. And it lasted about six or nine months, and, uh, and then it went away, and then I've been, both times I got much better. I've had three major surrenders in my life. When I surrendered with my illness, either that or die in 1975, in 1983 and in, in, um, in 1994, um, going into 1995 with that 19-and-a-half-year thing. And, and out of each one of those surrenders, my life has changed as much as it did from drunk to sober. Um, 
But anyway, um, I had some other thing I wanted to say about that. I don't know what it was. Doesn't matter much. Um, oh, what I wanted to say, what I've learned out of that, out of those experiences is, I've learned that Alcoholics Anonymous is more powerful on a daily basis than whatever the problem could possibly be. That's the, that's the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. On a daily basis, whatever's wrong, Alcoholics Anonymous, if I'll avail myself to all parts of it, the power of Alcoholics Anonymous is slightly more than whatever can be wrong. On the long haul, it's not even a close race. The power of AA is so much more than whatever the problem. Um, step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood him. Um, I, uh, what I, let me, let me tell you, what I believe about Alcoholics Anonymous, list, I believe that the book Alcoholics Anonymous is our basic text, just like it says. I don't believe it's our only text, otherwise it would be called that. So I personally am a fan of the 12 and 12. Well, I don't believe that the 12 and 12 is a watered-down uh, psychological look at what the big book is saying. I don't believe that at all. Bill wrote that in a num num 15 or whatever years later after he'd been sober, so quite obviously it's more diverse and it's more broad. I don't think it takes anything away from the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. But, you know, in, 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 the, um, in the big book, what it's really talking about in the third step is destruction of self-centeredness. You know, when it talks about we turned our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood him. You know, I had no idea what my will in my life was. The only thing I knew is that I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I wouldn't have been able to put this in words. And again, we do, usually don't talk about it in these terms, but I was extremely angry at God. I was blaming God for the direction my life had taken. There had been the death of another person that I was partly responsible for. Uh, you know, and I've worked intimately with an awful lot of alcoholics since I've been here. And I don't think I've ever ran into an alcoholic that wasn't in a lot of spiritual trouble when they got here. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever found anybody that wasn't really confused. So, you know, for me to turn my will and my life over, I had to find out a lot about what I didn't believe. I had to find out what it is I was trying to turn over. So it made sense to me to try to get rid of that destruction or to do something with that self-centeredness. There's nothing more self-centered than killing yourself with booze. I mean, there's nothing more self-centered than living in that obsession, those obsessions of alcoholism that go into other areas, whether it be sex or work or gambling or, or just the obsessions that we deal with with resentment. I mean, those, all those obsessions that go elsewhere, I mean, that all, there's nothing more self-centered than being stuck in that, in the obsession of, of active alcoholism, of living. You know, you can't see past the drink. So, I mean, I, I could understand that, and that made sense to me. And so the destruction of self-centeredness was something that made sense to me, and it was explained to me that my will is my thinking and my life is my action. And that made a lot of sense to me. It made a lot of sense to me then, and it makes a lot of sense to me now. And I was, I was also told that it's a lot easier to change your actions and what you do than it is how you think and feel. So I was told if you'll do the right thing, and I was also told we'll teach you here how to do the right thing. As I look back on it now, what I really did is I turned my will and my life over the, of my, to my sponsor is what I did. And I think I turned it over to my great aunt. And I've seen that done count, countless times since I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I, I have never seen I think it works just fine. Because the, what the people were teaching me to do or what their, their whole intent was was to get me to be dependent on the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. The more dependent I am on the principles, then the more independence I have as a person. So the book talks about destruction of self-centeredness, and I think it was essential in my case. And, and, and the 12 and 12 talks about the principle of willingness in the third step. You know, if those two, th if those two things can come together, if I can become willing to do things in life that are mine to do, if I can become willing to become responsible, 
to do what's in front of me one day at a time. You know, all those things, going to meetings, all that has to do with what I understand the third step. You know, to go to meetings on a regular basis, to read Alcoholics Anonymous literature on a daily basis, to get with other people. I remember um, the first time a guy, guy I sobered up with, I told you last night, was a prisoner of war. I remember the first time that he, he, uh, he told me something that I was just devastated with. I mean, it was something, it was definitely uh, uh, serious. We weren't doing any fourth and fifth step stuff. I doubt we even knew what it was yet. But he shared with me a major, um, a gapping um, problem in his life, a horrible situation that he was trying to live with and, and um, how the craziness that him and his wife and children were living in. And, you know, I guess the, the, the miracle out of that, of that third step and everything coming together that during that time, even though I didn't know it, is I was trustworthy. You know, I didn't have to run and tell anybody else. You know, the reason I didn't trust anybody is because I wasn't trustworthy myself. But, you know, that first summer and things were moving. So all of this was coming together for me through the meetings, through the literature of Alcoholics Anonymous, through hearing speakers. I heard a man say, an early speaker say, that if you can stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, you'll become grateful for what it is that brought you here. And, you know, that made no sense to me. Today, somehow that does all make sense about the first three steps, and that all fits very well together. So while that third step prayer in the big book, it's, the words are very gripping and grabbing, what it tells us is, is all that is, is an idea. You know, those are just words. I mean, what we need to express, or rather what we need to be expressing is the idea inherent in those words, that I need to turn myself into the care of God. It's also funny, again, how Bill Wilson writes in there at the bottom of the third step prayer in the big book, it says, we thought well before doing this. Well, we've already done it by the time we get down to that part, you know. So it's, you know, sometimes the wording, like, you know, today, it, you know, sometimes I wonder why is that in there in the, in the chapter to the agnostics about God is either everything or he's nothing. You know, you wouldn't think that would be in there, but it fits very well. There's a um, couple other things that, that um, I wanted to um, real quick to share on that. You know, in the, um, in the third step um, stuff in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous talks about um, some paragraphs of reading. It reads into this. It says, when we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Well, you know, we, we talk about those promises at the bottom of Step 8 and 9. The book, Alco all Alcoholics Anonymous literature is full of promises. It'll tell you what'll happen if you do what you're supposed to do, and very often it'll tell you what'll happen if you don't. But it says right there that everything will be provided if we do what we're supposed to do. How do I know what I'm supposed to do? Because I've turned myself over to the power of a person who's guiding me. I, I, I don't think that it's, would, it, you know, I don't think it would be possible to move forward into these steps without a guide. It wouldn't have been for me. I mean, I always understood what the words said. And I can look words up in the dictionary. But I needed clarification. I needed guidance. I also needed the hope of another person. I needed the experience of somebody who thought I could do things that I didn't think I could do. So it's all come together very well um, in there for me. And, you know, I went through the experience of, um, I'm going to wrap up this session here. I, I went through the experience of, of on my knees, turning my will and my life over with another man. Early on, I did that. But I, and, and I, you know, it had meaning. And I do that with the guys I sponsor. And sometimes they report having a, a, a you know, it says that a, a feeling sometimes will come immediately. Sometimes they have that and sometimes they don't. So I think that had meaning. But I think, that a much, I think that was a part of what happened to me with the third step. I think much more was the part of just the community, of, being, of going to meetings, 
of being connected to the people, of getting some hope. And then, you know, the destruction of self-centeredness. What a wonderful thing here. You know, that we've got an opportunity to try to reverse some of that stuff, to look past ourselves. You know, we have to do it to stay alive, but what a great gift that becomes because that's how we begin to heal up. You know, it has nothing to do with virtue. I try to help you because I want to stay alive. And because of our own greatest darkness, then God begins to use that for our greatest light. You know, and the paradoxes of AA become really powerful here. So we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand them because we're running away from ourselves. You know, it's the first time I took my will and my life out of the hands of an idiot myself. So I think we'll, uh, we'll stop here with this session, and I don't know what the time limit is on the break, but whatever it is, um, we'll get back here in that amount of time, and we'll push forward. Thanks. We seem to be a, a decent group of people, everybody clear-eyed and, and um, polite and healthy men and good-looking women. And can you imagine if this group of people were all drinking together in here? You know, what we'd have on our hands, you know, what that would be different. It'd be an amazing thing, wouldn't it? The other thing I thought of, thought of on the break is that I want to be careful. I, I thought of this in my home group a while back we, uh, when we were dealing with the 12 steps. And sometimes I think it, it, when you, you know, I know that when I listen to somebody talk about the steps or about their sobriety when I was new, it seemed to me from a vantage point of something that I could never accomplish. And it hit me a while back that I'm afraid that sometimes when I talk about the steps, I'm afraid it sounds like it was much more orderly than it really was. It became orderly, and that's the good news. I mean, I have done the actions of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've had the experience of the first 100 or 70, whatever that was, rounded off or however that was. I've went back and done that, but my own personal experience you know, was not like that. It was much choppier. It was much more bouncy, and it was much more chaotic. It was always sincere, and I think that's the good news, that it was sincere. So... You know, if you turn yourself into the sincerity and the actions of Alcoholics Anonymous and will take advantage of all the stuff here that's available to us, then we should be safe as we move forward in that and if we have a good guide. I was talking a little bit on the break, too, to some people. That some guys were talking about some of those meetings that, um, that I was talking about where somebody raises their hand and brings up a problem. And, you know, when I, when I said earlier that I think Alcoholics Anonymous is starting to come out of a period of time where I think history is going to judge, it was one of our most, I guess, volatile or chaotic or however you would want to talk about that. You know, I, and I, there's, there's a place where you see Alcoholics Anonymous in very good stead and all of its stuff going just fine. And everything that I've ever seen, that, for example, in the, uh, in the, in the, in the mid to late 1970s, I went to a number of meetings in Chicago because my ex-wife was from Chicago, and so whenever we were visiting her parents, there was an AA clubhouse my sense of direction is so bad, I've literally stopped to pee somewhere and ended up leaving and going the wrong way. I can get so turned around that this is one place I knew where the meetings were, so I always went to meetings there. And when I went to those meetings in the 1970s, those were excellent principled meetings where there was men and women of, of good vintage sobriety and long-term sobriety, and there was obvious sponsorship and things like that. Last time I went to a meeting there in 1993, I mean, that didn't even have a nodding acquaintance to what was going on there in the 1970s. I mean, I didn't know what I was in. There was like four or five meetings a day at this place. No one spoke to you. There was no topics. The meetings, people were raising their hands and asking for help. 
with a relationship. People were introducing themselves as addicts. There was all kinds of stuff. And I talked to a guy after a meeting. He said he was an over-the-road truck driver. And he said that the men and women, that I, he was sober about 15 years, and he said the men and women that I sobered up under here have all left. They're gone. They, stayed for, they, they, they finally just threw in the towel, and they're all in meetings out in the suburbs. Well, and he, he said he went back on the board of the club to try to do something about that, and he asked me to write a letter to the board about you know, what I saw when I was there before and what I saw now all these years later. Well, and I think we can all find plenty wrong, and I, that's not the point on what I'm saying. But I think that you know, meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, like I said earlier, are just one thing that we do in AA. And for a meeting to have weight and depth, there has to be enough strength to hold the meeting. I mean, a whole bunch of newcomers gathered up together are just crazy, aren't they? One guy said one time that he'd got to the point where he didn't want anybody with less than five years sobriety on his own property unattended. Well, I don't think that's true. But, I mean, obviously we've all been in that shape, haven't we? I mean, we've all started out from that point, so we can empathize and, and understand that. But obviously those people need responsible leadership, and a meeting is not going to have any relevance or, or if there's not enough weight there in the meeting to hold that. And so the guys were talking at the break a little bit about going to meetings and somebody raising their hand and a problem in the meeting just being lost. Another guy said, well, he'd seen that happen, but where somebody got it back on track. What I think where you see that all the actions of Alcoholics Anonymous firmly in place in a group or in an area or in a district or a community or anywhere else is where you see strong, principled sponsorship moving through that. Because quite obviously, I mean, we're all people that have been new people, aren't we? Everybody in this room started off from the point of being drunk or being uh, connected to a drunk, a family member or whatever. So we know about the, the illness of alcoholism and we know about its diabolical nature. I mean, alcoholism is such a diabolical illness that not only has the power to kill people who drink, it destroys people who don't even drink it. You know, we, we, we run over everybody who gets in our way. Well, to reverse something like that, I mean, it takes a lot of, uh, it takes depth and weight. And it's just like it says in the book, the, you know, the, the message that will hold these people must have depth and weight. And we know that once you gain the confidence of an alcoholic, it'll last a lifetime if it's not violated. Well, I think that where you see those things not being a problem today is where sponsorship is firmly in place. Because quite obviously, I mean, it, when, when you say that, when I say I went to a meeting where, you know, somebody brought up a problem and 15 or 20 brain scientists took a crack at that, I'm not demeaning what's going on there. Obviously, newcomers have problems, don't they? We all have problems. I mean, I never have outgrown my need for intimate, private conversation. I mean, I hope I never will. I have an active, alive relationship with my sponsor today where I talk problems over with him. In fact, is I'm always interested in knowing what my sponsor would think about anything. I mean, I've, you know, I, I don't think that that's ever changed. I think in the beginning, I, I, I don't think I'd have been alive without it. I don't think I'd have got through the eight years or the 19 and a half year thing. I don't think I'd be alive today. I don't think my life would be nearly as, as um, alive and electric as it is if it wasn't for that intimate thing. So newcomers obviously have a tremendous need for that. It's just not within the forum of a meeting to do that. So obviously, you know, you don't find that stuff going on in meetings because it's being taken care of on the telephone and in coffee shops and, and in places like that. So I think that, it, you know, it's incumbent upon us to dignify people's problems but to do it correctly. You know, to do the wrong thing for the right reason, you still get the wrong stuff. I mean, if you drink poison thinking it's Kool-Aid, you're still out of here. You know, it isn't going to make any difference. So, you, you know, we've got to be uh, aware and a little bit of strategic about what we're doing. If we want old uh, newcomers to be able to stand the test of time, then we've got to take their problems seriously and, and work with them. It's the only way that, 
that um, that that can be done. And so I think it's just a little bit of an approach. And and it's a shame that that for example that thing and I was talking about in Chicago that that clubhouse in 1993 that all those people had left and are out in the suburbs now. I mean because there was really nobody there to work with those people. And what they understood the meeting being was just kind of a group therapy kind of a thing. There's an old guy in North Carolina that always liked to say in his talk that Alcoholics Anonymous didn't deal in problems. We dealt in solutions. And the difference being is, is the mentality that if I talk about my problem long enough, somehow it'll go away. Well, problems have to be talked about. They can't be rehearsed, though, right? I mean... If, if you stay in the problem, for example, people who stay in therapy without any behavior change get worse, don't they? Again, hence the, you know, the genius of Alcoholics Anonymous is we say, you know, you talk to somebody about, you know, the, whatever the problem is, is your wife is kicked out or you don't have any money and they tell you to, you know, clean the coffee pot. Makes no sense whatsoever. The only thing we know is, is it works. The proof is always in the pudding. Does something work or not? So it's an action sort of a thing that we take here and we get connected to. Great power in it and great healing. The other way is I've just never seen it work and, and um, you know, to take problems and to try to wear them out as opposed to, to the action approach that just contraindicated to what I understand alcoholics being. What I understand AA meetings being designed to do is take principles or step or like one day at a time or whatever, which is straight out of the Bible. We got most of our principles from men and women of medicine and religion. But one day at a time is straight out of the Bible. It says something in there to the effect, I'm not much of a Bible, uh, I don't have much Bible knowledge, but it says something to the effect of the uh, evil uh, thereof today is enough. You know, there's no sense, you know, going into the future looking for trouble or wandering around in the past with, with resentment. So, you know, what we do in our meetings is take those principles and let them see the light of day. So I practice perfect spiritual principles and power problems down. And so it's just, a, I guess it's an approach. And, and um, so I think, that, I think that, that, that history will show that without people guiding that, I mean, no matter what we might believe, like it says in the third step, you know, that the rest, it says in the third step in the 12 and 12 that the rest of the AA program can only be practiced, can only move forward with it when the third step is given a persistent effort. You could probably say that about any step if the truth were known, but that's a fairly bold statement. And so far as I know, that's the only place where it comes quite like that, where Bill Wilson says that. So, I mean, you know, th there's got to be people involved in that. We don't do those things in a vacuum. I mean, we wouldn't know what to do. You know, we'd be living in the same isolation. So what we looked at this morning was, the, you know, the first three steps where we took a look and, you know, a, an acknowledgement of our illness that we can't live with drinking, we can't live without drinking. Second step where we begin to get offered some hope. And the third step, where we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. And, and, and again, I think where we start to move forward in the beginning and the end of living alone. I think you could correctly say that, that alcoholism, I, I heard a guy say one time if he was going to rename the illness of alcoholism, he would call it fear. Not a bad name. And I think you could also call it the illness of isolation, no matter whether you're, you're in Yankee Stadium or not. I've never listened to an alcoholic talk. And certainly from a podium, I've never had one share intimate with me that didn't share that they were in serious trouble before they started drinking. So it looks like an illness you could treat on the couch, doesn't it? It looks like, I mean, there's a lady that, that always talks about it, that there was like a hole in her where the wind blew through. And what alcohol did was fill that up. Well, what alcohol did for me and what a spiritual awakening had done for me are very much the same thing. They're very similar. So to try to do that without people is just not the way God's worked it out. 
I mean, obviously, God could do anything he wants, very much like the priest healing that lady of uh, all that, um, that. Her body was all infected and being destroyed, and then it was gone. Well, obviously, if God would have wanted to get us sober through a personal telephone call between him and us, he could do that. That doesn't seem to be the way he's worked it out. Even people who have spectacular spiritual experiences lose all their weight if they don't continue to move forward. I know a guy who had his throat slashed in prison by the way, in 1975 as well, it was a superficial wound, but nevertheless, it was a, a, his throat was slashed. He was under the influence of alcohol and drugs when it happened, and uh, he was delirious when he stood up afterwards, and he's, I have no reason to doubt this story. I was in contact with him for years and heard him tell the story. He did volunteer work at a, at a prison in Nebraska. He said that he grabbed the cell house door and screamed, God, help me, when he stood up. He didn't know what he was doing. He was just delirious, and he said... What he described is very much what happened to Bill Wilson. He said a peace came over him. Now, the only way I would know to know if that was true or not would be to look and see how he lived his life after that. That particular man lived his life another six consecutive years in a maximum custody penitentiary in a spiritual manner. He joined Alcoholics Anonymous. He became alcohol-free, began to work with other people. His whole life was dedicated to service. So he got out of prison much earlier than he might have. He did well after he got out of prison for a considerable period of time, but he forgot about tending the fire of that spiritual awakening. He eventually, after you know, a couple of years, returned to drinking, and last I heard it ended up back up in prison in another state. Well, so, I mean, the gift is given to us, but there's an expectation. There's an expectation that's going to be watered. Nothing seems to grow in the dark. Anything that ceases to grow dies, whether it's plant or human. So, anyway... That's what we've done this morning. We've looked at how the first three steps come together. And what I think is we've got with that is a good beginning on living without drinking. We've got a good, you know, we, we, we've learned something about the necessity of destruction of self-centeredness. So we're on a path now to move forward. But, we, but it, just like it says in our literature, it's necessary. We, we, we've learned something about the necessity of destruction of self-centeredness, so we're on a path now to move forward, but, we, but it, just like it says in our literature, it's necessary that we go much further. One other thing I wanted to touch upon, um, I kind of take, uh, Cheryl's kind of my boss here this weekend, and she, she showed me her watch and told me when it was necessary that, that, uh, that we stop, so I'm going to stop on time, said lunch is at 12.15. The other thing she said she wanted acknowledged, and I agree that she has been vindicated on her knowledge of history because that she knew June 10, 1935 was the beginning of AA. We worked with her on that on the ride from Jacksonville. She was in jeopardy last night, and she memorized it overnight. So I agree that she has been appropriately vindicated, and I will no longer beat on her the rest of the weekend. Uh, the other thing I'm great... Uh, Bruce and I talked a little bit at the break, and I talked with Jerry, so it won't be any problem. Bruce said that one of the things, one of the um, people have mentioned that they'd like to have more time to do other stuff. I'm going to try to, and I'm a little bit worried about my voice, and, and everybody's been so nice. I guess it wouldn't matter if I lost my voice. Somebody else would just step in, I'm sure, and we'd get through this fine. If I'd feign up here, I'm sure it'd be fine. Next year, somebody would say, I wonder what was wrong with that guy from North Carolina. I mean, we're a pretty accepting lot, aren't we, after we get in here. But anyway... What I'm going to try to do is knock out four, five, six, and seven in this period of time. And then we'll go to lunch, and what we'll do is we'll decide on a time this afternoon. We'll come back and do eight and nine, and we'll have the rest of the afternoon off. Does that sound is that fair? And then tonight we'll have our meeting and um, food and dance and, and um, do whatever us spiritual giants do on a Saturday night away from home. <laughs> uh, step four. 
Uh, I hope we're all going to be spiritual tonight. Step four said, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Interesting to see what the dictionary, I think sometimes it's very telling to see what words actually mean. My, uh, my great aunt was a lifelong student of words. And the reason she was is because of her, her love of language and knowledge in the English language. She was an English teacher earlier in her life. But she studied Latin because that's where words break down from and word derivative and stuff. I don't know anything about all that. Don't have much interest in it. I, I read a lot, so I find that I know what a lot of words mean. Even before, you know, when I see them another time, I'll, I'll know what they mean. But it's interesting sometimes to look up words. This is what the dictionary says about the word moral. Now think about this. If you want to see how things are changing for us by the time we get to the fourth step, remember now, last night we were, uh, uh, somebody was on the way up here, I think, we were talking about closing time of the bar and about, you know, last chance for alcohol, or last Last call for alcohol, last chance for romance. You know, how things change and stuff. And, and you know, if you want to look at how things are starting to change now as we move forward into the steps, we've come to a point where we've, we've done some, some, some healthy stuff by now. The only way to know if you've done a third step is to see if you've grabbed paper and pen. And it's what the book says. It must be followed at once if there's going to be any permanent effect, just like the man who had the spectacular spiritual experience. If that thing's going to last, if that sucker's going to take... It's going to take some digging in. And it's not fair to say that Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't involve any work because it does. I mean, cooperation, it takes a lot of work. But I still think that practice is a better word than work the steps. Work tends to imply, at least to me, that somehow we can make something happen. And again, that's just never been my experience. My experience is, is it, it's come through surrender and cooperation. Um, but if you want to look and see how things are starting to change for us now, we're starting to get involved with the word moral. Not only are we starting to get involved with the word moral by the time we get to the fourth step, it starts to, to be associated with me. You know, that's a scary thing. That would, if I'm going to take a, a searching and fearless moral inventory, that means obviously I'm going to be involved with my immorality. You know, I'm starting to get involved with some scary stuff here. It starts to get much scarier. And there's a lot of emphasis on the fourth and fifth step. But, you know, it, it's, it, again, what happens, I think, when we get to the fourth step is, is that anybody, to me, when somebody's willing to move forward with an honest effort on the fourth and fifth step, it, is, is it's an indication of deadly earnestness. Why would I go somewhere? Why would I write down every filthy, rotten, corruptible thing I've ever done? Stuff that I've been lying and ashamed of for years, and now I'm going to go tell it to God and to another human being and... and get straight with that stuff myself. I mean, why would I do that? Obviously, I must believe my life depends on it. So I, I think that the first three steps have to be in place. I think just like with the history, Pamela and I were talking on the break how, you know, how, you know it, it has to be the way it did. I mean, these things came together at the time that they did. Well, the steps are like that too. You know, a lot of times when, you know, I've learned if someone's having trouble with, they'll say they're having trouble with the step. Well, the problem's back down lower. It's not, the trouble's not where they're at. Their groundwork isn't, isn't placed because the steps will move you from one to another. The man I sobered up, the guy that, that carried me to the state hospital, the guy that made the first call that was ever made on me used to like to say that his experience was is people who hadn't done a fourth and fifth step couldn't withstand a tragedy in life. That's his experience. I wouldn't argue with that. I would say that if they haven't done the steps, period, they're not going to withstand a tragedy. If a tragedy, if, if, if there's no way to get ready for tragedy. There's no way, in my experience, there's no way to feel ready for it when it comes. But we're either ready or we're not. I mean, if it happens, you ain't going to go somewhere and get ready. 
you're either ready or you're not. So that's what the actions of Alcoholics Anonymous are designed to do. But now we're starting to get involved with a word like moral. This is what the dictionary says about moral. Of or concerned with principles and right and wrong in relation to human action and character, teaching or displaying good or current character and behavior. Now think about that a little bit. That's a challenging thing. You know, and the big book talks in three basic areas. It talks about resentment, fear, and sex. Resentment simply comes from a Latin word meaning to refeel. About my problems in life have either been associated with my resentments about the past or my fear of the future. So part of what I think the steps are designed to do, what, and one of the reasons I said earlier that I think this is a little bit intimate and scary, for me, what, what my journey through the 12 steps has come to mean to me, I think it's my own personal journey with the God of my understanding. The other thing, I think it's the job of the first nine steps to get me connected to be to in the moment right now. See, what I think the first steps do is get me connected to where I'm operating in the power right now. I've got a clean and free track to operate on. I'm not encumbered with the past anymore, and I'm not out there operating in the future. When I get to the bottom of step nine, I'm connected right now to the moment. Well, for that to happen, there's a lot of stuff. When I begin to look at resentments, I mean, it's, you know, I was just a, a, I was a threshold of them. I was the, you know, just the resentments I had for my own family. I had an aunt and uncle who, uh, who used to come out from Omaha all the time and kind of take over, and this guy was, I mean, all the men that ever came into that family were alcoholics, and so it was my mom's sister, and and her drunken husband used to come out, and I absolutely hated them from the time I was a little kid. Hated their kids. I've never held with that belief that you've got to learn to hate. I've just never held with it. It seemed like to me it was natural. I mean, I, if somebody did teach me, I'm not aware of it. It's kind of like learning to drink. I mean, I don't think I had to learn to drink. I just took to it. I knew how to do it. But when I got all of that down on paper, I mean, it really was a choking influence. It says in the book that resentments destroys more alcoholics than anything else. It also says that, you know, fear ought to be classed with stealing, that it seems to cause more problems. I would say that fear causes a great deal more problems than stealing does in sobriety. And then we move into sex. Um, again, it might just be my experience. And I've heard an awful lot of fifth steps in my sobriety, and it seems like about 90% of secrets have to do with sex. So when we move into those things, we've got three basic areas, resentment, fear, and sex. And somehow something's got to be done about all of that. So... We get it down on paper. This is the one place, I think, where if, I, if, if we can today, we'll take just a little bit of time before we move off of that and talk just a little bit about the mechanics of the fourth and fifth step, maybe, instead of just the principles. What, we've been, what we'll do most of the time for this, work, this uh, working weekend is we'll just talk about the principles involved in these things. But I think there's some mechanics involved with four and five that, 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 that can make a difference. So the resentment is something that, that had to go. And I... And again, I don't know what your experience is, but you know, when I first listened in meetings about resentment, it always seemed like to me it was like snake oil or black magic or something. People seem like, you know, you, you get ready to turn a resentment over and it just leaves. And I said, well, something must be wrong with the way I'm doing this because, I mean, I'm ready and I do all this stuff, but nothing leaves. And again, my experience has been that what happens is, is for me, resentment sort of strangles me for a period of time, and then one day I wake up and it's gone. You know, and I'll think back. I haven't thought about it for a while. So I, I think it's got more to do, again, with, with tenacity and with cooperation than it does with anything else. But my, fourth, my first, fourth, and fifth step sober, I had a list. I, I, I did it as best I could according to the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. I wrote down my resentments. I wrote down my problems with fear, and I wrote down an inventory of my sex life. What I think my first, fourth step was was a cataloging of all the filthy, rotten, corruptible things I'd ever done. 
I don't think I learned very much about the principles involved. I might have learned a little bit. I learned certainly some of that I was angry at women. And again, I, I've, I've worked with, I've, you know, I've had a lot of female friends in, in AA, and I sponsor one lady in AA. The reason I do, I, it, I've been doing it for years anyway without ever doing it officially, and when her sponsor moved, it just sort of took over. So and she's also a good friend of my wife. But, but it, I guess I can, I don't want to make anybody mad here, but I, I've never sponsored a male alcoholic that, I, that hasn't been mad at women. You know, it's just, it's just true. I mean, I've just never mentioned one. So, I mean, when I got all of this stuff down, I began to see what all this stuff was about. And I began to see that, you know, that rent resentment was a killer. You know, that there was plenty of stuff I was resentful about. I mean, I was hateful. I was hateful about the military. I, was, I hated people who had money. I hated people who had other races. I mean, anybody that was thinking at all could see that the problem was with me. But, I mean, I'm far too blocked off from that stuff. Even with the booze out of me, I don't see stuff much different than I did with the booze in me. There's a little bit of clearing of the way now by the time I get there, but not much. Remember what it talks about, it's about a, a persistent beginning on step three, but, you know, if there's going to be much action, it's going to take attendance at a lot more meetings, a lot more stuff. So there's been some clearing of the way, but I still don't even begin to see things clearly. So when it talks about that in there that says little effect unless followed at once by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of things in ourselves which have been blocking us is true. I'll tell you what it says that the word inventory means. A detailed list of items in one's view or possession. A periodic survey of all goods and materials in stock. Survey or evaluation of our personal characteristics. That's pretty telling. And when, it, you know, when, they, when, they, when they cut it down to those three basic things of resentment, fear, and sex, what you got is pretty much a picture of what my life was. I mean, those three things. I mean, my life was pretty small. It was much smaller. Then, I mean, the life of a practicing alcoholic is pretty small, isn't it? It might be big in what it should be in scope, but it's all blocked off. Like, it, it would be, uns be, I don't think it would be fair to say that I, that I didn't care about certain people or I didn't love certain people or I was just all bad or any of those things, but it didn't make any difference because whenever push came to shove, the booze won. So in that respect, my world was very small. So what's starting to happen here now is I'm being forced to look at things from a different light. And I can remember how challenging that stuff was and how patient people were that worked with me. I, I remember being asked to think of something good about myself. And it didn't have anything to do with the fourth step. But a guy just said, well, there must be something good about you. And finally, you know what I settled on? I settled on the fact, the guy told me, he said, well, the beginning of all change is the desire to change. And that's certainly something good. But, I mean, if I'm so blocked off to see, that, I mean, if I, if I can't see any further past than that, I really need some kind of a design to get going on. So the book suggests that uh, uh, resentment, fear, and sex. Um, you know, and it talks in here about how we might go about that. It's got the thing about I'm resentful at Mr. Brown. It's got the cause and affects my. So, for example, Mr. Brown says, I'm resentful at Brown for his attention to my wife. And how does it, what does it affect? It affects his sex, sex relations and self-esteem. So it goes through all of this stuff. I like to think in the term when I was introduced to it, the guy who told me about it said that he, he liked to make those three columns when it has to do with inventory. And then he goes over on page 67 in the big book, Alcoholics Now, I'm still in the four-step instructions, and it says referring to our list again. And he makes what he calls a fourth column and then goes down and answers those questions. It says, putting out of our minds the wrongs others have done, we resolutely look for our own mistakes. That's number one, to answer that. 
Number two, where had we been selfish? Number three, dishonest. Four, self-seeking. Five, frightened. Though a situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person involved entirely. One of the things I found there when I found about a situation not being entirely my fault, I found that being right and doing right are not the same thing. That by the time I got done with it, it was really bloody. You know, I might have been fairly remiss early on. I mean, I might have been, sometimes things happened that had, might not have been all my fault. But by the time I was done with them, I had really muddied the waters. So there wasn't much that I hadn't made worse. It says the inventories was ours, not the other man's. When we saw our faults, we listed them. We placed them before us in black and white. We admitted our wrongs honestly and were willing to set these matters straight. I'll tell you one of the reasons in principle that I think that's helpful. When we write a fourth step, and we go to, a, to God and another human being in our fifth step, obviously we, we explain scenarios, don't we? We give people enough. I want my listener, or if I'm listening to somebody I sponsor, I want to be able to understand what the scenario was. So there are other people involved there. So, you know, I need to be able to, to, to start to disregard that and look at myself. So I think that's a, a, an, an essential reason to go back and answer those questions because after I've done the first three columns, I can see, for example, who I'm resentful at, what it affects, what that person's done, why I resent them, and what it affects. You know, that's still, it's easy for me not to have the focus where it needs to be, particularly when it's talking about resentment. When I have to come back over on page 67 and answer those questions, it helps me focus, helps me zero in. And it's just like, you know, when I get ready to move out to make an amends, I find that if I've done all the damage, amends are easy to make. Where I have difficulty with amends is where there's been spiritual warfare, where I feel like I've been harmed. So it's essential that I get perspective on these things. I need to be taking responsibility for this. Remember the idea with any kind of inventory is to be hard on ourselves and easy on others. You know, I need to be taking personal responsibility for this. So to be able to get it down on paper uh, has been very helpful. And the 12 and 12, I know when Keith was here, he talked about this because um, he uses um, the 12 and 12 a lot with, with, with doing inventory. But there's a list of, um, page 48, I think, there's a list of, of uh, there's a list of uh, seven deadly sins on page 48. The seven deadly sins of pride, greed, lust, anger, gluttony, envy, and sloth. You know, and all we're really trying to do is get an accurate picture of our history. We're just trying to get an accurate picture of the items, that the weak items in our makeup, I think the book says, that have to be discarded. So we've somehow we've got to get them all down. We've got to know what it is that we're dealing with. Make sure on my time here, I don't want to get in any trouble with Cheryl. <laughs> once, um, once she's been vindicated, I don't want to go back and... and uh, Tell you a couple other things that I think are um, that I think have some some pertinence to what we're doing. Page 44 in the 12 and 12 it says, "Whenever a human being becomes a battleground for the instincts, there can be no peace." You know, we're, we, and it talks about. I think it's worthwhile reading what it says in the 12 and 12 about inventory, even if you do it out of the big book. This is just how I see it. I think it's worthwhile. I think it un it helps us understand what it is that we're doing. Alcoholics especially should be able to see that instinct run wild in themselves is the underlying cause of their destructive drinking. Page 47. When other people were concerned, we ought to drop the word blame from our speech and thought. 
page 48, but all who are in the least reasonable will agree upon one point, that there is plenty wrong with us alcoholics about which plenty will have to be done if we are to expect sobriety, progress, and a real ability to cope with life. I think one of the things, I think one of the things that the fourth step showed me in life is how deep in the hole I was, how ill-prepared for life I was to move forward. You know, how ignorant I was to life, how much I had missed off, how much I looked at other people and thought that they understood life and I didn't. You know, how hateful I was and how wrong I was about stuff was, was certainly a part of it, but just how ill-prepared I was. You know, it's much easier to spit at something you're afraid of than it is to try to understand it. So it just showed me, you know, how, how in what bad straits I was in. Let's see if there's anything else. Step four, the primary fact that we fail to recognize is our total inability to form a true partnership with another human being. Our egomania digs two disastrous pitfalls. Either we insist upon dominating the people we know or we depend upon them too much. It also says, this is jumping forward a little bit, we'll get to it this afternoon, but it says in step eight, this is a, an amazing statement, Bill Wilson says that our inability to, to develop relationships with other human beings is the cause of all of our woes, including our alcoholism. So another thing that the steps are doing, if you want to know how the steps are looking at working in your life, and that's one of the things that you know has always sort of pushed me along with the steps, a good guide to how things are working in our life is how's things going. You know, the oldest, the oldest uh, form of research known to man is look and see if something's working. We talked to a guy in the parking lot this morning that was talking about how he could look good in the meeting, but if you want to know how he's doing, ask his wife. You know, well, that's true. If, the, you know, if, if we're in trouble in our relationships, if we're not getting along well, you know, by the time I got to the fourth step, I still hated the boss I had that time. I remember that. I distinctly remember that he was involved in much of that inventory. So, you know, it's, 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 there's tell-proof signs along the way here that are extremely helpful with that. So I think that what the fourth step does is just what it says. It allows us to get it down on paper. We made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. You know, we looked at things with neither fear nor favor. We just got it down. We looked at what was going on. And I think for me, uh, you know, it was important, and I've done other ones over the years. I went back, and I've learned a lot more from inventory. I mean, I've learned about trend. But at some point, it was necessary for me, and fairly early on, to get down the stuff that was driving me nuts. You know, there was one thing I wrote down on my four-step inventory, and some, I was talking to another guy. said he was an over-the-road truck driver, and when he was driving a truck, it was essential to get to the meetings because his mind is a bad bad place to be. When I was living with this stuff in my mind without telling anybody, it seemed like I was the only person in the world that ever did it. I'll give you one example of that. I had one thing on my inventory that was, um, I had some horrible stuff that was written on that paper. I had about the death of another person. I had a lot of resentment. I had a lot of stuff about fear, and God knows I had a lot of stuff about um, broken down bars and sex. But I had one thing on there that didn't have anything to do with sex that I was convinced I was the only other human being in the world that had ever done that. And that because of that, I mean, I was such a moral leper. I, and I remember that when I, where I had it on the paper, and I remember, the, you know, I remember um, I took my fifth step with a Catholic priest, my first one, that was a recovered member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and for me, it was perfect. He was a grandfatherly old gentleman. He'd been sober a long time. He was the pastor of a large Catholic cathedral. He told me to meet him at the rectory on Saturday morning and to be prepared for a long talk. And uh, he told me to meet him at 9 o'clock. And what I did is I got up to um, St. Francis Cathedral at 10 minutes to 9, and he told me to go around to the rectory and that he'd be waiting for me. 
And I hit the door, and he opened the door, and he stuck his hand out. He said, I'm Bob, and I'm an alcoholic. He was a grandfatherly old. This was in Nebraska. It's not your friend here from this part of the country. Uh, but he, he said, I'm Bob, and I'm an alcoholic. And he was a grandfatherly old gentleman. He had on a pair of pants that was um, about three times too big for him. He had, they were black. He had white socks with those great big thick soles that people's feet hurt, you know, the big, about this much taller than he really was. And he had on a yellow shirt hanging out, and he had his chewing tobacco in his pocket. And for me, it was perfect. I mean, he sh- you know, we made eye contact, and uh, he said, come on in. And uh, are you ready? I said, yeah. And um, I started to tell him things. Now, I had some difficult stuff to get through with him. I mean, obviously, the death of another person is not an easy thing to deal with, no matter, you know, and, and what I learned from that, I was so sick that what I thought that person, because of what they did, what happened to them, they deserved that. I mean, it's, uh, that's how far off I was, but it's uh, an awful thing to have to say, but we're about honesty. And, and, and it says in our literature that nothing counts but thoroughness and honesty. You know, there's no new sins. I mean, I know that now. But the reason I took my first fifth step with a, with a Catholic priest is because I had it in my head a priest couldn't tell. Well, you know, I've heard, I've heard a number of fifth steps. I've never had any desire to pass anything on. I've never, you know, in the circles of friends that I've, you know, I've always followed men and women in Alcoholics Anonymous that were, I think, were really spiritual giants, not in terms of their godliness necessarily, but in terms of their commitment to Alcoholics Anonymous and to their adherence to these principles. So I've never heard of a violation of a confidence from any of those people, and I've certainly never violated one. But, I mean, I had no way of knowing that. I mean, I'm still so self-centered, and I'm still so blocked off from things that there's, there's no way for me to put all that together. So I just sort of rushed into this. And, and I really did by now. I mean, I had some understanding that my life depended on this. And then, as, and again, what's happening, too, is as through the years, as, you know, as, as I went past that initial fifth step where it was just sort of a, a cleansing of all the things that I've done, you know, the road is narrowed now. And, I've, you know, I'm interested in peace and I'm interested in light and better understanding of things. And, 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 and so, obviously, understanding is necessary. But in the beginning, I'm interested in survival. I mean, one of the things that, that some people found out years ago is you can't talk to people about God that are hungry. I mean, you've got to feed them first. You've know, you got to find out where, I'm, where, you know, where the gaps are. So that, you know, Obviously, those things have to happen first. So long before I was interested in peace and serenity, I, I was interested in survival, and I was also uh, pretty, still pretty overwhelmed by things. And so when I did this, I, I knew on my paper where this one thing was that I was convinced that separated me from every other human. And my listener, and, and two, we said a prayer before we started. And I was very mindful of the fact of what the steps said. I like to be very practical. I mean, spiritual principles are wonderful, but they, they, they also have to have practicality in it if they're going to be helpful to me. I mean, so I need what the step says. The step clearly says, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrong. That's what I needed to know I was doing there. That's what I was clearly understanding that I was doing. That's what I'm always clearly understanding that I'm doing today as a listener. You know, I'm there as a listener, but there's, there's, it's, I'm not there by myself, and I'm not just there with that person. You know, there's an admission to God there, too. And it says that very often, you know, people find, begin to have a spiritual uh, thing happen. They might have had spiritual beliefs, but now with this action, they began to have a spiritual thing happen as well. Well, when I got to this point on my inventory about the one thing that I was convinced that was so different than anybody else, I, uh, I, you know how you do sometimes when you're real nervous? I did th- I've done that with amends. You just 
come out real fast with what you've done. I knew where it was at on my paper, and I'd already gotten through some difficult stuff, and I'd been there for a while, but my heart started speeding up. And I, I guess one of the reasons I'm telling you this is I, I agree with the guy who said a mind is a bad place to be by yourself. You know, when I have something going on in my mind, I've woke up in the morning and been fine before in about 30 minutes of serious thinking. I'm on suicide prevention. You know, and I don't think my mind's any different than anybody else's. It's just a bad place to be by myself. I think, I think the wise man said, you know, that when you tell somebody a problem, you cut it in half. And so, you know, that's got to be true because so often when we share problems with each other in Alcoholics Anonymous, the person we share them with can't do anything about it. But what do they do very often? They understand is what they do. You know, they, they lend their experience, strength, and hope. They are very often, very often when you tell somebody something, they, you know, you, they, you can't hardly get it done before they begin to tell you about a similar experience or something that happened to them. But anyway, I knew where it was at on my paper, so I just sped up with it, and I came out with it. And, I, and um, my listener was just sitting there, and he, I mean, I'm sure that my affect and everything was probably, I mean, I'm sure he, he was an old man. He, I'm sure he'd heard a lot of fifth steps. He'd been sober a long time, and ain't no telling what he'd heard in that box either as a priest. So he was, you know, he was used to hearing stuff. Um, but he, he had some knowledge of it, and he had a couple things he wanted to say. Well, what I found out now is, you know, that doesn't even rate as a defect or a sin. It's just something that I had in my head that was so far off. So very often what I think is a serious problem is like, for example, like the death that I was involved in. I mean, I really thought I had that somehow in my head. That wasn't nearly as bothersome to me that day as that other thing that now I see as not even being a problem. So without the light of other people's experience on it, you know, there's going to be a lot of confusion about that. So I need to get all that down, and I need to have a cleansing experience with that fifth step. I need to admit, you know, admit it to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. I need to get it all out. So personally, I, I like to stick with the format in the book about the resentments, fear, and sex. And the other thing I always tell people is if, you, if you're doing inventory and you find anything in your life that doesn't come under one of those three headings about the resentment, fear, or sex, or if you've got any other secrets that somehow don't come back under those three headings, get them down. And when we're done, when we're at the bottom of all that stuff, you will have well been within the intent. Remember, the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous now, it's not a Supreme Court kind of technology or it's not a, a, a what it is. They're spiritual principles where we're moving in a direction. So, and, and the traditions are like that too. It's not a matter of right or wrong. People will argue about the traditions. If you get around where service people are involved, a lot of times there'll be an argument going on and both sides will claim the other one is violating the traditions. I heard a guy say one time they want to take each other outside and set them on fire. You know, the principles are, I mean, they're spiritual principles. There's a lady in Wilmington who was there when a lot of that stuff was written, and that's what she talked about. They were spiritual guides, you know, to move in a direction. And that's the way the steps are. I mean, it's not a matter of being, you know, uh, legalistic or anything. It's a matter of moving forward into these problems. And again, uh, the, thing, the, the real problem point I've found for people is sex. I found in the inventories that I heard that the majority of people's problems have to do with sex. And I found that the one thing that we all share in common is, is we've got some secrets that we're going to plan on taking to the grave with us. And it, if, if we find anything, we found that we cannot live alone with our secrets. One of the things it says in the fifth step, it says the best reason first, that we do better if we know the reasons about things. It says the best reason for doing the fifth step is we may not overcome drinking if we don't. Now, you could probably, again, say that about any step. But again, it's a rather bold statement, isn't it? It's kind of like when he says that the rest of the program will only be carried 
my words, not his, but what his intent is, you can only go forward with the rest of the program when the third step's been made a persistent effort. Well, that's a bold statement. It's also a bold statement when he says that we're probably not going to be able to, we may not be able to stay sober without a fifth step. It's not a chance worth taking. And the other thing, there's great freedom. One of the things that happened to me at the end of my fifth step that I was extremely grateful for is, is that I, there was two things that came over me when I was done with my fifth step. My first fifth step, and that's the one I'll share, I guess, most of with you this morning. I left there at 12 o'clock noon, and um, I had two dominant things I knew. I knew that I'd come a considerable distance. I knew that I had uh, that something profound had happened that I had done those first five steps. I'd done that. I'd went in there with him and told him. And there was so much fear surrounding that. I think it's a place in the program. I don't know. I, I don't know if I could explain this and make it sound right. I think sometimes we're a little bit over-identified with the fourth and fifth step and that we kind of pull out after that. And I think after the fourth and fifth step is where we begin to lose our members. And I'll try to talk with that a little bit about the sixth and seventh step. But there's way more fear around four and five than there is other steps. And I had that too. But I came out of there that morning. I left at noon, and I knew that I had made a considerable distance. I knew that. The other thing that came to me, which is something I always check and see, try to spend some time with guys that I'm sponsoring when I, when I hear their fifth step, the other thought or the other awareness that came to me that there was plenty wrong, but yet there was still going to have to be a lot done. It had been foolish to think that I could pull out after the fifth step. Kind of like the guy said about money. You know, people don't want uh, your money. They want theirs back. You know, so, I mean, it'd be foolish to think after the fifth step, you know, I can stop. All the fifth step is that brings me up to get me, you know, clearing away the wreckage of the past. And, you know, it too, everything needs to go down there. If there's any doubt, people always ask the question, you know, should I start? And, you know, it says searching back as far as our memory would go. And I, one other mechanical thing, and we'll move on. I find it best if people start with the future or the, uh, the immediate past and go back. Because by the time as we work our back, you know, put put the spotlight on our memory, it's a lot easier than starting back there. So for me, it was an amazing experience, and it has been since. I've had good experiences with it and, and um, have, uh, have been able to push on with that. Another thing that I learned, I think, as a listener in the, um, in the fifth step is that I, I learned my case really is not different. You know, if, if, if you sit in a fifth step, if you, if you hear very many fifth steps, I mean, there isn't anything you're not going to hear. And you never know what it is people are dealing with. Once people come to Alcoholics Anonymous a little while, I mean, we regain that ability to look good pretty fast. You know, I mean, we're, we're, we're masters at it. I mean, it's not like everything that's wrong with us goes away the, we, the day we get to Alcoholics Anonymous. Very often people come into a meeting ready to explode and say things are going well, don't they? Sure. So, I mean, very often that we, we put a face forward to the world where um, things look good. Very often, I mean, I've been amazed at stuff I've heard in inventories. I mean, I don't think that there's any. Every time I think that I'm not going to hear, that I've heard everything, I mean, I hear something else that's, can't, that's, that's absolutely unbelievable to me. And it, but it is true, while there are no new sins, I mean, again, the convert to Alcoholics Anonymous in the 12 steps has to be one, one person at a time, doesn't it? My experience is good for somebody else to be shared with somebody else, but it can't be lived by them, can it? For Alcoholics Anonymous to be vital and effective, it has to become their experience. So I left that fifth step with a firm, firm knowledge in my heart. Again, it wasn't information. I think there's a great difference between information and the knowledge that's mine in my heart. 
I left that with, the, with, with two things, and it was that I knew I had came a considerable distance, and the other thing was is that there was a lot of work that needed to be done. It would be a p- terrible place to stop. Unfortunately, this is where I think we begin to lose our members. What I think happens is, is after the fifth step is that we so often there's an identification with those first five steps that is so major that people sort of back up or whatever. And I think the least talked about steps in Alcoholics Anonymous are six and seven. I think they're the least uh, practiced, and, and again, I'm not an expert. I'm just sharing my uh, my experience with that. I think that they're the they're certainly the least talked about, and I think they're the they're, they're the least practiced. I also believe that if um, if a person doesn't have good guidance at the sixth step, what step six looks like is filler material. You know, it looks like there's nothing to it. What happened to me with the sixth step is it was the beginning of mature sobriety. I think it's where I really took my place as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Something happened to me in the sixth step that's very similar to what happened to me with the first step. There's something happened there. I I heard a guy describe it one time that he put his whole life in the circle of the sixth step like he did his alcoholism with the first step. There's something happens there. You know, it says we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. What are these defects of character? I know what's wrong because I've had the courage now to do the fourth step, and I've taken it to God and another human being in the fifth step. It's a turning point. You know, it's a place where we either go forward into the program or, or something starts to happen. The other thing it seems like to me an awful lot with the sixth step, the sixth and seventh step, is that people start to, again, I don't know exactly why this happens, because, but it's people go back to, again, attacking problems, you know, as if we're going to correct them ourselves. We know a lot's what's wrong now, don't we? I mean, we've come a long distance, and if we've done inventory, if we've done the first three steps and we've prepared ourselves for inventory, we've moved into a fourth step. We went to God and another human being, and we've shared it with ourselves. We've, we've put the, with, with a flashlight on it. We've brought it to see the light of day. We know a lot about what's wrong with us. Why I would think that I could move over here now to the sixth step and get ready, and then in the seventh step, I, you know, it says, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. I mean, who's him? Me? You know, is that what I think? You know, that I'm going to somehow do that through the strength of will or whatever? Again, what I have found, if there's something wrong with me that I can correct, it's not much of a problem. Now, generally, I don't have the same desperation I have as I do with my drinking, as I did with my drinking. Two times that I have. In 1983, I had an experience happen to me. I was moving along fat, dumb, and happy. Life was better than it ever been. I was sober eight years. Um, had two little girls, life was good, I had a good job, uh, worked at a large uh, Catholic hospital, um, and I had some stuff come back out of my past. What I come to understand it now was, is it was like a second surrender. But I, and I think something often happens to alcoholics between five and ten years of sobriety where and I think the road narrows. But what happened to me is, is that, that I, I just had some stuff come back up out of my past, and it, was just, it wasn't like I hadn't done the steps because I had. But up to this point in my life, one of the things that I always had, and I, I'm aware of today, is I had a lot of fear about God. I was just afraid, and I still think I still had a lot of anger that I wasn't aware of and stuff. But I had this, um, I had this come back up, and, and it was... Um, Again, it was, I've never experienced any kind of pain like that. I mean, I've been beat half to death. When I went in the military, one of the first things they did is they sent me to an oral surgeon who cut my gums open and took some cysts out of it. And the oral surgeon said that, that, they, that comes 
that had gotten in there from blows to the mouth, like heavy blows. It could be from car wrecks or, or whatever. You know, I'm not virginous when it comes to pain. I mean, I'd, I'd had a lot of physical pain in my life. I'd had, um, uh, I lived through my uh, oldest daughter. I told you last night I'd had that spinal meningitis. I lived through that. My ex-wife by this time, she was still my wife then, but we'd lived through three cancer operations. I mean, I had engaged life. I mean, I wasn't virginous to pain. I had not run away from the 12 steps. I'd been introduced to the 12 steps. I was an active, functioning, alive, energetic, best of my ability, engaged member of Alcoholics Anonymous, active member of my home group in Omaha. And um, what happened is, is this came out of nowhere seemingly, and it was worse pain than anything I'd ever experienced. It was way worse. It's not even in the same talking point to being homeless. And, and you know, I really thought I was going over with it. I mean, I really thought that I was going to tip over. And I remember one day walking down the hall of this hospital, and I saw that uh, saw a guy walking in there. He was a um, Catholic priest that worked in that hospital, and I told him a little bit about what I'd done, a little bit about that death. And I remember him saying, "Is this something you can be charged with?" And I said, "No." He said, "Come on, we're going to pray." So I went in my office, and he put his hands on my head, and he started praying. It was like gunk come out of my body. I mean, I. It was, it was amazing. It, and when he got done, he said, how do you feel now? And I said, about the same. Nothing changed the way I felt. And he said, well, I think things are going to be okay. That was like 1.20-something in the afternoon. A little bit later, I found myself down the hall making a sandwich. And, I, you know, things, things had got a little bit better. Not much. What I ended up doing over the next six months is I ended up, it was like a long, drawn-out fourth and fifth step. It was like a long, drawn-out cleansing thing. And I had the same kind of desperation to get out of that problem that I had to stay alive with my drinking. So, I mean, that was a case where I think the grace of God can move in. You know, I was entirely ready. You know, what the step step, step six says, we're entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. Most of the time, I'm only, most of the time what I want to do is quit feeling bad. You know, there's a big difference between root and branch. You know, I was socialized when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I quit calling women filthy names. I quit using racial terms, all of that kind of stuff. But what I was done was I was socialized. Underneath, there's still a whole, there's a big difference between, you know, enough to get by with and then enough to find your way into a spiritual way of life. So what I find with the sixth and seventh step with people who really move forward into this thing is the road begins to narrow. You know, I can't get away with the things I used to do. It's becoming a different life. Now, the spiritual road narrows things. One thing I've learned in life is you can't give anything away. Whatever you send out comes back. You know, if you send out trash, trash comes back. If you send out love, it comes back. So throughout that long period of time, I think I learned, you know, that there was a desperation with that, that I was entirely ready to have God remove that defect of character. And, and you know, in the seventh step where it says we humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings, it's good to understand what humility means. Certainly, I think any alcoholic who stays sober has some understanding of humility. We wouldn't be able to do the first step. And, I, and you know, you can fill libraries with talking about humility. I, um, I saw a quote one time in the grapevine that said it was interesting to see that even people who wrote articles on humility took the time to sign their names. <laughs> so I think that there's a lot we could write about humility. But as I understand the approaching of the sixth and seventh step, and if I'm going to get any real advantage from humble, I think I need to understand that there's something wrong here I can't do anything about. I humbly asked him to remove the shortcoming. That must mean that there's something I can't do anything about. You know, and if you really look at what we're up against, I want to turn back to a minute to those, to those uh, seven deadly sins. 
you know, we're at the sixth and seventh step now. Pride. What can I possibly do through a show of strength that's going to move my pride? You know, when you talk about what kind of power we have and whether I need humility and whether I need God's grace and the power of people and, and literature and prayer and meetings and community and sponsorship and service to others, and all of those things I think have an awful lot to do with humility. How in the world am I possibly going to do anything about pride? You know, the pride that won't let me bring up things I'm afraid of or a friend of mine came back from a speaking trip, a friend of ours came back from a speaking trip a few years ago Jerry and I and a couple other guys picked him up at the airport in Raleigh, and he had been down in Texas, and he told us that about a, he just found out about another guy that had committed suicide that had been sober a long time. And again, what I believe when that happens is somebody has pulled out of the practice of the application of the, of the principles. But this guy said he thought there was two principal reasons for that happening after people had been in, in, in AA for a while when they, when, when they went out killed himself or whatever. He said one is they failed to enlarge their spiritual life and two is that they had got themselves into a position where they didn't allow themselves to have anything wrong with them. In other words, they'd become teachers or experts. And I don't ever want to become that. One thing that keeps the sixth and seventh step alive is an active relationship with a sponsor. You know, that I have to tell somebody, you know, I, have, I know what's wrong with me and I'm getting courage to do something about them by trying to apply the principles of the sixth and seventh step. But there's not much I can do about pride. What can I possibly do about it? Look at the next one. Lust. No, greed. Greed. What am I going to do about greed? You know, try willpower. We're living in a country where most people can't even quit smoking store-bought cigarettes on strength alone. The diet industry is a, a billion-dollar operation. Most people who lose weight by a show of strength that's been documented time after time after time put it back on. What, what we've got to talk about is a new way of learning to live, isn't it? So greed, I've never been able to, you know, I'm always going to do better. I, st I change the way I eat about every Monday. <laughs> you know, and I do good until that night. About every Monday. It goes on and on and on. But I've just never been able to get much to move on my own. You know, we ate last night, my buddy and I ate, we ate in that, that seafood dinner and everything, and I, I must have told him two, a couple, well, there's a couple, three things just talking about eating. He said, you ain't much on any of this salad, are you? You know, I went right for the grease. And then, uh, you know, we knew we were coming over here. We knew we were coming over here to the, the, to the uh, dessert. So I told him, I said, I don't think I'm going to get any desert. I'll just wait until we get over there. So he said, well, I think I'll just get a little bit. So he comes back with his. I went right for the cheesecake. <laughs> you know, when I got that cheesecake, my intention was just to take a couple bites. Man, I'd have poked him with that fork if he'd have tried to get any of that. You know, I've never been able to, I, you know, I don't think I'm that much different than anybody else. I mean, what am I possibly going to do with a show of strength? I have to cooperate, don't I? I'm not going to be able to move greed. Lust, there's a great one. Now, try, try a little strength on lust. I'm not going to lust anymore. Uh, you know, I'd like to see somebody overcome that with strength and willpower. You know, we're up against things here that we just are not going to move. And why we are people who should have a good orientation to this. We are people who, by the time we get to this place in our work or our, our effort, clearly see that there was a lot wrong with us before we started drinking, weren't we? Talked about that earlier, that we've been able to identify that most people that you hear share talked about never feeling like they belonged before they drank. That's one reason that drinking was so powerful on us. 
It created a sense of belonging, false to be true, but nevertheless very powerful, very real. So real that most alcoholics, I would beg, I would say of our description, are going to ride it right into a death. And the same thing's available for any of us. It'd be foolish for me to think that I couldn't get drunk again. It could happen. It could happen to any alcoholic. So for why would I think now that after I've came to AA and been able to get a little bit of, of uh, understanding of these things, that now I've gotten some kind of power to remove stuff that's always been a problem? You know, it just does not make sense. One of the things that the spiritual life does, if it does anything, it's got practicality in it, but there's always mystery and wonder in the spiritual life. And, you know, God must really, you know, you hear that in AA, that God must have a sense of humor, you know, with us. And it's got to be true. You know, to watch us on a daily basis has got to be, uh, uh, even today, I mean, there's just stuff wrong. A great guy in my home group, I'm trying to do better. He's a great guy. He's sobered up in New York, sober about 20 years. But he was talking one night before the meeting. We stand out there and tell each other lies and drink coffee and stuff. And he's talking about in traffic and that belt line in Raleigh. And he said, you know, it's just as easy to let them in when they run in. He said, I just slow down and let them in. I said, hey, what? I won't do it. I said, I see people all the time trying to get in. They're coming up behind me, so what I do is I'll speed up so they're blocked in. <laughs> they got a ride back there. Now, I don't know why I want to do that. It just gives me great pleasure to keep them back there, I guess. <laughs> you know, and if anybody ever, if I'm, I go about, people don't think I do, but I go about five over the speed limit is what I do. I, won't go, I try not to go more than that. If I catch myself over that, I slow down. If people come up behind me and I'm in, you know, and I'm going about five over, and then somebody puts their lights, you know, blink their lights to get out, man, I'm there forever. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, it's crazy. Makes no sense. But if I can't even, you know, and once in a while it won't happen. I mean, I'll get out of the way. I'll remember what my buddy said. But most of the time I ain't going to do it. It's like I've known for years there's stuff wrong with me that's not wrong with the guys I sponsor. Like we'll get, I'll get four or five guys to get in the car and everybody will get a cup of coffee. Well, they'll dump out part of theirs so they can get in without spilling it. I'll slop mine all over myself. <laughs> you know, it just, I mean, so I mean, why you take those little things that are har usually harmless like that? And if, you know, I haven't, you know, on, on, a, on the long haul, I haven't even been able to do anything about that. How am I going to do anything about greed or lust? It's silly to think that I'm going to be able to do something about that with strength and willpower. Anger. You know, I hear people say in meetings, a lot of times over the years, I've heard somebody say, I'm working on anger. How do you work on anger? Jump up and down when you get mad? I mean, what would you do to work on anger? I mean, it seems so much more um, tenable by now that I've inventoried this thing, got the counsel of God and another human being on it that I would do just exactly what the sixth step says. I get ready and I ask. Now, the way I like to do six and seven is I like to do it in two different ways. I like to, to, to apply those principles just towards life, period. And I also like to apply them specifically to things that I'm in front of that are troubling me. You know, if, I, if, if, I'm, like if I'm dealing with a work problem or a resentment or something, I'll, I'll, I'll practice that. Another thing I like to do is I like to visualize, like if I'm dealing with a resentment or something, when I, when I take it to the sixth and seventh step, I like to visualize God and that person together. It's much harder to keep that, to flame that fury of anger and whatever. But about all I can do with it is get ready. And again, it's a good place constantly to remind myself. You know, I heard a guy say one time, and I think it's so true. It's so true of me. He, I heard him say that, that, that you sit in a meeting, he sits in a meeting and listens to a story of a guy came from the, under the bridge to the corporate boardroom. 
And then he sat in the meeting, listened to that speaker, and got to thinking on the way home whether these principles would work on his checkbook. You know, I mean, it's so true. You know, it, it, I, have, I can have very alive and global hope towards my alcoholism, but have, are the principles alive and constant on what's going on now? You know, do I have the same readiness? Usually I don't have the same readiness for problems I have that I had with my alcoholism or the, or the eight-year experience. And then when that eight-year thing, and when I was sober 19 and a half years, I had that same thing. And I hope it's all been cut out this time. But I had that same stuff come up, and, and um, it was like a much deeper surrender. You know, I've had a lot of uh, spiritual experiences or spiritual awakenings, and, and, and um, um, I think that's what the steps are designed to do. There's no secret where it comes from. We'll talk about that tomorrow. A spiritual awakening comes from the first 11 steps. If you want to have a spiritual awakening, practice the first 11 steps, and it comes in on its own. We'll talk this afternoon at, you know, at the bottom of the ninth step. If you want to have those, those 12 promises move in your life, practice the first nine steps. And it, they move in on their own. You don't have to hunt them. I mean, it just happens. So these things, I mean, uh, many of them are automatic. Um, but I, I've had a lot of surrenders, and I've had a lot of small ones. But that, that again, that 19-and-a-half-year thing, I mean, it was horrible. The pain of that was horrible, and I, I think I had then the same, uh, the same willingness, the same. I know the more willing I can get in the sixth step, and the more humble I am in the seventh step, the more I am aware of the fact. I think the very best definition of humility, and again, there's so many of them. You know, you hear think people talk about humility. It's not thinking uh, less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less often, and it's a good recognition of who and what we are. It's a, it's it's a good cataloging of our strengths and our weaknesses. And all those things are probably true, and I think those are probably excellent definitions. But the one I'm most fond of and the definition I found most helpful for me is I like to stay very connected to humility as an idea and as a principle that I need. There are things that I need that I ain't got the power to do anything about. I mean, that problem, those problems, that eight-year thing and that 19-and-a-half-year thing it was, is so, was so choking and so dramatic. I mean, it's, it, you really get down to the matter of life and death. You know, and, and I think we all come across problems that we're every bit as helpless in front of as we are our own alcoholism. So for me, the, the definition of humility is just a good awareness that there's something going on here that I can't do anything about. So it's really about my cooperation. See what step six says about this. It says, of course, the often disputed question of whether God can and will under certain conditions remove defects of character which will be answered with a prompt affirmative by almost any AA member. To him, this proposition will be no theory at all. It will be just about the largest fact in his life. He will usually offer his proof in a statement like this. Sure, I was beaten, absolutely licked. My own willpower just wouldn't work on alcohol. Change the scene. The best efforts of family, friends, doctors, and clergymen got no place with my alcoholism. I simply couldn't stop drinking, and no human being could seem to do the job for me. But when I became willing to clean house and then ask a higher power, God as I understood him, to give me release, my obsession to drink vanished. It was lifted right out of me. Well, again, most of our problems don't reach that point. But most of the time in life, things do happen. I mean, things visit us in life. Stuff happens. Um, for years, whenever I saw anything written or heard anything, like there was going to be a talk on suffering or, you know, that book, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, or, 
you know, that's something we're all interested in. And one of the things Bill Wilson said that my experience certainly validates, Bill Wilson said that the alcoholic, more than most people, seem to want to know what it's all about. And most everybody I've ever worked with has had those kind of questions. I mean, why do little kids die? Uh, you know, we've got those kind of questions. And, that, you know, when you get around inventory and sixth and seventh step, by now, the, you know, the road is clear and people are starting to ask those questions. What I found is, is that the people who write books on that stuff and, and give talks on it don't know any more about it than I do. I mean, the spiritual life is involved with mystery. I mean, there's always going to be things. I mean, there's always going to be things about God that I can't understand. The steps talk about how we understand God. I suppose they could just as correctly talk about how we don't understand it. The only thing is, is with faith, life seems to make some sense most of the time. Without faith, then life begins to make no sense whatsoever. So we're at a place where now it's about, again, it's about surrender. It's about my acknowledgement of my need for help, and it's about asking for help. Well, if we should be people that should do that pretty easily, but my experience is, is that this is where people begin to pull away from the program. What I think happens is, is you'll oftentimes see people around five years or whatever that will start, start missing meetings. Because, and you'll hear them say, you know, it's become boring to them. Nothing's alive anymore. And it, and it is true. You don't hear, I haven't heard anything new in a church basement in years. But there's an electricity or a power or something. That there's a surge that, that, that happens with this in around the sixth and seventh step that moves people forward into the program that I think I know how to kind of guide it along and work with it if it's someone I'm sponsoring. I've certainly had the experience. I have trouble explaining it. But it's a movement forward, or I think it's where people start to pull out of the program. I think very often what happens is people start to pull out here. You know, their attendance at meetings becomes less. They, and it, it would be unfair, I think, to say they don't do any amends. What, what it looks like they very often do is, a flirt, is they flirt with amends. They will do a little bit of amend work, but they certainly don't go forward into them to the point where we found that you have to to find a new life and, and, and to take our place. So I think the sixth and seventh step, I think that the program, um, you know, humans, we have a tough time getting anything in uh, in perspective, I mean, I, one of my best friends, member of my home group, UC Moyo, always likes to say that a law, a human won't allow something to work. If something works very well for too long of a period of time, a human will come in and, and change it. And, and there's some truth in that. Um, but th something either happens at the sixth and seventh step where we move forward or we begin to lose it. And I think it's in terms of, of clearly understanding what the step says and clearly understanding what we do and don't have power about. You know, I need to know what I can and can't do. For example, I don't think God is going to keep me sober once I start to drink. I just don't think that's going to happen. I think that God has done and is continuing to do, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. That's how I understand God. I certainly spend time praying to God. It's much different understanding when I ha that I had when I came here. I don't understand my sponsor to be God anymore. I understand him to be a vehicle as part of that, part of how God is manifest. So I have an active, open prayer life with God. I even pray out loud with some of my friends. But it's, a, it's still a thing. I need to be very clear about, I think, what kind of trap God has given me. Certainly God can work out things any way he wants. The example of the, of the lady, they cut the cancer out. They didn't have to cut her. It was gone from prayer. But that's an exception. I'm quite certain that if God wanted to have gotten me sober another way, he could have done that. You know, there might not have been Alcoholics Anonymous. If he wanted us to get sober when we got to that point of desperation and wanted all these things to happen, the way that, that, the way that they're worked out for us to happen, a different course, I'm sure that God could have done that. It just seems to be the way that it's worked because that's the way he's, 
apparently that God wants it to be. This is the track that we're on. So I like to understand that I don't have a lot that I can say about it. My favorite steps, like I told you um, this morning, when, that, that I believe all the steps are of equal importance. My favorite steps is 2, 6, and 7. I, I do believe that they're all of equal importance. But the reason I, that six, 2, 6, and 7 are my favorite steps is that's how I understand Alcoholics Anonymous. It's much more about cooperation. It's much more about surrender, which is very difficult for a willful, galloping, bucking alcoholic. Because most of the time, we're going to power things through. You know, we're going to make them better. The problems that the book is talking about in the third step, about us wanting to be the director and setting up the world and everything, that stuff doesn't die. You know, it may die a slow death as we chip away at it through the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, but we've got to move forward into that stuff. So I need to be very clear about what I can and can't do what I have the power to do and what I don't have the power to do. And, and, uh, um, so I, I hope that that's helpful. But to me, it's been a turning point. It's been key um, to my sobriety. And I think what we'll do, this is probably a good place to stop. I'm um, still a little bit worried about my voice. I think I'm going to have enough. voice seems to be holding up about as well as I am. Uh, uh, but this is probably a good place to stop. My boss, Cheryl, told me that we eat at 12.15. And um, it's a little after 12 now, so that'll give us a little bit of time to, to hit the bathroom and and all of that stuff. So what time do we come back? 2.45? Let's take a group inventory. Enjoyed that good food and, and took a nap and went out on uh, almost an hour walk and had another shower. It's invigorating. I'm up here now with a full coffee and a full water. It's like balancing beer and shots. <laughs> I don't know how that'll go, but I'll do the best I can. And, um, I'm under... Uh, Instructions from Cheryl to uh, to let everybody know that that um, no matter what time that we finish up here tonight, dinner's at 6:30, and we're right next door. So if we get done a little bit early, if I think you, uh, we've got an hour and a half time block, but uh, we won't go past that, and we may not take all of that. But whatever we do, so that everybody knows we eat it at 6:30. I had said that I wasn't going to beat on Cheryl anymore, but I think I might have lied about that. <laughs> I. Um, I was actually heartened by the progress that she had made when she was able to tell what the elements of the first step were. There she is. And um, then she knew the date. She knew the date. But um, I found out that she cut in line at the dinner at noon. And uh, so I don't know. I don't know who's sponsoring her, but uh, I, I really think that whoever it is ought to count her as more than one. You know, I... I I was talking to my sponsor a while back, and a number of people have asked me over the today, and stuff. I may have said, I can't remember if I did or not, but I, Keith Lewis is my sponsor, but I was talking to him on the telephone a while back, and he was working with two newcomers that I knew, knew them both, and um, both of them, I mean, God almighty, it's a pull, and he said, you know, if I had one more like these two, he said, I wouldn't be able to work, you know, I wouldn't be able to do anything, it'd just be a full-time job, and um Kind of like working with Cheryl, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's not a very good spiritual principle, but it's, it is true. In Alcoholics Anonymous, we only beat on people that we love publicly. If you've ever noticed, when people chide other people or beat on them, it's people that they like. We beat on them publicly. We do it in closed session with people we dislike. Uh, not good, but that's just the way it is, isn't it? And, uh, we need to, to probably clean up a little bit in that vein. Well... We're, uh, we're headed for the stretch, at least for today. What we've done today so far is we've looked at the first step, 
took a look at our drinking, found out that, you know, that what alcoholism is, we can't live with alcohol and we can't live without it. The acceptance of our condition, the recognition of our condition, the only step we can practice to perfection, and it's not a good place to stay. So we've got to move as quickly as we can into step two, and a step of hope came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And um, I think today that's probably a constant, and it's something I want to stay current with. That's a constant belief in my life. It's not anymore I don't believe that God could. I, I think I always probably believed that God could do anything he wanted. You know, I had a religious education. I had um, I mean, I always believed that God was there. I just didn't think that God would do anything for me. Today, I, what, I, what I think that's become is a reality in my life that God will. Uh, there will be restoration in my life. The, the, I, another thing I heard a guy say one time about problems, he said that the best way to find out if you've got any problems in life is to check and see if you're breathing. So, you know, I mean, as long as life is here for us, we're going to have to deal with things, and we're going to have to deal with things that we would rather not. You always in life don't get to pick your poison, do you? I mean, things happen, and sometimes they just, I mean, they happen, and they happen to all of us, and we have to move forward with them. So I want to keep that same hope alive in all areas of my life that I have with my illness. You know, my alcoholism is central, but there's certainly a lot of other things. I mean, I, today, I, I don't have a drinking problem. I don't live in fear of the first drink. You know, I'm, I'm not in danger. You'll hear people say, you know, they might get drunk tomorrow and all of that. I, you know, I, and again, I, I want to be careful how I talk about that, but I, you know, I'm not going to just walk off and get drunk. You know, I, I'm 12 steps away from a drink. I'm protected by the grace of God. I'm protected by you. I'm protected by my sponsor, protected by Alcoholics Anonymous literature. And somehow all this comes together and makes a cloak around me and a, 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 a protection. So it's a, it's a protective influence, but I want to keep that same radiance alive that I know I can move forward in other things in life just like I could with, with my alcoholism, that, that there is great hope. And, and the third step, we made, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Have to go forward with that. And so, you know, the destruction of self-centeredness, the willingness, the turning myself into that power, um, that I'm very clear about what my will in my life is and that I know what that is and I know what, I, what my job is and hopefully what God's job is and I don't get them mixed up. And that when I do, I can get back on track. It talks an awful lot about in the, in, the, in the third step in the big book about the alcoholic wanting to be the center and, you know, that the, if the rest of the universe would only cooperate. And I think those things die hard. You know, I've been sober a while, and if I can't find something in my house, I blame somebody else. I mean, the only other one in there is my wife. You know, I mean, it's, it's just crazy. You know, it's still my idea that somebody else is the cause of my problem. So, you know, if those things die that hard in small areas, then they certainly die hard in bigger areas of my life. So, I, you know, it was, it's been well said that one of the prices of sobriety is eternity, uh, eternal vigilance. It's kind of like in the boxing ring. You know, if a boxer holds his, um, holds his hands up, there's a good, good chance of deflecting the punch. So that's what I need to do. You know, there's so many of those, um, those goofy little stories about what God's job is and what man's job is. There was a... Um, couple of them that I really liked. There was, um, at the boxing matches one night, there was um, uh, a Catholic priest there. And you know, drunks love to see a clergyman in, in, the, um, in all their regalia. And they, they, the clergyman said that he was watching the fight. And, and before each round, when the, when the bell rang, you've seen athletes get up and cross themselves, basketball players and stuff, or batters before, or pitchers. And every time the bell rang, the, the boxer got up and crossed himself. And he said, this drunk came wandering over to the priest. And said, um, breathed in his face, and, and uh, you know how a drunk really, bad enough that they're going to bore in and ask you a question, they have to breathe on you. 
and uh, said, he said, that's one of your boys, ain't it? And um, he said, well, yeah. He said, he said, what is that? He said, well, it's a sign of the cross. And he said, well, he said, what I want to know, he said, the way he crosses himself before each round, will it help him? And the priest was kind of a practical, hard-bitten old boy, and he said he thought for a minute, and he looked over at the drunk, and he said, it'll help him if he can fight. <laughs> you know, and I mean, that's a lot the way Alcoholics Anonymous is. You know, I mean, the, the, the program is here, and it's here for our use. It's universal. It doesn't belong to a selected few. You know, all alcoholics, it's available to all of us, and it, it, uh, we can't keep anybody out of here. We don't want to keep anybody out of here. Some of our greatest members have come from the, the furthest depths of life, so, it, you know, it's something that's available to all of us, and, and the only guardian on us in Alcoholics Anonymous is booze. You know, if I don't conform to certain spiritual principles, I'll sicken and drink, and it'll take me out of here. So I don't have to worry about being kicked out any other way. And then, you know, the, the talks about moving into a fourth and fifth step, that the only way to know if the third step has been completed is to grab pen and paper and to move forward. We talked this morning about a consistent effort has to be made on the third step for the rest of the steps to have meaning. So I need to move forward with this. Talked this afternoon or whenever it was about getting down on paper, essentially the story of my life, what it is that makes me up, what is it that's broken. And we've got some good stuff, some good evidence to run on. It's some excellent, um, it's one place that I like to be very mechanical when I'm working with somebody is the design in the big book. There's other good stuff, you know, in the 12 and 12, and there's other good experiences that can be shared. But I like to have somebody make that, you know, that very concentrated run on just what the book says to go through those three areas, the resentments, fear, and sex, and then any secrets, and to get that down. Uh, if, if that's been done correctly, I mean, there's no problem in doing a fifth step. I heard a guy say one time that change is not difficult. What's hard in life is getting ready to change. Change happens by itself. I mean, a fifth step is not difficult. Getting ready to do the fifth step is difficult. If the other stuff is in place, just like we talked about earlier, if the, if the elements are in place, you automatically move to the next step. I mean, that's probably why they're, they're, they're numbered. I mean, um, so anyway, to go, uh, you know, to, to knock this thing out, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. And, you know, that I, you know as difficult as it might be that for me to get some kind of an awareness to look at that, that this is me. You know, that this is me. This is how far off track it's got. And to take a look at that. One of the things I always like to think, too, you know, if, 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 if you're working with somebody and they've done a good fourth and fifth step, one of the practical elements out of that is much greater movement towards the first step. You know, if I look at all of this stuff, if I've got all this down on paper and, and, and I take this to, to, to God and another human being and shine the light of day on it and I can't see the first step in all of its clarity, then I'm probably fairly confused because, I mean, if all of this stuff is happening, I mean, how did it happen? I mean, I certainly wouldn't have intended for that to happen. So. You know, that's where I get the courage to start forward and to move some change, is, is to, and to move out into change is through a good fourth and fifth step. So the sixth step we talked about was we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And I wanted to read. I can't believe it. You know, I never know what's going to happen when I get up here. There's always the stuff you intend to talk about, and then there's the stuff you talk about. But I want to read what it said as maybe a way to launch off into the, to our final session for today anyway. It, um, it's a couple excellent things here that... that, that um, Again, at, at the end of the fifth step, there's some good concrete guidance. And I always like to refer somebody back to this. And I think it's a good thing to always do if it's the first fifth step or if it's the 20th. Um, it, it talks about, and it's a place when the book becomes very concrete. 
Remember, one of the differences between the big book and the 12 and 12 is the big book is much more grabby. It's much more graphic and it's much more, um, I don't know what word to use. It's, it's very bold. I'm always struck by how it's written. It's just very stark and very concrete. But it talks about at the bottom of step five, it says returning home, we find a place where we can be quiet for an hour, carefully reviewing what we have done. We thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know him better. Taking this book down from our shelf, we turn to the page which contains the 12 steps. Carefully reading the first five proposals. And I don't know why he calls them proposals there uh, as opposed to steps. The only thing I know is that Bill said, it talks about in history, Bill had an English teacher that told him not to use the same words. So you know how people have debated that thing in step six and seven, what's the difference? You know, I think all that is is that Bill's teacher told him not to use the same words. So proposals, steps, you can call them what you want. But, but proposals mean steps, the first five proposals, first five steps. We ask if we have omitted anything, for we are building an arch through which we shall walk a free man at last. Is our work solid so far? Are the stones properly in place? Have we skimped on the cement put into the foundation? Have we tried to make mortar without sand? I like to get people to go through that same exact process, just to go literally, uh, very concretely through those things and ask those questions because there's, you know, there's, there's real stuff will come out. Sort of like that prayer in the fourth step. I love that prayer about um, we ask God to remove our fear and, and um, show us what we are to be. Is that, that's just not right. What is it? Guide our attention to what we would be. Not what I should do or whatever, but what I should be. And I'll use that prayer a lot of times, and it's funny what will show up, you know, what kind of guidance they'll get with that. And so it's, it's got some good stuff here and, and some stuff that, that's fairly concrete. I wanted to, uh, to, to, as a way of launching off into this afternoon, and, and read the seventh step, but it talks about it. It tells very clearly what, what we're looking at in terms of what a defect is. It says, when ready, we say something like this. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. We have then completed step seven. I mean, that tells us what a defect is. A defect is anything that stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. That, you know, that makes it fairly clear. Um, you know, another thing I thought about on the, uh, on the break, I did a workshop the other night for some some people, um, a lady and I did a, a, a workshop on a home group, and there's a, there's a thing that, that by now we should be connected to something. I mean, if we're moving forward into these steps, I mean, obviously, we, I mean, you, the, the, the implication would be that we've got a sponsor, that we're a member of a group, and things are changing now. As we move forward into the steps, one of the reasons I believe that the steps, at least as in my case and people I've, I've worked with, it seems to me that it gets a little bit more challenging as the road begins to narrow. I think sometimes we've got stuff just reversed. I think like I talked about this morning, with the, the, there's a tremendous identification on the fourth and fifth step and a lot of trepidation and a fear around that. And then I think that it kind of slows down after that where people shoot past the sixth and seventh step. But I think the challenge becomes even greater. But, you know, we should be connected to other things by now. And one of those would, the implication would be that there's membership in a group. One of the things it talks about in our literature is that most alcoholics can't recover without the group. There's a, um, there's a really telling paragraph on here about the home group. And, and I think, too, this is where so much changes for us, about this place in the steps where we begin to feel better about ourselves. And, you know, we begin to get the confidence to move into the steps. I mean, there's a real willingness here at this point in time to take responsibility. 
I mean, that's what's going on here. We're no longer just running away from things now, but there's some, there should be some real hope. And, you know, you see people's eyes start to change. You know, the, it's been well said that the eyes are the window of the soul, and you really can't lie about it. I mean, there's always been people whose eyes are alive. It's like when you look in the eyes of a pregnant woman who's very happy about the fact that she's pregnant. I mean, there's a life there and dancing eyes or old people that have a certain amount of peace or... Um, or whatever, but there's there's something that's shifting now in the program, and it's very hard. I, I was I really was prayerful about how I would talk about six and seven because it's hard to talk about. I understand it. It's kind of like that Supreme Court justice that said that that uh, he wasn't sure what pornography was, but he knew it when he saw it. And that it's kind of that way with the six and seven step. It's a little bit difficult to talk about. I think I, I understand I understand more about it than I'm able to articulate probably. Um, worth our time here to, to, to digress for just a second when it talks about the home group in this pamphlet. AA literature, by the way. This is the AA home group. Traditionally, most AA members through the years have found it important to belong to one group, which they call the home group. This is the group where they accept responsibilities and try to sustain friendships. And although all AA members are usually welcome at all AA groups and feel at home at any of these groups, the concept of the home group has still remained the strongest bond between the AA member and the fellowship. And that particular quote's taken from the AA service manual. I think this is important here. With membership comes the right to vote upon issues that might affect the group and might also affect AA as a whole, a process that forms the very cornerstone of AA service structure. As with all group conscience matters, each AA member has one vote, and this ideally is votes through the home group. And I, you know, one of the things that I really try to do, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I, I want to be very careful that I don't get into a thing about just making trite sayings. You know how we say things in life like uh, the newcomers is, is, uh, is as important to us as that we are to them. Well, I want to make sure that I really believe that kind of stuff. And when, you know, there's always, everybody has one vote. The, the longest term member in the world and the newcomer, if they're voting in their home group, they both have one vote. And there's, a, there's something that happens in there with all of that, or the acceptance of responsibility and the sense of ownership that, I mean, this is mine. This is no longer, I mean, my sponsor, sponsor always talks about AA is a very lonely place to be if it's not yours. I mean, you can sit in AA meetings and not be connected to AA just like you could be anywhere else. I mean, but once it becomes mine, that's why, I mean, each person has to be a personal convert. My experience, again, is good as far as a helpmate to other people, but my experience isn't something they can live off of. It has to become their experience. So I think throughout this particular time in the steps, we're moving forward into great things beginning to happen. I mean, there's real, there's real, um, real power and real healing has, has, uh, has begun to take place by now, and real change. There's, I mean, there should be real change by this point in a person's life. I mean, the steps do a lot more than, than stop us from drinking. In fact, is I mean, again, drinking, not drinking, is a, um, I mean, if you take somebody to AA meetings drunk for very long, somebody else will talk with you about it. I mean, in this day and age, I don't know where they expect you to take a drunk, but uh, not drinking is, is pretty much of a, of a um, the steps presuppose not drinking. I guess a way to say that, it would be very hard to practice the 12 steps drunk. I mean, can you imagine sitting around a bar one night drawing up an eight-step list? I mean, it'd be a little rough, wouldn't it? I mean, you wouldn't be able to get past what people have done to us. So what's happened now is there's a shift. I guess why the program becomes more difficult, I tried to talk about that earlier, is when we do a fifth step, I mean, we have a lot of, there's a story in there. It's not just all facts. 
But, you know, the re like when we detail the reason for our resentment, what we're doing is talking about what other people have done as well. What's happened now when we move forward into that, we've taken personal responsibility, sure enough. No problem with that. That's true. It has to happen. But what happens with the sixth and seventh step, and as we move forward into eight and nine, what we begin to say now is not, it doesn't make any difference what other people have done. None of that makes any difference. This is about my side of the street. doesn't matter what somebody else has done. At the very minimum, I've made it worse. So there's a shift here. There's a shift, and that's why I think the program becomes more difficult because now we're looking. It doesn't matter. You know, it's more clearly. It's incumbent upon me to, uh, to move forward with that. Um, one of the things that, that um, about step eight, that, well, first of all, it's, it's important, again, to look at what the eighth step says. There's two things that we do. It says made a list. In fact, let me just read that thing. Step eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed. That's one thing we do in the eighth step. We make the list made a list of all persons we had harmed, comma, and became willing to make amends to them all. That's all. I don't do anything else. All I do is make the list and become willing. It, um, we can't get on with living until the past is squared with. There's another thing that, that it talks about in AA literature, and this is a fairly advanced spiritual principle. It's cleaning up the past is not an end in itself. What's happened now is our job is to become the maximum service to God and our fellows. You know, there's been a, there's a, that's a healthy distance from Bill's bar to be of maximum service to God and our fellows. Now, I might have done something um, in Bill's bar for somebody else. I even bought a drink on occasion. It was rare. I had a guy in there tell me one night about that working and leeching drinks. He said, man, if you don't get going pretty soon, you ain't going to be able to draw Social Security. So, I mean, I would buy a drink on occasion, but it was never gratis. There was always an ulterior motive. I mean, if I bought a drink, I expected her to sleep with me or buy five back or he better do this for me or, or something. So now what's happened is we've moved all the way away from that kind of thinking and behavior to, to, to trying to be of maximum service to God and our fellows. That's not an easy shift. So there's got to be a lot of behavior change. There's a lot of action change. It's slowly our thinking and our feelings about that begin to change. It's the end of living alone. It's a step closer to joining the world. We try to develop the best possible relations with every human in the world. I've got a guy, a sponsor, who has a quote that hangs in his home, in his kitchen, that says the single greatest ingredient in life to success is the ability to get along with other people. And it's a quote from Teddy Roosevelt, who ought to know. Um, had a few problems getting along himself. But it... You know, if it is true, it, and it talks about in the eighth step that it's been the single, uh, it's that our defective relations with other people has been the greatest cause of all of our defective relations, including our alcoholism. That's another one of those bold statements, isn't it? A very grabbing statement that our ability to, inability to form a partnership with other human beings has been at the, at the root of all of our problems. And I think that that's true. You know, the, the tendency to either to, to control people or to hide underneath. You know, it talks in our literature about it's very hard just to connect with people. We either want to be better than other people or worse than other people. And to somehow get connected, to just be a member of something, there's a big shift in that. It takes a long time for that to begin to happen. I'll get these things um, tied up here. I want to, a um, couple things that, that I'd like to use on this. In the, in the 12 and 12 on page 80. Let me just read that. 
since defective relations with other human beings have nearly always been the immediate cause of our woes, including our alcoholism. Powerful. Um, that's a strong statement. You filter that and think about that a little bit. It's uh, a very telling thing, you know, how often we've had trouble with other people. How often when people have had trouble with us, we've made it worse. No field of investigation could yield more satisfying and valuable rewards with this one. And remember now, our job is not just to get all this stuff down on paper. What we're trying to do is learn something. What we're trying to do is learn something. Again, it's like with history. What we want to do is try to stop that same stuff from happening again. I mean, in, until a problem's been corrected, it's, it can be well said it's going to keep happening. I used to um, I'll tell you about one, just one thing about that. I used to get a lot of applications at a job I was at for people that were looking for a job. And there was a thread running all through this where these people were changing jobs every two years. And when you would get them in, a lot of them were well prepared for the job and, and um, were well qualified. But when you would get them in and talk about it, the problems that they were experiencing on that job, it was obvious that within about a calendar year of coming to another job, they were going to experience the same thing. I think a calendar year is a pretty good time frame that everything that's going to happen of an emotional nature, of the ups and downs in life, happens in about a calendar year, except for the tragedies of life. A year is a good time frame. A guy told me one time that that's why there was so much emphasis in Alcoholics Anonymous in the old, about that first year. I mean, that's a pretty telling thing when an alcoholic of my description can stay sober one day at a time for a year. I mean, obviously something has happened with that. Calm, thoughtful reflection upon personal relations can deepen our insight. We can go far beyond those things which seem superficially wrong with us to see those flaws which were basic, flaws which sometimes were responsible for the whole pattern of our lives. Thoroughness, we have found, will pay and pay handsomely. To define the word harm in a practical way, we might call it the result of instincts in collision which cause physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual damage to people. Um, you know, when you think about harm, and so, sometimes it's very easy to see. I mean, if you break somebody's nose or whatever. And there was things I did when I was drinking that were so far off. Again, it's like knowing something was so far off. It's kind of like I said last night about Billy Walker um, saying he had just got out of the 101st Airborne. You know, it's just, I mean, I'm sure he would have jumped out of a plane, but uh, I mean, it was obvious that this guy had just not got out of the Army. One of the things I forgot to mention last night, one of the things, you know, you talk about the brains in a place like Bill's Bar and how much stuff has shifted by the time we get up to like the eighth step. When I started getting drunk with Billy and Tommy Walker, he had a brother named Tommy Walker, and when they came to town, I started drinking with him. Billy Walker drank that dry gin and chased it with squirt. And all squirt is is a kind of soda. I've never even seen it in North Carolina, but it's a kind of soda. And his Tommy Walker drank bar whiskey and chased it with water. And when I started drinking with him, I started drinking that dry gin and chasing it with squirt. And Billy Walker told me, he said, there's two things you've got to remember when you're drinking this gin the way we're drinking it. He said, always get the gin in a separate glass and get the squirt over here. He said, you never want to smell the gin. He said, what you do is you drink it but never breathe and swallow it real fast because he said, if you breathe, he said, it's nasty and it can make you gag. And I said, all right, makes sense to me. And he said, as soon as you hit your mouth with that gin, Swallow it down and then get that squirt and drink it down. And I said, all right, makes sense to me. And he said, the other thing you've got to remember, now this is gospel. He actually said this. He said, you've got to remember to, to, to use a lot of pepper on your food. 
And I said, pepper on your food, what will that do? And we weren't eating much in those days anyway. And he said, well, he said, the way we're drinking this gin, he said, it hurts your liver. And he said, if you use a lot of pepper on your food, it'll counteract any liver damage. <laughs> now, now, he actually said that. Now, you know, and that's the kind of brains we were operating off at that time. Well, to get from a place like that in life to where we begin to take responsibility, what we're trying to do now is square with the past. Not only am I trying to square with the past, I'm trying to get to the place where I learned something from it. Just like interviewing those people. I mean, the same stuff was going to happen. Until the problem was corrected, it's always going to show itself. It's going to show itself over and over and over. You've heard the saying about a person has had uh, the same relationship ten different times or the same year of sobriety five times. Well, the same stuff. I mean, there's a law in life. It's a, it's a truth in life. And it's certainly nothing I dreamed up, but you can't do better until you know better. That's why people who know us are generally prepared to predict in any situation how we're going to react. Because until we know better, until it becomes ours, we can't do it. We can't carry it out. I mean, I learned as a little child not to lie. You know, I didn't quit lying until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, but I learned that, but it wasn't mine. You know, I, don't, I think we're around a coffee pot, what, about three or four days in AA in the back of the room, and somebody tells us about that resentment's got to go, it, you know, it can't be here. But, I mean, that's a truth, but we spend the rest of our lives in Alcoholics Anonymous clearing that stuff out. So it has to become mine, and it has to become something that, that is much more than intellectual to me. It has to have, you know, depth, weight, and meaning. The same stuff will always happen, no matter how many times, until the inside is changed. You can't change the inside by changing the outside. It'll always show itself. Most alcoholics, certainly, I had to be almost dead to begin to find that out. I, there was no way for me to know that. I really thought that if I got the outside changed, that somehow that would sustain itself. And no matter how many times the same stuff happened, you know, I could never understand. I got fired after one day on a job one time. I mean, that's almost impossible. I worked one day at a car wash in Los Angeles and got fired. I mean, how do you do that? One day. You know, you'd think the guy would let you come back the next day just in general principle. <laughs> so to get from that kind of a place in life to where we now begin to take responsibility for other people's well-being is a considerable uh, jump. And a lot of things have to happen. Let's see what the book's got, the big book's got to say about this on... Um, this is a um, challenging statement. Let me say something else. Sometimes people are a little bit alarmed. The book talks about we need to have our eight-step list and we need to have a good start on it from our fourth step. I think that's true, and I always try to get people to keep that because it's a good launching off place. But if somebody doesn't have a fourth-step list when they start on an eight-step, it's not fatal. You know, lots of people have, uh, have done this stuff to the best of their ability but not been literally or mechanical or legalistically correct. I think what we're trying to do is work with the spirit of things. Again, it's not a Supreme Court where we weigh it out and... Uh, but this is, look at this, it talks about moving into step eight and nine. The big book has them together, and the 12 and 12 has them separated a little bit, Cheryl. Where, uh, this is at the bottom of step seven in the big book. It says, now we need more action, without which we find that faith without works is dead. Let's look at steps eight and nine. We have a list of all persons we have harmed and to, to whom we are now willing to make amends. We made it when we took inventory. We subjected ourselves to a drastic self-appraisal. Now we go out to our fellows and repair the damage done in the past. We attempt to sweep away the debris which has accumulated out of our effort to live on self-will and run the show ourselves. If we haven't the will to do this, we ask until it comes. 
remember it was agreed at the beginning we would go to any length for victory over alcohol. And so again, there's a clear implication there of what will happen if we do what we're supposed to do. There's also an implication of what will happen if we don't do what we're supposed to do. You know, the implication is that is that there won't be victory over alcohol if we don't sweep off our side of the street. There's two ways to write, I guess. There's a way to say... There's two ways to write, I guess. There's a way to say just literally what will happen, and then there's a way to make an if inference. And anybody that's ever dealt with, like, circumstantial evidence is very strong. I mean, experience is very strong. So there's a, there's a strong indication that they know what they're talking about here. Remember, it was agreed at the beginning we would go to any lengths for victory over alcohol. And I've also got after that, I, in my own writing, I says, and for a new and peaceful life. You know, by the time we get to this point in our sobriety, suffering is something that we're getting a little tired of. You know, I used to be willing to hang on to something and deal with it. And I, over the years, I've gotten less and less willing to do that. There used to be a lady in my home group that, that um, always liked to say that she would rather be right than happy anytime. You know, and I, and I think I can identify with that. The sad news about that is that, is that she, she's, she's now drinking. You know, I'm not saying that's the reason why, but I don't think it helped any. So, you know, I'm much less interested in being right now. What I want to do is have calm and peaceful relationships. It's, it's a lot easier and a gentler way to live. Okay, here it talks about, again, on page 77 and step 8 and 9 in the big book. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. And it talks about, you know, and it gives you some ideas on how to ways to, to, to approach people. You know, my experience with amends has been... Um, has been very good. I, um, I have a friend who went out to, uh, to make an amend that, that um, um, I, in fact, is I have two people that, I, that, I'm, that I'm close to that had, you know, shaky experiences where amends weren't accepted. But it, the people that I've done amends with, just like it says in the book, have met me more than halfway. But it really doesn't matter anymore. What matters is, is that we've made our demonstration. We've done our part. We've taken responsibilities for what, you know, for what's going on in our life. But it, um, we're willing, and I think that's what people are generally interested in. You know, one of the things I've noticed is, is that even, even hard-bitten people that are pretty jaundiced in the way they look at life oftentimes become very willing to help those that are trying to help themselves. And there's something that happens with surrender. Have you ever had the experience of running into somebody in a grocery store that you used to go to meetings with, and even though they were physically not drinking, when you saw them, they looked different? You know, they, they didn't look the same. I mean, and there's something like that that happens with surrender when we move into sobriety, too. You know, there's something that happens. There's, a, there's a, an, an evidence or something that's obvious about that. And just like people knew that we were drinking, I mean, people very often know that something else has happened, too, even if they don't know what all the particulars are. I mean, you know, I think one of the, one of the most foolish things that we've believed is that other people don't know what's going on in the world. You know, that I somehow think that I do, but nobody else does. It's an amazing thing that, you know, nobody else knows this but me. So it's, you know, people can generally be counted on to, uh, to understand what's going on. And very often people are willing to cut us some tremendous slack. But it shouldn't make any difference. The idea is, is for us to take responsibility for what we've done. I wanted to, uh, if I could, talk a little bit about... Um, here again, it says we are there to sweep off our side of the street, realizing that nothing worthwhile can be accomplished until we do so, never trying to tell him what he should do. His faults are not discussed. We stick to our own. If our manner is calm, frank, and open, we will be gratified with the result. 
again, the idea is, is to take responsibility for the past. I think the implication is, is today can't be lived till good purpose until the past is squared with. You know, that I'm never going to be free and easy. What I believe is, is that I'm at my best when I'm natural. Those of us who follow baseball, you know, even a World Series, a world-class pitcher, when he gets in trouble, a lot of times he'll try to aim the ball. And as, when that happens, I mean, it's almost over with. A pitcher can't aim the ball. He just has to bring it. And uh, the greatest cause of impotence in males is fear of it. You know, I mean, we're at our best when we're natural. I'm at my best in life when I'm not aware of what I'm doing. It's like if I just give a talk and it just happens, it's effortless. If everything is measured, kind of like it is right now, I mean, it's uphill, it's tough. But Pete, I'm at my best when I'm natural, when I'm not there, so to speak. So, you know, my job is to try to get things current in life so that I can take responsibility for the past so it'll go away. We say in Alcoholics Anonymous and in life that the past can't be changed. My, I'll tell you, I, I, I think that's only a half-truth. The way I understand the past changes after the eighth and ninth step. I don't know about you, but I have literally went out, I have called people and told them I want to see them. I've had it on my list. I've went out to see them, done what I needed to do, and left there, and they physically look different to me than when I came. You know, my understanding of the past changes when I do the steps. And I don't think the past can be squared. You know, one place that's got to change is that there's obvious things like it talks about. Um, let's start with an easy one. It says, most alcoholics owe money. We do not dodge our creditors. Telling them what we are trying to do, we make no bones about our drinking. They usually know it anyway, whether we think so or not. Nor are we afraid of disclosing all our alcoholism on the theory it may cause financial harm. Approached in this way, the most ruthless creditor will sometimes surprise us. Arranging the best deal we can, we let these people know that we are sorry. Our drinking has made us slow to pay. We must lose our fear of creditors no matter how far we have to go, for we are liable to drink if we are afraid to face them. And again, working with people, I find that very often they're afraid of financial amends. I found that to be the easiest amend in the world to make. It may be hard to come up with the money, but if it's a financial amend, I mean, all, there, there's not much to that. And that's a good place. That's the place I like to start. If I have a choice in working with people, once you can get them past the, you know, the immediate things like the family, I like to get them involved in financial amends because they get such energy from them. I mean, they get kicked loose. I know a guy told a story one time that, that he got a call for a 12-step call, and he didn't have the time to... Uh, he wasn't able to do it. He was tied up. He worked in the court system. Couldn't get loose from where he was, so he got a hold of a guy that was sober one year. And he told the guy to, um, to make this call. He called the guy and said, I want you to go out and call on this guy. He's drinking, but I want you to go out there and talk with him and, and help him. And he said, well, what do I do? He said, well, go out there and share your experience, strength, and hope with him and get him to Alcoholics Anonymous. So the uh, guy said, man, I can't do that. And he said, well, there's really nothing to it. You just go out there and tell him about your drinking. Don't talk to him about his drink and share your experience and see if he wants help and you try to help him. That's all you got to do. So he said he didn't give any more thought to it. About three, four hours later, he was in his office working away and he got a phone call and it was that guy that had made the call, the guy that was sober one year. And he said the guy was so pumped he could barely contain himself. And, he, and the guy that, was, that had the one year said to the other guy that sent him on the 12-step call, he said, man, you got any more of those? And that's what happens, I think, with amends. That's why I like to pe start people with financial amends. It's a walk in the park. The problem we have is grandiose, um, again, alcoholics, is if we owe $1,000, we want to walk in there with $1,010 and slap it down and tell them to hang their money. 
That's what we want to do. Well, that's, you know, usually that won't work. What we need to do is make our demonstration with that is start somewhere. You know, I've known people that were locked up and could pay a dollar a week. You know, I've known all kinds of things, but you've got to start somewhere. Again, it's in the doing. It's, we get well in the journey. Remember this old thing about sobriety being a, a journey, not a destination? We get well by doing the stuff. Very often, something shifts in the eighth step. You know, very often, by the time we get to the bottom of the ninth step, those 12 promises that are listed on the bottom of the ninth step have already become a reality. You know, we don't have to go all the way through that for that to happen. There's things happen. But financial amends are a wonderful place to start. One of the things that I believe that has to happen, and I know Keith would have talked about this two years ago because he always does, and it's just so true, is I, I just don't think we can make much out of life until we square it up at home. I just don't think we can get it cleaned up. I mean, I just think we've got to clean it up at home with our parents, uh, with those people. I mean, we've, it's just got to be done. And then my, my experience with that was slow. My dad, uh, I told you, is... Um, uh, you know, uh, just a horrible case of alcoholism. And, and what, what finally happened for me, I mean, I made the direct amends years ago, and, but stuff just never shifted for me in terms of feelings. My dad's relegated to a veteran's home, and he's been there since 1979 for drinking, and he still gets drunk. He got drunk last year, got wandered off and got drunk and fell down on the ice and almost froze to death. And the, the nurse that called my sister um, said that when they found him, his body temperature was so low that one of the things that they were worried about when they get it to start to come up is it'll shock you and send you into a, a stroke and die. And they said that when they were trying to get my dad to come around a little bit, that he, uh, he heard him talking and he looked up and said that, that uh, he hadn't passed out at all. That isn't what had happened, that he had simply gotten tired walking back, so he took, he, you know, took a break. <laughs> you know, and I mean, that's what we're dealing with there. I remember one time years and years ago, it's probably been... 18 years ago, my dad told my ex-wife, he said, you know, I never have been able to figure out why Steve had so much trouble quitting drinking. He said, you know, I never have. Well, he's never quit, <laughs> you know. And so, but, you know, and the only time I think I really did well with my dad is when I was in the military. You know, I was, when I was in Vietnam and during that time my dad was in the Second World War and, and I think that, that it, that's probably the time it was best. And there were times when we were drinking buddies, but it's always been a strained relationship. I'll tell you what finally shifted it for me. And sometimes these things don't have happy endings. I mean, sometimes you got to get, you know, you got to settle for the best there is. Sometimes there is no happy ending. It's just something that you can live with and, and move forward. Keith told me a few years ago, he said, you know, one of the things you got to accept is, is your dad's not going to be a parent about this. I mean, it, it, and so I think I always had some kind of expectation attached to that. I think with amends, the, the, the focus clearly, there's, a, there's an inference here by the time I get to the eighth and ninth step that I've grown up emotionally and spiritually some. You know, I'm willing to take responsibility for others' well, people's well-being. I don't expect them to do that for me. You know, I, I expect that my well-being comes from God and the, and the power of these principles, and I'm the one that's got the gift of the program. You know, my dad told one of my aunts some years ago that if anything would make you drink, going to AA meetings would. Well, I mean, you know, and, you know, they've worn out one car over the years just taking him around to hospitals trying to get him sober. So obviously, I mean, the way he sees things is going to be a little bit confused. But I think where it turned around for me, what, what my sponsor told me to do a few years ago is just, he said, write your dad a letter, you know, pretty regularly and just tell him what's going on in your life. Tell him about what's going on with you and what's going on with your kids and, and, and just leave it go at that. And somehow, when I dropped all expectations of things, it got much better for me. I cleaned it up with my mom years ago. I mean, and, and it, 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 
it's always been fairly good with my mom. I went back with my sisters. You know, I've, I've, uh, oh God, uh, you know, I've, I've done that. I've, I've, I've done those things, and um, to make amends is, is, is I think probably the, the, the number one thing about getting current. It's probably the number one thing where I move into being able to operate in the power right now. Let me tell you some. Um, few examples of some amends that, that um, have had great meaning for me. I, um, you know, when I got divorced in 1994, my children were, um, whatever, I guess 16 and 15, and I think that I'd been a really good parent when my kids were little, but it had gotten a lot tougher um, through the years, and, and, you know, when the divorce um, was over with, when, when that happened, things were fairly strained. And I sat down with both of my children and talked with them, and, and out of that, things moved. Things moved back. One day, what happened to me, you know, it's been well said that one of the greatest blessings of adolescence is it doesn't last. That if you can keep kids going, you know, they'll change into regular people. And, and that's what happened for me. I mean, one day, I don't think it happened this fast, but one day it just seems like my daughters were young women. They were just altogether different. I ended up having them both for their senior year in high school at different times. I mean, they both came to live with me. And, and out of that, I mean, there was a lot of stuff that gets worked out when you get thrown in like that together. You know, and again, crisis brings about a lot of stuff. You know, it brings about recovery from alcoholism. You know, there's, some, there's usually some kind of a thing that pushes us over the edge. You know, I mean, we've been drunk for a long time, but something happens, whether it's a drunk driving or sometimes it's just that we... You know, I'm not going to do that again, whatever it might be. So out of that came something different. I remember talking to my youngest daughter, and, and I was a little bit nervous, and I was trying to explain to her what amend meant. And um, she was 16 at this time, and, and um, she said, Dad, I know what amend means. I know what that means. But she heard me out, and then she had a couple things she wanted to say. And it wasn't very long after that. She had went back home to her mom and... and um, she called me one day and said, can I come and live with you? Well, that may not have happened if I hadn't have done that. You know, something had to move that. And so until amends have been made, and, you know, and, and two, until I got clear with my daughter, there was always the same stuff happening over and over, just like in relationships. As long as something's not finished, it's never new. You know, if I've got trouble with policemen, every time I see a policeman, no matter what happens, it's the same story over and over, even though it's a whole other scenario. So until I can get current, it's always going on. So I think that that, that happened with my children. But I, I really don't think that life can be to live to much good purpose until it's cleaned up at home. I think somehow that's got to happen. I remember, um, you know, when I went through that 19-year thing, I had, um, I, was, I was fairly desperate out of that. And what I did is I went back and... and um, did a bunch of eighth and ninth step work, and I got real involved with Keith. And, but I was just barely hanging on through that period of time. Like we, we were talking about earlier, that, that, that eight-year and 19-and-a-half-year thing, just the pain involved in that. It was horrible, but I went back and did some, some eighth and ninth step stuff. And one of the things I did, I contacted one of my, my drunken uncles that's not in AA, and he's a retired E-9 from the Army. When he got discharged from the Army, he was a senior enlisted man at Fort Gordon. And, and uh, him and I were in Vietnam together at the same time. And he tried to contact me through my mom and find out where I was at and everything, and I wouldn't see him. Plus, I made a joke out of the military. I'd say things like, you know, that the difference between the military and the Cub Scouts is the Cub Scouts got adult supervisors. And, 
just that kind. I'm just a kind of a guy that's an idiot. You know, I had a I had a fatigue cap that was seven and three quarters. You know, I had long way I had real long hair. I had a cap pulled down like this. It looked like Spanky. You know, I had a big old pants. If it would have got cold, somebody else could have got in there with me. And I'm just a, a complete idiot, just the kind of guy that was in the, in the way. Now, here's a guy that grew up, quit school as a child. I mean, you know, they didn't have enough to eat. Went in the military when he, when he was old enough to get in there and stayed in there and, and risen to the top of his profession. A bad drinking problem, granted, but a, but a decent man who had given all those years, whatever it was, 28 years to the military or whatever. And I'd never cleaned it up with him. I... I had seen him a couple times. I'd been in a bar with him one night after I'd gotten out of the military, and I'd had a bunch of, I had some legal problems pending. And I, I vaguely remember it. I was coming, you know, one of those, the worst kind of blackouts are when you, you, you vaguely remember what happened. I mean, if you're going to have a blackout, it's a, it's a blessing to not remember anything. I always hated to go back where I'd been the night before when you vaguely remember what's going on. You don't know if they got the troops out after you or what. But I remember a couple of my uncles, and they lived in other parts of the country, but when they would come to town, I mean, they're all drunks, so when they would come to town, they'd be in the bars. And I remember this uncle of mine, the one that was the retired um, E-9, saying that he said, well, how about letting me help you with, your, with, the, with the court problems? And what he was offering to do was pay for it. I mean, a, a decent, kind offer. And I remember giving him, you know, telling him that I didn't like him then, and I didn't like him back in the then, I don't like you now, and I don't need any of your help, and just nonsense. I mean, just a, a babbling idiot. And um, he told me later, and when I contacted him, when I'd made amends to him when I was, I guess, 20 years sober, during that 19 and a half year thing, I, I wrote him a letter, and... Um, told him that I, and in some ways, I was just very graphic in the letter. I said, in some ways, my progress in sobriety has been like a meteorite. I mean, things have happened to me that should never happen. And I said, in some ways, I'm like a glacier. You know, I've just moved so slow. I said, but I, I really want to clean this up. I said, I want you to tell me what I need to do to make it right. And if you want me to come to Augusta, he lives in Augusta, Georgia, or whatever else you want me to do, I'm willing to do. And um, I got a note back from him about as fast as the mail would arrive. He said that, that um, your atonement in the letter, plus your 20 years of success is quite enough. And then he, he asked me, he said, I want to know if you've cleaned it up with your mom. It, he said, because I vaguely remember that night in the bar, you said a lot of stuff about my sister, who's obviously my mom. And he said that there's few relationships in life more important than with one's parents. Now, here's a guy. He's a good guy. He's, in the, he's got, probably got the worst kind of alcoholism in the world, the kind where you can stay drunk all the time and still do life. You know, my mom and my sisters always talk about when I see him how he's so interested in life and he wants to know about everybody. Not my kind of alcoholism. If I get drunk, I'm gone. You know, I ain't going to try to do anything else. But that's probably a tough kind of alcoholism to sober up on because, you know, you can do life to some extent. I mean, I would never use this term to the uninformed, but I guess what you'd call it is like a functioning alcoholic. It's a bad deal. But, um, but he knows that, that one's relationships with their family is, is extremely important. And, and um, so, you know, I've, I've done that, and that had great meaning to me. One of the things that I've done with, with amends towards the military, I took a cue from my sponsor on this. I, 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 my office where I work is in Goldsboro, North Carolina, and North Carolina has a lot of military installations, and there's a major uh, military installation in Goldsboro. It was prominent in the Desert Storm. But... Um, a lot of times what I'll do when I see military people around town is I'll just talk to them a little bit and thank them for their contribution. 
There's so many ways to make amends. There's so many ways. One of the things that I like to do is push people around in a good-natured way, like waiters and waitresses and clerks, and try to take a little bit of the edge off and interact. And One of the things I did for years in restaurants when I was drinking is I never paid for anything. You know, what I'd do is I'd go in, I'd get the tip if I could, then I'd eat, and I'd leave without paying. You know, and I had it down to a science. I was only caught three times lifetime. I mean, I'm good. Uh, and I did it one time after I quit drinking out where, you know, I told you the AA people in the town I sobered up in hung out at Sambo's. I went in there one day not long after I was able to take nourishment, move around a little bit, and I ate a chicken dinner and walked out without paying. Now I'm sober a very short period of time. So uh, I got a hold of a little bit of money and asked to see the manager. And it was an amend I made long before I knew about that place in the steps. But what I did is I just, I caught him one night by the cash register. His name was Paul. This was in the, probably in June of, or June or July of 1975, right after I'd gotten sober. And I told him what I'd done. And I remember what he did. He said, he went over and he grabbed the menu to find out how much the cost was. And he clicked it up in the cash register. He took the money and he thanked me, shook hands with me. And he said, I really appreciate that. And he said, this will never be mentioned again. Well, you know, I, I, I mean, I, you've got to begin to clean that stuff up. You've got to begin to take responsibility. And the, the, the obvious thing there is, is I wasn't able to do sober what I'd done all those years of drinking. I was in a bar one time or in a restaurant. In, in, I was stationed up in Spokane, Washington. And, and um, I used to take great pride. You know, I, I was always the kind of guy that, that um, I, I loved it when people knew I was lying, but I'd stick to my story. You know, and I especially liked it if they knew I, they, if I, if I knew that they knew I was lying, but I stuck to my story, I liked it. One night I went and, uh, and I told you I was only caught three times lifetime walking out without pay, and I went in this, this uh, restaurant in downtown Spokane, Washington after the bars were closed, and I ordered something to eat, and the lady, I was real drunk, but I remember, the lady brought my salad. Well, about that time, and so I'm eating away there best I can, best a drunk can pick at their food. And um, lady that was uh, one of the ladies that was working there came out and took it away, and she said, "You were in here the other night and ate such and such, whatever it was, and walked out without paying." Well, you know, the only the only recourse you've got in a situation like that is to become indignant. You know, I had to become indignant, so I became indignant, and uh, I said, "I'm not leaving. We've got to get somebody in here to get this straight. I can't believe that I'm being accused of this." So she gets a couple policemen in there, and. Um, so, you know, they were fairly philosophical about it. I mean, I'm, they know they got a drunk on their hands. So the one guy I'm standing, they got me back there by the door. And this woman is up there yelling, it was him. And I'm saying, it was not me. And so the, the policeman says, look, he said, there's nothing I'm going to be able to do about this. He said, you've either got to pay for this or leave or something, or I'm going to have to take you to jail because she's willing to press charges. So I said, well, look, I'm just going to leave then because that's what the lady said she'd be satisfied with. And I had my jacket on the back of the chair up in front. So he said, well, go get your jacket and let's and get you out of here. So when I walked up there, that lady was standing there like this. And I said, you're right, it was me. And I said, not only that, I said, I ain't paying for that salad I ate tonight. You know, but I mean, again, just an idiot. You know, the kind of person that would take great pride in that. I mean, there's something wrong with that. So, you know, I've, you know, I've, went back and taken responsibility for that kind of stuff, to pay or to make terms to pay, you know, to take our place. And most all amends in my experience have had very happy endings, very happy endings. I, um, I've had all kinds of stuff happen. There was a lawyer, the court in uh, Nebraska used to appoint a, 
a certain lawyer all the time. They did a thing in Nebraska for some years when I was drinking. On second offense public intoxication, the maximum penalty was six months in jail at that time. And there was a thing that came, if it was possible for you to get 30 days in jail or more, they would appoint you an attorney. And they used to appoint me the same attorney when I'd be charged with public intoxication, second offense. All they had was first and second offense. So they're charging me with public intoxication all the time. So what he's doing is pleading me innocent. It's the, cop, the, 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 the police that are arresting me are third shift. They work from 11 to 7. So we got them in court for like, we'll have these trials that last two hours to find me guilty of public intoxication. I don't even remember being arrested. You know, and, and then one time they, you know, they got, after a while it became clear what's going on with this, so they started charging me with first offense because the penalty is then, I don't know, it was, it was less than 30 days. So I get another public intoxication and I hire him this time because they're not going to appoint him. So when, when he knows he's not getting paid anyway, but when we're leaving court, he told me, he said, you owe me $20. Now, even in 1973 or 1974, you're not going to get a lawyer to do that for $20, are you? And it was just one of those things. I'd been bad. I sobered up in that town. The guy was still practicing law. And it's just one of those things that just got away from me. I never did. And one time when I went back, I finally said, I'm going to get that thing off my list. What had happened is, is that there was, um, I heard two people make talks. And I, I'm perilously close, I think, to this place myself. I I heard a, we had a guy make a talk one night at our, on our speakers meeting when I lived in Wilson, and he just made a statement. He said, you know, he said, I'm square with the world. He said, there's nobody, there's nobody that if I knew they were going to leave out of here tonight that I would have to try to get to and try to get something cleaned up. He said, there's nobody on the face of the earth that I know of that I'd have to go to their funeral and stand there and wish I'd have got something straight. He said, I've got it cleaned up. And so I, you know, that's a, that's a um, pretty clean place in life to be. And it really got me thinking. So I went back and did some stuff. And there was just stuff like that that had been left undone. But again, there's an attachment to things. You know, you, I mean, I would just think about that kind of stuff from time to time. And so I got an appointment with that guy and, and um, told him what I was there for. And, you know, and, and most people, a lot of people, when, when I've made amends to them, they just want to get it over with. I mean, they're kind of embarrassed about the whole thing. And so here's a guy that's been practicing law in that town for years, and he took the time to hear me out. He was very kind about it. And when I was all done, he said, look, he said, um, I appreciate that. And he said that I, I'm glad that you took the time. And he said, I'm, I'm sure that you'll feel better about it. I understand. Those. He understood in principle what I was trying to do. He understood it was important to me. But he said, look, I don't need the money. He said, why don't you give it to charity? And I said, well, I, I'm not here about whether or not you need the money. It's important for me to do it. And what I want to do is give you the money, and if you want to give it to charity, you do that. But, you know, and again, those things have meaning to me. There's stuff that I've done. There's other things that I've done. There's people that I've taken stuff from that I don't know where they're at or who they are. You know, there's all kinds of stuff. My mistreatment of women for years. You know, there's things that can be done about that. There's things that can be done now. I mean, there's so many ways to get that stuff straight, to give money to prisons or to the mission or to, you know, children's projects or um, all kinds of stuff. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to, to get straight with that. Um, I had one amend that I did. It's, all, it's a little bit, um, it's kind of like what we were talking about today with, that, with another guy. I had, a, I had a guy, when I went to work in North Carolina, um, I, I don't know how to describe this guy other than, um, good God, I don't know how you describe this guy. He's just a tortured human being, and, and um, he did far more to me than I ever did to him. I mean, it was a work situation, and, and when I showed up, I've moved 
from Nebraska to North Carolina, and the first thing he told me is, is that there's only one man that wants you here. He said, I sure don't want you here, and there, nobody wants you in North Carolina. Uh, I mean, not a real good, not a real welcome home. Uh, but he, he contracted cancer, and it was obvious he was sick. So I went over and, and uh, made direct amends to him, and he was the type of person that still, generally, you know, in a situation like that, the other person will be honest too. Here was a guy who was getting ready to die, still was not willing to be honest. I mean, he wasn't willing to express any animosity towards me that he'd ever had any or whatever. What he said was is that, it, you know, I had never really, in so many words, he had said that I had never, he'd never really been bothered by me. Well, that was fine. And what, what I've done in the last some years is I've gotten into the thing of whenever I make direct amends to somebody is that, because the idea is amend means to mend the situation, to make it better you know, to mend the relationship, to fix it, to whatever it is. I want to put back in what I took out, but I want to extract from that. I want it to be better. I want to have a better relationship there or move forward from that. So I always ask somebody, what is it that I need to do to fix this? I had a lady one night that I'd insulted at a basketball game. Um, just one of those things. I'd said something real unkind, and, and she said, well, when I made direct amends to her, she was working in the booth. And she remembered it. I, I was 20 years sober when I did it. She remembered it, and I made direct amends to her and asked her what I could do. She said, well, all I want you to do anyway is be happy. That's all I wanted you to do then was to be happy. So, you know, when I saw her after that, I saw her in traffic a couple times. I put on my best, you know, smiling face and waved, and, and she did too. It's a small thing. But this particular guy, when I made direct amends to him, it was a, it was a difficult amend. I'll tell you, I went over to make amends to him, and I went kicking and screaming. The guy that was, uh, I don't know how you'd describe that guy. He's one of the sorriest excuses for a human I ever met. It's just a, 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 a difficult case. And, and when I made direct amends about what I had done, he said, I said, what can I do to, to make it right? He said, well, he wanted me to stop by his house. I knew I wasn't going to do that. And uh, I knew he didn't want me to either. And he said, well, how about if you let me show you around his operation? He had opened a great big place. And so I did that. He showed me all around there and and, and I think what that did for me, at least, is it cleared away. I think about him sometimes, and my, my understanding of him as a human being has not changed, but the way I feel about that has changed. You know, there's no connection to that anymore. I, you know, I, I feel much better. Let me, um, let me finish up, if I can, on, on um, something here. You know, again, um, kind of like in the fifth step where it says the best reason first for doing a fifth step is we may not overcome drinking if we don't. You know, there's a lot of, um, at the bottom of step nine in the big book, it talks about, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous literature, like I said earlier, is full of promises. It'll tell us what will happen if we do what we're supposed to do. It'll tell us what will happen if we don't. But we've almost deified those promises at the bottom of step nine. Sometimes we fail to tell people that they're at the bottom of step nine. You know, the promise, those particular promises are just one of many, many promises, but they happen automatically if we do our nine-step work. But it might be well to look at those to, um, uh, there's a paragraph that leads into this that, that's, that's very comforting. It says, there may be some wrongs we can never fully right. We don't worry about them if we can honestly say to ourselves that we would right them if we could. Some people cannot be seen. We send them an honest letter. And there may be a valid reason for postponement in some cases, but we don't delay if it can be avoided. Here's another powerful statement about how life has changed now as we move into the, the finishing up of our men's. It says, we should be sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping 
As God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't crawl before anyone. That's a pretty, again, concrete picture of how to approach this. You know, we're there to make something right that's been pretty badly damaged. We're not there to crawl or beg or anything. We're there to state our case in a business-like manner with the focus on us and to clean things up. Then there's some stuff that happens if we do that that, that certainly makes it worthwhile. It says, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. That happened to me. Kind of like that guy that went out to, uh, to, 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 to make that 12-step call. I mean, he got so pumped off of that that he wanted to know if there was any more of them available. And a lot of times, that's what I like to do with amends, you know, when I'm working with somebody is get them to pick one out. Start somewhere. Because the experience is so exhilarating that people are pushed forward into it. You know, once I had a little bit of taste of what the, when the door is open in the spiritual life, when I have a little bit of a, a begin to see some headway, then, you know, it's the old saying in an Alcoholics Anonymous is the more you do, the better you feel. The better you feel, the more you're able to do. You know, and that's why I think that I had to start. That's why the, the genius, again, of Alcoholics Anonymous is just to start with things like putting out chairs, helping tear down. Those are physical acts. It's like learning to date. I mean, that's why it's much easier to do it around food or something. There's things to do. You don't have to think of so much to say. You know, there's, there's some practicality in that. But I certainly was amazed before I was halfway through. You know, I got great blessings out of early amends. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. That's certainly with it. I never had any freedom before I came to AA. The only freedom I had was in being drunk. And that's not the kind I was looking for. I mean, that's the freedom, I guess, if I didn't know where I was at, but there was no peace in that. That's probably one of the places where family members get so sick, too, that deal with us, is they don't have any, they don't have any relief from alcohol. You know, they, I mean, they've just got to take their knocks. So now to know a new freedom and a new happiness is a, is, a, is a powerful thing. If that's one of the things that comes out of amends, and it is, then I'm that much more willing to do it. We will not regret the past and wish to short, shut the door on it. That's a statement that would have been impossible for me to believe when I came to AA. I simply would not have been able to believe that, to not regret the past or shut the door on it. I mean, that's how we aid other people back to life. By taking responsibility for my past, then I'm no longer owned by it. There's a, um, something happens, you know, with that. It's, it's like once I shift, I mean, that was me, but I'm not the same person anymore. So when I take responsibility for my past, you know, there's no reason to shut the door on it. It happened. It's part of what I am today. I mean, it would be foolish to say that I'm not a product of my past. I am. But I think the good news about Alcoholics Anonymous is, is it can change all of that. You know, I'm different today. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. I had a poster one time that I loved. I gave it to a friend of mine that, that um, I used to play ping pong with before. My home group the, was the Amigos group in Omaha. We met in the basement of the church. And I'd been a ping pong champion in the VA psych ward. Um, <laughs> I really had. I was the only. I only lost one game in there, and that's that was before I had my headband sent in. And after that, I remained undefeated. <laughs> you could probably say, you know, I was one of the few, few, few people in there that wasn't on Thorazine. But I, uh, you know, I was a ping pong champion in the VA psych ward. And my buddy claimed to have been a ping pong champion in the penitentiary. So we used to play ping pong before our home group in the basement of the church. And I gave him this poster because he loved it. But I had a big poster one time that said that serenity is not freedom from the storm; it's peace amid the storm. Somewhere along the line, I think what the eighth and ninth step is trying to teach us is, is we've got to take responsibility for the past and for today. And in doing that, there's freedom. There is serenity. I mean, I think that, you know, what real peace is is being able to engage the moment right now no matter what's going on. 
you know, that I'm not in control of this thing. What I am here is I'm a servant. That's as high as you can go in life. I get mine by serving others. Now, I had to be beat almost to death with my own drinking to find that out. But again, that's a pretty big shift in life. It shows that there's been a long trek from, you know, from, from dying a slow or a fast death of actively drinking and the way that I looked at the world. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. You know, that my past can be turned to my best use. When I got down with my fifth step, the, my, my list, my first fifth step, and again, there was some, some serious squalor in there, and including the, the loss of one, one person's life. I remember what, one of the things he said to me. He said, you will never have to go through that again, that same stuff. You're right in sight of God and man. The only time you'll be expected to share that again is if you have an opportunity to help somebody because of it. And then you should be expected. His, his counsel to me was you should be expected to share that. And, I, you know, I've had that happen. I, I think that it's safe to say that the worst things that happen in our life are very often the things that God allows us to use. They're very often the things that, that, that God will allow us. I, I sponsored a guy one time that I, uh, you could have knocked me over with a, with a feather. He moved from Wilson, North Carolina to Virginia, and, and he called me on the telephone and, and was talking to me, and he and exchanged niceties, and he told me a little bit about what was going on. And then he said, this conversation is going to get a whole lot sicker in a minute. And then he launched, and somehow, I, I, I don't know why I knew, but I knew exactly what he was getting ready to tell me. And it was the same stuff, that the same hatred that was involved in that other person's death and that same kind of craziness, and I was exactly right. What I was able to do was to share my experience with him. So, I mean, it is true. I mean, if it's true with our drinking that God allows us to serve others and help others and, and make peace with some of that, that that's how we get ours is by sharing our experience, strength, and hope with our drinking, then, it, you know, a, a, a principle that's valid in one area is valid in another. If an if a individual principle is true, then it's true collectively as well. So it's a powerful thing to be able to pass on my experience like that. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. I haven't felt useless in a long time. You know, sometimes I feel justified to defend my existence to myself. You know, and I really stop and think, you know, do, do all the drunks that I've talked to or does it have meaning or, you know, all the stuff that I've done. If I left out of here today, would it, would it make any difference? Um, but, you know, it's a, it, I, I don't think I've felt useless for a long time. I know exactly what my job in life is. I don't think that God's playing chess with me or, or any of those things. You know, I used to wonder. When thing, I can remember when I was drinking when stuff would happen. I, I can remember sort of figuratively shaking my fist at God and saying something like, you know I'm not very good and now this happens. It's sort of like that God had, sort of like I wanted to play softball that day and it rained. So with all the people in the universe, God made it rain because I wanted to play ball. I had a friend one time in AA who had an old car, one of those little Carmagias, and it got hit with a hailstorm. And he told me, he said, I don't think that would have happened if I hadn't intended to restore that car. <laughs> well, you know, a fairly self-centered kind of thought, isn't it? So, you know, I know exactly what my job in life is. My job is to stay sober and carry this message. And if I'll, be, if I'll do that to the best of my ability and stay involved, my, um, my sponsor in Omaha... Um, I've changed sponsors because I've moved for no other reason. But when my sponsor in Omaha always used to like to say that when he, he, he got sober in 1955, I always liked to say that if he could stay sober and active in Alcoholics Anonymous until he died, what he believed is is that it would be cleared up at that point, that it would be all even, that his, his work here would have been that, you know, he cleaned up 
and it came out even. And I don't know if that's true. I said that one time in Richmond, and after the meeting, a guy came up to me and said he needed to get that straight for me because what it said in the Bible was different. And I wouldn't argue that with anybody, and I don't even know if it's true, but what a great way to look at life, that if I can stay as a servant and stay connected to these principles, that it's all even when I leave here. What a great way to look at it, whether it's true or not. We will lose interest in selfish things, gain interest in our fellows. That's what we're doing here, isn't it? I mean, we're interested in each other. You don't have to be sober very long before you begin to get a little bit of interest in another person in the meeting. You know, I think about somebody else. It's one of the ways that we can mark when somebody's starting to get well. They're off-center a little bit. You know, they're thinking about somebody else. I always like to think, you know, if somebody's been here for a little while, a period of time, and it's still all about them, there's something wrong. Again, one of the things that Horace used to say all the time in Omaha, he tell all of us that he sponsored, and he was adamant about this. He said, look, if after a reasonable amount of time you're working with somebody and they won't help others, drop them because they've missed the entire thing of Alcoholics Anonymous and you're spending your time on somebody that hasn't got it. You need to go work with somebody who wants help because after a period of time, it's not about me. I have to learn the lesson that I get mine by doing for others. Self-seeking will slip away. You know, it's not just about what I can get now. It's about what I can do or it's about what I can bring. And again, that's a, that's a sizable difference from when I came here. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. It'd be impossible to practice the first nine steps of the way of life without that happening. And again, I think the healing power of Alcoholics Anonymous is I don't have to make any of these things happen. I just have to take the actions. I can't make them happen. I do the stuff that's in front of me to do that's outlined in this book. I do those experiences that have been outlined, this design for living, and these things happen automatically. Like I can't go out and make these promises happen. I can't make myself not feel self-pity. I just do the actions and these things move in on their own. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. I said that one. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. Fear of people has certainly left me. And the fear of economic insecurity doesn't say economic insecurity will leave us. It says fear of it will. You know, and life is not about money. It's not about things. I mean, I think over time I've had to learn that lesson over and over and over. You know, I've had to learn that I'm not my job. You know, I'm more than that. We were talking, my buddy and I were talking, we went on a walk, and I think part of the thing about Alcoholics Anonymous, I mean, part of what happens, everybody should have a certain amount of dignity coming to them just as a child of God. You know, when people come here, a guy I sobered up with always likes to say that, you know, when somebody comes to Alcoholics Anonymous, the only thing we know for sure is that they're hurting. I mean, this is not a place where you just get up and say, I think I'll go see how they're doing in AA and join that. You know, kind of like somebody in the penitentiary, if you ask them what they're doing here and they give you some kind of thing that's way off, you know, what I like to ask is, well, what do you do, just come in here to see how we're living in here? You know, it just doesn't make any sense, does it? So, you know, there's so many things to think about with that. that, that um, but somewhere along the line, fear of people, I mean, it does have to leave us, fear of economic insecurity. I'm not about economic insecurity. I mean, that's a part of life, but it's not the prime thing in life. Uh, you know, and... Uh, there's an old saying, I haven't heard it in a long time, but where I sobered up, they used to talk about that anything that you put in front of your sobriety, you will lose anyway. It will happen every time. See, I think where we get mixed up sometimes is I think we get dependent on AA meetings. And again, AA meetings are not AA. They're just one thing that we do in AA. My, I don't need to be at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous um, three times a day, seven days a week at my length of sobriety. What I need to do is be practicing AA principles and engaged in Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything's an AA meeting. If that's the case, I mean, I'm always in a, my home group happens to meet physically two times a week. 
but we're a group. That means we have a life outside of the meeting. We're a society of alcoholics in action. We carry the message to the Wake Medical Center. We do other things. We're a group of alcoholics in action. You know, we're having a meeting when we're talking on the coffee break. You know, I'm engaged uh, with another alcoholic. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. I'll tell you, that's happened to me time after time after time. I mean, I have had things happen that, I mean, they've just worked out. I did something that was really interesting. When I was sober, it was out of that experience, that 19-year uh, thing I went through that was so horrible. I wrote down on a piece of paper. I was sober 20 years. I wrote down on a piece of paper things that a list of things that had happened in the last 20 years that were impossible. I would recommend it because it's a very healing, telling experience with, first of all, of not drinking for one day at a time for 20 years. That's an impossibility. You know, I've always thought, I'm here today thinking I've been sober a long time. I've always felt like I've been sober a long time. I was in a meeting one time years ago, and they asked a guy, how long you've been sober? He said, man, a long time, 30 days. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. I have always thought I've been sober a long time. I mean, so, what did I do with it? Have I lost my glasses? I did? Oh, man. I got to get this thing stopped. Where's Cheryl? We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Very true. You know, when I, um, when I got, I've been sick for about a week. I never get sick. I haven't missed a day's work in over 20 years for being sick. I never get sick physically sick what i get is like once or twice a year i'll get to feeling puny and i'll power through it um with walks or i'll just you know get out in the fresh air and it'll go away but i you know i've been real weak for about a week monday night i went into a talk a long ways from um from where i live and tuesday night my home group met wednesday night i went to bed real early thursday night my group met plus i had to work all week and when i got here last night i was i just i was i was feeling um horrible i mean i just and i got through that talk but i i felt like i was losing my voice and jerry said to me this morning he said you've been up a long time haven't you he said i heard you practicing your voice you know it sounded like i didn't think i could talk i thought god i'm gonna now i'm down here i'm weak i'm sick i don't feel good now i'm gonna lose my voice but you know um what does that thing say it says we will suddenly realize that god is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves you know, I don't think I've ever had anything that I'm supposed to do in Alcoholics Anonymous or in life where I felt like I could do. You know, they, they've done a thing. They did a thing at the University of Nebraska at Omaha one time. that They did a study, and, it, and I think this has been replicated a number of places, that the single greatest fear in life, if you leave out the tragedies of life, is the fear of public speaking. Well, if you just take that and make it analogous to what I'm talking about now, none of us would ever give a talk if we wait till we weren't afraid to do it. Again, the genius of Alcoholics Anonymous is we take the action and we, and, and we find out that we can do it. It's been well said that God never sends you. He, you know, he never sends you out to do something that he doesn't have the power to sustain you to do. So you know, my job is simply to show up. I mean, my voice has held. Uh, I don't know if any of this has made any sense or not. <laughs> you know, but it, my voice has held and we've gotten through the day, and that's happened repeatedly time after time after time. I've suddenly realized that God is doing for me what I could do not do for myself. That, for me, that, there's many good things in life in addition to staying sober, nothing ever instead of. It's sort of like there's a lot of good things in life in addition to Alcoholics Anonymous, isn't it? We're a bit of a subculture here because we're anonymous and whatever. But the real thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is we're not supposed to hide out here, are we? 
We're supposed to take this thing into the world. We've got work to do. We've got to go to jobs. We've got families. We go to ball games. We do all kinds of stuff. So, you know, my job in life is to go forth and do all of that. And, and you know, it, it, it's foolish to think that somehow, um, you know, that if God wants me to do those things and I show up and take the action, that the, the necessary power isn't going to be there. If the power to stay sober can be given to an alcoholic in my description, then it must be possible for anything. So in closing, what I'd like to say is, is that, that the best reason to do those, to, to follow out the, the prescription of those first nine steps is, is like everything else in life. It's sort of like the reason God made sex fun. With the self-centered nature of, of human beings, he wouldn't have been able to keep us doing it if it was just for procreation. He had to make it fun. I mean, we'd have died out a long time ago if we were just doing it to reproduce. So, I mean, we do what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous because of what we want to get. You know, we do it because of the rewards. I've stayed active in Alcoholics Anonymous, extremely active, because I've gotten so much here. That's why I've learned how to live, and, and um, it's been a great, um, great time. I'm glad that my part of this day has been brought to a close, and um, I think it's closing time, and, and I'll look forward to seeing everybody at uh, dinner tonight. Thanks. Good morning. It's good to be here. I guess this is a survivor crowd. We're, uh, we're headed on the home stretch. This is, this is the, uh, the last run, and I guess we'll all go our separate ways and back to whatever it is we're going to do. It's been a um, great weekend for me. It's a, a good breakfast. I was listening to uh, a few lies at breakfast, and I suppose there was a, a modicum of truth thrown into some of that stuff, but it, sometimes it's hard to separate it, isn't it? You know, it's, um, I guess when a group of people... Um, get together at something like this and when you you know you get off and a bunch of guys talking or something at a breakfast it, it turns out it's about half spiritual and half nonsense <laughs> and uh, somehow all that comes together and and um we go forward having learned how to live a little bit better maybe uh what we're going to do this morning is finish up with uh with steps 10 and 11 and 12 and and um and we'll take off i um i too want to thank everybody for having had the opportunity to be here it's been a it's been a great weekend for me and I'm the beneficiary of this because what I really did to prepare for it, anything other than say my prayers. In fact, a guy a sponsor told me the other day, asked me what I'd done, and I said, "Well, I, you know, I, I'm reading in the big book in the 12 and 12, and and one of those things that don't really make you feel much better." He said, "Well, it is one of those things you really can't get ready for. You know, there's not a lot that you can do. I mean, it's, it'd be hard to to fool your way through it, but." I'm the beneficiary of it because what it did is it forced me to, to you know, to look into the literature a little bit more and to, and to kind of sharpen up and, and um, it always focuses you a little bit. You know, it's like sometimes I'll hear myself say something to a person and I'll say, I wonder how I know that or I wonder if I even really believe that. And so the things that make you uh, go inside a little bit are, are always good. So what we did yesterday, we, you know, we've, we've looked at, um, well, if you were here um, Friday night, you could say we talked a little bit about the first and second step and a little bit about some other stuff thrown in. Yesterday, we, we, we took a snapshot look at the history of Alcoholics Anonymous and steps one, two, and three. Get sober, get a little bit of hope, and, and hopefully get ourselves turned in, at least the beginning elements of that, to some kind of power. There's a little bit of destruction of self-centeredness and maybe a little bit of willingness and take a look at our lives with a, with a critical eye, made a searching and fearless moral inventory, which is the exact opposite, again, of the bar. It's been well said that all the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, all the 12 steps, like I had a, fr a friend of mine went to the doctor a while back, and this is a guy that's a little bit, again, he's a little over his fighting weight. And um, 
so that when he got done with his physical, the doctor said, I'm going to put you on a diet. He said, now you've got two choices. You can go out there and talk to the nurse, and she'll give you a step-by-step uh, ingredients on how to eat, or you can go home and start eating everything that you don't eat now and quit eating everything you do. It's your choice, whichever one you want to do. One's going to be cheaper than the other. You have to see the nurse. It's going to cost you more green. But uh, I think that all of 12 steps go contrary to the principles of, of, of how we were living before. And so what happens is, is we begin to turn ourselves into Alcoholics Anonymous and start to live one day at a time. It's a new way of life. It's a new day. And thank God for that. It'd be a fate worse than death to try to get sober. Can you imagine getting sober and staying the same way that we were? You know, that, I mean, that's a great deal of what I was running away from. It's not bad enough that just the active drinking progresses along with everything else, but the fear and the rage and the self-centeredness and the blaming and the isolation and everything that goes with that continues to progress as well. So it's got to be stopped somehow. And so that, that searching and fearless moral inventory, when we get those things down and begin to look at them. And yesterday we talked about the resentments, fear, and um, failed sex lives and any secrets that we might have, and then to take those to... to to, to admit those things to God, to ourselves, and to another human being. By the time that we've done that, we've come a considerable distance. And again, what I like to remember about that, and it's hopefully what I always have happen with somebody I'm sponsoring, what I hope happens is, is that at that point in their, in their recovery, they begin to see clearly that there's been a, a long distance traveled. That any alcoholic that's willing to go into a room with God and another human being and, and, and get straight with that and try to get it all out, that's a considerable distance, and certainly somebody who's you know interested in something different. And then the turning point, again, for me, was the sixth and seventh step. That's really, it's, it talks in our literature about we separate the men from the boys here. And if it was written today, it's, of course, it would say the, the women and the girls, too. But, it, I mean, what we're doing is is that it's a, it's a critical turning point. And for me, it was a place where I anchored down. And it was a beginning of mature sobriety, and I think it probably happens for different people, different places. The guy that's going to do this thing next year always talks about, but for him... His alcoholism really took effect. His recovery began with the four-step inventory. And, I, you know, those things are always true and they're always personal. But, you know, and I think my recovery was beginning and was flourishing and flowering with every step. But something happened with the sixth step in my life that was very similar to the first step. There was a surrender and there was an anchoring down and there was a movement. There was a taking of my place. There was, I was no longer being blown about by the forces. I mean, I, I became a... Um, I guess, a, 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 a beginning to be a recovered member of Alcoholics Anonymous. So in the sixth and seventh step, you know, my life is attacked again. I mean, I've got to begin to look at those things. I've got to be aware of them. I found out about them in inventory. And by this time in our sobriety, we're well aware of a lot of things that don't work very well. I'm also aware of things that, that um, I like to do that are not good. They go contrary. Some of that stuff is fun, isn't it? You know, that's what a guy said about the problem with his character defects is there was just too much character involved. You know, and, and I think that there's some truth in that. And then, you know, we, we hopefully had it left over from our fourth step where we're beginning elements of our eighth step list. Eighth step list. And, and my experience with that, too, is even if we do, more has happened between then. You know, more honesty has been brought about by more application of the steps in a little bit of time. So we get a list, and, and um, then we begin our amends. And at the bottom of step nine, um, I think one of the, one of the real, um, I guess, avenues or vehicles of Alcoholics Anonymous is to get to the bottom of step nine because that's where we're operating in the power right now. Kind of an advanced spiritual principle. But we have a friend that always likes to say that there is no past and there is no future. All there is is eternity and you're pulling it right now. 
And, and I, that should happen at the bottom of step nine. Now, I'm, you know, when it happens for me, that's, that is absolutely when I'm at my best, when I'm not present. I'm not aware of anything other than what I'm doing, and I'm just operating. So what happens at the bottom of step nine is I should be able to be on, you know, I'm, I'm very close to there myself. There's a couple things I'm still looking for, a couple people. But really, it's pretty well cleaned up. You know, I'm not running away from life anymore. I'm not afraid of who I'm going to see. I'm pretty current with today. It's, it's, it's really been, it's been cleaned up. This program has allowed me to make amends to people who aren't even living. It's allowed me to make amends to uh, people that I don't know where they're at. It's allowed all kinds of stuff. And I, I would want to say one thing I hope I emphasized yesterday. I personally don't know any more critical point to get the guidance of a sponsor than in the eighth and ninth step. I mean, I've, my, my own experience with that is, is my sponsors had me take stuff off of my list that I had on there to, that, that he didn't think that, that was right, and he's also had me put stuff on there that was not. I'll give you one quick war story. I don't even know if I can explain it right, but when I, um, I had a, uh, towards the end of my drinking, I had a married girlfriend one time, and I had her hidden out from the police and from her husband. And... Um, in fact, is we, we were I was the best man at a wedding, a buddy of mine's wedding, and I had the only pair of cowboy boots I ever had, and they turned up, talk like that. And I had a, I was the best man for this wedding, and I had holes in my jeans, and they were patched. And Mary Lou was the best woman, or whatever you call her. She's the one that was hidden out from her husband in the law. And um, the wedding went so well, we just went on the honeymoon with the people. Um, <laughs> And um, we were drinking. Mary Lou was writing bad checks. And our, uh, this, this was in Fremont, Nebraska. And we had, so the guy that got married said, let's go to Miami. Sounded good to me. So that we kept drinking and kept writing bad checks. And we, we weren't getting a lot of money. And uh, finally, we, you know, it's getting towards the evening. We figured, man, we don't have enough money to go to Miami. So we said, well, let's go to Denver. That's 500 miles. You know where we ended up? In Omaha, 30 miles away. <laughs> but anyway, when I... Uh, I had, um, you know, over the years, I'd went back to, to Fremont several times. Well, I'd never seen Mary Lou, and she eventually went back to her husband. And, and um, just one of them things, just a, you know, no way to explain that other than just alcoholism and, and, and the way we were living. But I thought I saw her one time in a store, and, and she was one of those people. It's kind of like the way Billy Walker attracted women in the bar. Mary Lou is just one of those women that made everybody turn their head. She had that kind of wicked look about her and, and um, that kind of thing that other women usually don't like. Well, anyway, I thought I saw her one time at Walmart when I was visiting. So when I, um, when I got sober, I mean, when I got divorced and I was doing some more men's work, this was in 94. Remember, I was explaining yesterday about that 19 and a half year thing and I was working with my sponsor and cleaning up a whole bunch of old stuff. I got to thinking, man, I need to make amends to old Mary Lou. <laughs> and uh, so I, I ran it past my sponsor and he I mean, you guys know Keith, and he listened. He said, well, he said, yeah, he said, ain't no doubt now. He said, you owe Mary Lou some amends, but he said, I really think you ought to probably handle that through the mail. <laughs> and uh, he said, and it wouldn't be a bad idea to let me read it <laughs> before you send it. And I think that's exactly right. That's kind of a silly, goofy little story, but I mean, there's truth in that. And, and uh, there wasn't any reason for me to go see Mary Lou face to face. And I don't think anything good could have come out of that. So anyway, we've arrived at the 10th step, and what we're going to do this morning is we're going to shoot through 10, 11, and 12, and, and um, it used to be once in a while, I haven't heard this term in a long time, but people used to periodically refer to the 10th and 11th step as the maintenance steps. I would not like to use that term. I mean, there, remember we started out, we, I said that I, I believed, I'm not an expert on the steps in any stretch of the way. If I'm an expert on anything about the steps, I'm an expert on one thing, 
in my effort to apply them. I have diligently tried to practice and apply the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous to my life and all my affairs over a protracted period of time, and sometimes with great success, and sometimes with uh, um, mediocre success, and sometimes that you couldn't tell it was success, except that I was not drinking and I was trying to put one foot in front of the other. And what I found is, is that steps work in fair weather or foul. I mean, the, that the steps always work, and the steps are at work when I don't believe that they are. It's like when I was choked off from God during that eight year and 19 and a half year thing. I mean, certainly the grace of God was moving forward in my life, no matter how dark it was and how long that night was. I mean, things were moving. And I guess the best way to describe that, just like anything else, is that when the, when the path cleared, things got better for me than they ever had. One of the things that happened out of both of those experiences is life got much easier. You know, I don't think that the spiritual life is supposed to be an uphill battle every day. You know, I certainly am not interested in living in fear of the first drink. I'm not interested in living in anger or fear or any of those things. I had enough of that to last me several lifetimes with, with, uh, with alcoholism. So I would personally be interested in everything that the program has to offer. And again, just maybe a little bit of a, of, a, of a roundup on what we've talked about this weekend. Remember that Alcoholics Anonymous is made up of a series of a great many parts of a great whole. And at the pinnacle of that, of course, is the 12 steps. And then we've got sponsorship, you know, trying to be of service to others in any way that we can. The literature of Alcoholics Anonymous, we've got meetings. I personally always like to remember that, that the meetings are not AA. They're just one thing that we do, that AA is a way of life. But we've got a lot of things come together that if all those jets are in place at one time, what it does is it makes it impossible for us to drink alcohol. It, I mean, it will not happen. So you'll run into people today that, that in fact, is a, a guy was just telling me a while back that he ran into a guy that was talking about returning to drink, and he said, well, you know it's going to happen. And he said, no, I don't know what's going to happen. He said, it's an aberration. It will not happen if you do these things, if we do, if, if we do this. Otherwise, again, what we would have here would be a crapshoot. People would bail out at all, all stages of this. And, and problems, again, don't have much to do with drinking. I believe that they did. I believe that anybody that, that was up against what I was would be going under when they came here. And um, just not true. So um, the 10 steps have continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong. Set right any new mistakes as we go along. The big book says that we continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. You know, one of the things that that says, I think, is that there's still plenty that's still wrong and stuff is still going to continue to go wrong. And there's all kinds of stuff in that book that talks about um, what's happened to us by the time that we get to the 10th step. It says that we've entered the world of the spirit. It says that we've ceased fighting anything, even alcohol. That would include ourselves. You know, and I, I have to check up on a daily basis. Am I still fighting the world? I mean, why won't I let a guy in in traffic? You know, a simple thing like that. You know, why am I still defiant? You know, I heard a guy say one time, and I, boy, I tell you, I love this when I heard him say this. This guy was speaking at a, at a large AA thing, and he said that the weekend before he had been up in Illinois speaking at a, at a, at a large roundup, and he said it happened to be held at the University of Illinois in the campus, and he said he was speaking in a cafeteria with a couple thousand people in there, and he said that there was a great big sign along the wall. He said there was hundreds and hundreds of coffee cups. And he said there was a great big sign over those coffee cups that said, under no circumstances will these coffee cups be removed from this dining room. He said, I'm here to tell you I have two of those coffee cups in my kitchen <laughs> today. You know, and I understood that exactly. You know, I was the kind of guy, you know, like when I, when I was smoking, if you see a sign about, you know, no smoking or put your, you know, we had them in the military about, you know, make sure that you use the butt cans and all that. I would have never even given any thought to putting out one on the floor until I saw that sign. 
So, I mean, what are those things? And sometimes they're harmless little things. You know, another thing that the, the 12 and 12 begins to talk about is that, you know, some stuff is more glaring that we see it. But by now, we're getting down to subtler things, too. You know, and we begin to think about what is our motive. It talks about do we criticize somebody? Are we really trying to harm them? And our tendency to put a good motive on top of a bad one. You know, that we really want somebody to take it in the shorts, but we give a good motive for doing that. And so all of those things, I think, begin to come in play. There's a considerable distance then traveled again. It talks about that the code of Alcoholics Anonymous in step 10, it says the code is love and tolerance. You know, and it gives some good stuff to check up in. Am I loving and tolerant of all people? Am I loving and tolerant of people that I don't like? And what about that thing where it talked about, um, I told you yesterday that, that I was probably sober 10 years before I really began to understand, before I think I heard, heard it correctly about that um, the practice of principles over personality means that I put principles over my personality, not over yours. You know, the inference in that is, is that you're fine. The problem was with me. And it talks about, um, I think one of our most advanced spiritual principles is in, um, written in the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions book, if I can find it in here. Um, this is a killer. I don't know many people in AA that, that um, this is in the 10th step. It says it's a spiritual axiom that every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, there is something wrong with us. Can you imagine filtering that one in the bar? You know, I mean, that, that's a tough one there, isn't it? That no matter what happens, I mean, what's happened now in the program, and that's, again, that's why I think that the road begins to narrow specifically after the fifth step. It'd be hard to do an inventory, a good fourth and fifth step, without the involvement of other people in it. And we talked about that yesterday. As a listener, I need to know what it is that's going on. So, I mean, when we, you know, when we talk about things, and even on the, the mechanical part of the fourth step with the chart, it talks about, you know, I resent so-and-so because. So, you know, there has to be some understanding of why I do that, and then it talks about what it affects. Well, all that's over with now. I think one of the reasons that the program gets a lot more difficult is the road narrows after that. Doesn't matter what anybody else does. Doesn't matter at all. That's especially, I think, why I, I said yesterday that, for me, the most difficult amends that I've had to make are when I feel like that there's been something done to me. If I've done all the damage, if I'm the one that's all at fault, then it seems like to me those amends have been much more easy to make. I've been much more willing. Where it becomes difficult, again, is where I think there's been spiritual warfare and where I think I've been harmed. So now what's happened is, is we've shifted over and the focus is clearly on me. It says it's axiomatic that it doesn't matter what other people do, have done. That's a tough one. Man, these things are filthy. I don't even think these are mine. <laughs> they aren't. Who left these up here? <laughs> you know, I've never. This is true. I was beating a little bit on lawyers yesterday. You know, I didn't even know Bruce was a lawyer, but I have never done well with lawyers. You know, he told me last night that he was a lawyer, and I... I wasn't going to say this, but after rigging me up with those bad glasses, he deserves this. <laughs> Do you know, um, Benjamin Franklin made a quote one time, and you know what that was? He said that every so often God pulls off a miracle, there's an honest lawyer born. <laughs> but it's no wonder I don't know what I'm doing up here, I can't see anything. That's much better. I knew these things were dirty, but I didn't think they were that bad. Good God Almighty. Okay. 
That's funny, isn't it? It's also a good place not to take ourselves so seriously. You know, that's another thing that, that, um, that I like to remember is, is that progress is rapid when we're able to laugh at ourselves. It really is. And there's a lot to laugh about because there's a lot that's funny. I mean, it's a great healing thing that when we're able to laugh at ourselves and not take ourselves so seriously. The program is deadly earnestness and our mission is in deadly earnestness to stay sober and practice these principles. And we found out yesterday that that's not an end in itself. Our job is to be of maximum service to God and our fellows. While it is true that we're a bit of, bit of a subculture, our job is to go out into the world that we rejected and rejected us and to try to be of service. And, and um, It's a wonderful thing by the time that we get to the 10th step to be able to look at things like this that are so advanced. I guess this is one reason for me it becomes clear that, that, there, that the steps go forever. I mean, they, the steps are universal and absolutely go forever and can be plumbed. There's no limit to the spiritual life because that's something that's never going to become uh, natural for me, that spiritual axiom that it says that every time I'm disturbed, there's something wrong with me. Because when, in my case, when, I'm, when I have a problem, it's always somebody else's fault. <laughs> it goes on to say, it says, if somebody hurts us and we are sore, we are in the wrong also. Declarative statement. doesn't say it sometimes or anything. It just says we are on the wrong also. But are there no exceptions to this rule? That's asked as a question. Then it says, what about our justifiable anger? If somebody cheats us, aren't we entitled to be mad? That's a question. Can't we be properly angry with self-righteous folks? Another question. For us of AA, these are dangerous exceptions. Another declarative statement. We have found that justified anger ought to be left to those better qualified to handle it. And it goes on again and starts talking about some stuff back down into the fourth step where it begins to talk about resentments and says that few people have been more victimized by resentments than have alcoholics. And I think I'm more inclined to begin to try to practice these perfect spiritual principles that when I see that I'm always going to be the beneficiary or I'm always going to be the one that suffers. There's no way now. One of the things I've learned, there's no way for me to hurt somebody else without being hurt myself. There's no way for me to do the wrong thing and end up with the right thing. There's no way. I, one of the things I've learned, I, you know, I spent years thinking that if, when I was drinking that I don't know if I actually believed this stuff or I was just that far off or if, because, I mean, I, I think I, I was certainly raised different. But again, alcoholism comes in and blasts all of that stuff out. But I spent years thinking, for example, if I was sleeping with somebody's wife or if I took something that didn't belong to me or any of those things, that there was no penalty unless I was caught. I don't believe that anymore. I believe that if I tell a lie, there's going to be a breakdown for that, whether you find out about it or not. And so what I think, you know, what that says is that there's no free lunches. He who bites shall be bitten. You know, whatever you send out has to come back. And that's the good news and the bad news because it's the good news that like in the, when the, with, with the trying to carry these principles. You know, all my job is is to try to carry them. I'm the beneficiary of that. I'm not responsible for the outcome. My job is to show up and take the correct action. It's not if I'm powerless over my own alcoholism, certainly I'm powerless over other people's. But it's, it's a good rule and it's a good, um, it's a good uh, maybe not rule is not the right word, it's a good principle to live by goes on to talk about all kinds of stuff. One of the things that Bill Wilson was big on was self-restraint. He had a habit of writing letters to people that he, uh, you know, he, he, one of the things that Bill left for us was that he, he carried on great personal correspondence and he wrote letters and he, one of the things that he seemed to have an ability to do was keep things around principle. He talked about when we're criticized that our first job is to look and see if there's any truth in what we're, what we're, what's being said about us. 
I had a guy I used to work with one time was a psychologist, and he said, if you really want to know how you're doing in life, he said, it's always interesting to know. He said, while a bit painful, it's interesting to know what people who don't like you are saying about you. Because he said, it's a very telling thing. But Bill seemed to have an ability when he wrote letters to people, even when he was under attack, he kept it on principle. You know, he, he was able to rise above the personal criticism. Now, he had other problems just like any of us, but that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful quality. He practiced self-restraint through letter writing. His, he, one of the things that he did a lot with resentments is, is he wrote letters to people that he, that he called steamy. And he said, what he say? It's in, I think it's in As Bill Sees It, if I'm not mistaken, where he talks about it's a great safety valve because you can throw them away. You know, it's a good idea as long as you don't do it. So, I mean, it's not my job necessarily in life to straighten people out. It's my job to keep the focus on me. A lot of stuff in here. It says disagreeable or unexpected problems are not the only ones that call for self-control. We must be quite as careful when we begin to achieve some measure of importance and material success. For no people have ever loved personal triumphs more than we have loved them. Lots of good stuff in there. And... and um, Here's another one. It says, courtesy, kindness, and justice, and love are the key notes by which we may come into harmony with practically anybody. When in doubt, we can also pause, say, not my will, but thine be done. And we can often ask ourselves, am I doing to others as I would have them do to me today? So I think the tenth step has its probably its major implications in what's going on right now. Probably, you know, it says in there too, and it says in our literature that, that long-standing problems are probably dealt with another way. But inventory is so heavy in Alcoholics Anonymous because uh, we haven't developed the habit of doing it. The spiritually minded have always known that, that, that self-criticism and, and, and continued checkup are part of the spiritual life. So it's important for me to take a look at every day what's going on. And at the end of the day, I can take a look. I can look and see how I've done that day. And, you know, I, one of the things that I like to do is, is I like to be aware of stuff that I've tried to do that hasn't worked out. You know, because it keeps me, or if somebody has really tried to help me, like we were traveling one time and, and um, my sponsor's sponsor, we were looking for an AA meeting, we were in the car, and, he, and uh, he's always late. And, we, you know, we, we didn't know where we were going very well, and so we, we stopped him to get directions for this guy, and this guy, first he tried to find it in a, in a book he had in his truck. He had a panel truck, and he was um, a painter or a plumber or something. So he tried to find it in there, and he said, no, I, it's not in here. So he, he said, hang on here, stay right here. And he took off running about a half a block down to this building to get another book to try to find this address. And my sponsor said something. He said, I'll be well aware of that tonight when I do my inventory. He said, I like to think about those kind of things and be aware of that because with all the stuff that's going on that's not good, I like to be aware of acts of kindness and things that people do and all of those kind of things. There are so many things that take the edge off, and there's so, much, so many ways for me to guard against a retreat into bitterness or, you know, you listen to the news and get depressed. You know, we've got, you know, so many of our, uh, you know, there's been so much um, uh, lack of confidence in leadership. And, and uh, um, a friend of mine told me a few years ago, he said, it's a bad thing. You know, when we, we have television shows where um, they'll have like the leaders, like the district attorney or whatever is on the take or that kind of stuff. It's a bad sign. That stuff is always in the paper. And there's, I suppose, down through history, there's always been plenty of, uh, and certainly the way I've lived, you know, that's, it's much more common, it's much more uh, natural for me to think of being dishonest, that sort of thing, or to think to the bad, or to think bad about people. So it's a good way for me to check up on not only my actions, but my thoughts. And again, I, I, it's much easier to do the right thing than it is necessarily to think the right thing. The genius of Alcoholics Anonymous is, is we take the correct action, 
and our, and our thinking begins to change, the way we feel begins to change. And so what I need to do is be sure that I'm doing the right thing on a daily basis. Um, one other thing before we move on with that. On page 85 in the big book, there's a, um, you know, you could almost switch steps 10 and 11 in the big book as far as the instructions on which step that you're working with. You really could. Every day is a day we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will might not be done. Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. Here's something, too, that's, that's interesting that talks about uh, We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. Much has already been said about receiving strength, inspiration, and direction from him who has all knowledge and power. If we have carefully followed directions, we have begun to sense the flow of his spirit into us. To some extent, we have become God-conscious. We have begun to develop this vital sixth sense. But we must go further, and that means more action. So again, there's a, been a, a far move. You know, if, if we've entered the world of the spirit, that's a far distance from Bill's bar, isn't it? I mean, that's a far distance from, from the life I was living when I was drinking, when I'm totally self-obsessed. And, and, and so now I'm interested in other things and other people, and I'm interested in how I live my life. I'm interested in spiritual principles, not just how I feel. I'm interested in doing the right thing, whether it feels good or not. Sometimes it's necessary. To, I mean, it, it, sometimes it's, it would be awfully easy to say yes when no is the right answer or the other way around. So now I'm interested in doing right. I guess one of the things that happens with a shift in the program, you know, I became willing to do whatever it is to be able to drink and for the short term, whatever. I was willing to pay any penalty for that. Now we've shifted and sometimes I'm willing to do the right thing for no other reason than I know it's right and wait for the, for the, the reward of that to, pay up, to come around. You know, it, it would have been nice to look old Mary Lou up. You know. Sometimes I still think about it, to tell you the <laughs> truth. But, I mean, it just isn't workable, is it? You know, I mean, the spiritual life is not always easy, but it's always the spiritual life, and it's always the responsible way to go. I love the, um, the lead-in to Step 11 in the big book. There's a short thing, and it really cuts to the chase on this. And, I, you know, I've talked a lot this weekend about how grabbing Alcoholics Anonymous literature is and what bold and stark statements how it writes. It cuts right to the chase on Step 11. Step 11 says, uh, sought through prayer and meditation, to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Now, those are short, um, couple, three little sentences there, but I mean, that, that's, that's, a, that's a, uh, orders for a lifetime, isn't it? You know, that's another step that will go forever. This short little paragraph in the big book says, Step 11 suggests prayer and meditation. We shouldn't be shy on this matter. Better men than we are using it constantly. It, we, it works if we have the proper attitude and work at it. It would be easy to be vague about this matter, yet we believe we can make some definite and valuable suggestions. One of the things for me, when I first heard Step 11 talked about in Alcoholics Anonymous, it sounded so far removed from anything that I could ever do or anything that I could ever get anything out of that, that it, 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 it was a while before I could begin to understand that. And I certainly heard all of that stuff. I think that, that, that um, we all hear, I heard that you know, prayer is talking to God and meditation is listening to God. And, and I think that the most important thing I know about God's will for me is Alcoholics Anonymous. I know that it's God's will for me not to drink. I don't know of anybody from what I've shared with you this weekend that it would have their will be that I drank. And certainly a loving presence. I mean, they might get hit just in the fallout. 
of it. So even an enemy shouldn't want me to drink, you know, let alone a loving force. But it took me a long time to get much more uh, past that than that. that, that um, so, I, I mean, I've been aware of the fact that, that ever since I've come to understand a little bit more about God and got past some of my confusion and anger at God in my early go, and I've been aware of the fact that God's will for me is to not drink. But if I was going to get any real well-being out of that, it needed to go further than that. So I, I think that the step, you know, step 11 is intensely practical. And I like, to, I like to keep it very practical. I think part of what we're doing here today fits in well with step 11. I think any time that we talk with each other, I think any time that we think about other people, any time that we're trying to do anything for anybody else fits well into that. You know, if I want to know what God's will is, all I have to do is look at my fellows and, and stop thinking about myself. So what I like to do, there's, there's some specific things I do with that, but I think that, you know, like going to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, it certainly fits within the, 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 the 11th step. I think sitting and listening is a form of meditation. If I sit and listen in a speaker's meeting. In fact is, I've about got to the place, I love speaker meetings. I've heard alcoholics, seemingly self-respecting alcoholics, say that they didn't like to go to speaker meetings because they, they already knew how to drink. I mean, there's got to be something wrong with a statement like that. I mean, that's where we sit and where we're in concert with each other. I mean, there's much more going on there than just identification. You know, if I sit in a speaker's meeting, I listen to how I might be helped by that speaker, how we might have shared experience. I hear how I might speak with, uh, I'm a, how I might help that person. I mean, there's so many things that go on in that and the shared purpose, but I think to sit and listen to another speaker in Alcoholics Anonymous is probably AA in its most distilled down form. You know, I don't have to do anything in that. I just sit in there and listen and to participate in another person's life. I, I love speaker meetings and, and um, um, I think that I've been well served by them. I, in fact, is I think it's a bad thing that they seem to be getting fewer and fewer. There's places in this country, I understand, that don't even have speaker meetings, and there's a, a proliferation of open discussion meetings, which, uh, again, I think just make you goofy. Uh, 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 good God. Uh, but I think that, that so speaker meetings is a form of meditation, and, and um, the instructions in the Step 11 book are very concrete, and in, uh, in um, the big book are very concrete. If you look at, um, it gives us some very uh, specific things to do. This is talking about at the, at when we retire at night. When we retire at night, we constructively review our day. And it gives us very specific things to ask. If, we wanna, if you want to learn how to move into the 11th step, I mean, there's, a, there's a, a blueprint of instruction right here. And I believe that this is a good thing to do and to, to return to, to start out with and to return to. It's a good lead-in, but it goes much, much faster than that. Today, I certainly understand prayer and meditation in a much more, um, in a deeper and richer way than I did when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. When we retire at night, we constructively review our day. Were we resentful? Well, there again, I mean, that's almost like inventory, isn't it? When you look at the instructions in, in, the, in the big book for the 10th and the 11th step, you could really switch them if you wanted to. You could say one was step 10 and the other one was step 11. So it would be very difficult sometimes to know what you're doing at what time. I think that's why it says that we practice these principles in all our affairs. It doesn't matter much. Once we've done the steps in order, once we've had the experience, once we've cleaned up our past as best we can, what we've done then is we've entered the world of the spirit. So it doesn't matter exactly what I'm doing. I mean, again, it's not a, um, uh, it's not a test. It's a way of life. So I asked that question, were I resentful? Were we resentful? Selfish, another challenging question. We're right back to where we were with step three. Was I dishonest or afraid? 
Those are questions that would be good to ask at any time, wouldn't it? That work as a spot check inventory, did it work at the end of the day? Do we owe an apology? You know, is there anything that's happened that day? Because all of this stuff is designed to be, I mean, we're not talking about long-standing stuff now. If we are, something's wrong with our spiritual condition, isn't it? If we're down here looking at stuff that should have been cleaned up a long time ago, then I think that there's something wrong. We probably have some more practice to do with our steps. We probably need to get back and get current and get cleaned up with the past so that we can get kicked into the power right now. Do we owe an apology? Have we kept something to ourselves which should be discussed with another person at once? All these are questions. Were we kind and loving toward all? You know, I think it says something in the 12 and 12 about do I, do I have the same faith in, in um, uh, something like a twisted newcomer as I have in members of my group or something. That's not just right, but I mean, am I, do I treat all people that way? I mean, do I treat all people loving and kind or do I pick and choose who I'm nice to? Um, good questions to ask for any of us. What could we have done better? Were we thinking of ourselves most of the time? One of the things is, is that, you know, you, um, if, if, you, if you do this 11-step um, thing at night, it's a wonderful guide into humility because you can see how far that you've come very often. The mere fact, I think, that I'm asking myself these kind of questions is indicative of the progress I've made. The mere fact that I'm interested in this kind of thing shows that I've come a long way. You know, it, just the, if you just look at the vocabulary of Alcoholics Anonymous, I mean, I didn't hear much about anonymity when I was drinking beer on a country road. You know, the whole, the whole vocabulary has shifted here. We, were, we learn words like tolerance and humility and thinking of others. Were we thinking of ourselves most of the time? Or we, were we thinking of what we could do for others, of what we could pack into the stream of life? Those are tough questions, aren't they? You know, all they are is words streamed together, but they're very difficult questions. And again, they point out that says, you know, most of the time I fall far short of perfection, fall short, fall short far of what I could have done that day. We must be careful not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness to others. So it tells us again what to do and what not to do, doesn't it? After making our review, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. I think one of the, uh, one of the elements of the 11th step, one of the uh, destinations maybe, one of the things that I'm trying to gain is quiet. What I'm trying to do is get slowed down. One of the things when I actually, I, I, want just, uh, I guess a, an observation I've made is that when people talk about meditation, they're talking about everything in the world from listening in meetings, from reading their daily reading to to all kinds of stuff. To uh, We were talking at breakfast. One of our guys says he's a, uh, is a cook at a place where there's 150 women that do nothing but meditate. Well, I mean, the meditation that they practice is certainly different than what you're, you know, than sitting down and, and having a reading with your coffee, isn't it? So, I mean, meditation means all different kind of things to all different kind of people. And one of the things, when I, I, I've always had trouble with a racing mind. And when I was first, you know, I'd sit down to try to pray. I'd even get on my knees and end up being lustful. You know, and it takes, it takes time to get all this stuff cleared out. So what I started doing a few years ago is what I do is I sit quietly in a chair with my feet straight up, and I do it for a half hour at a time, and I do nothing. If somebody asked me what I was trying to do, the way I would describe it is, is I'm trying to have the experience of doing nothing. I ain't doing anything. We have a friend, again, the way he describes it is, is let things just pass on through your mind. 
because my mind is so racing. I mean, that's why I can't keep anything. That's why my mind jumps around so much up here. I'll be talking about one thing and thinking about another, a racing mind. And if you ever want to prove that, is to sit down and try to meditate and how, your, how my mind would start misfiring and rocket fire and think about other things. But what I found in doing that is it dies. It stops. How my mind would race like that when I first started learning how to meditate. Well, over the years, that's died its own death. I generally don't have any trouble making 30 minutes. I mean, what I do is just kind of go away now. And I don't try to think about it. It gives us instructions in Step 11. In the 12 and 12, it gives us the prayer of St. Francis and says this is our first flyer into... Uh, and that, I think that's a wonderful vehicle. We might even talk about it here for a minute in a second. But I think what I've done, and it's been a great help for me. Over the years, I've had, uh, off and on, I've had pain in my neck and shoulders. And I've tried, to, I went to a chiropractor twice. My sponsors had wonderful luck with a chiropractor, and I have other friends of mine that have. And, and uh, all it's ever done for me is it's been a long, protracted, and expensive. And a uh, chiropractor wrote me a letter one time after I quit. I've tried it twice, and it's never, um, didn't help at all didn't help at all. In fact, is I went to a chiropractor for a while in North Carolina, and, and um, he wrote, after I quit, he wrote me a letter saying it's usually um, a mistake for people to quit chiropractic and that he would certainly like to continue to treat me. Well, I, he wrote me a nice letter, and plus I liked the guy, so I wrote him a nice letter back, and I said, well, I don't know if it's a mistake or not. I said, I've, I've, I've went twice. I said it was long, drawn out, and expensive, and I said the only thing I know for sure is under your care I got worse. So, um, but a chiropractor on his x-rays has me almost dead with scar tissue. He said from in, there's been so many car wrecks and, and beatings and stuff that what happened is he said that there's all kinds of scar tissue in there that's dead and the blood won't go through it, so it hurts in the back of the neck and shoulders and everything. Well, I got a buddy of mine that's an orthopedist, good guy. He's like an old country philosopher, recovered guy, so he took... ...x-rays of me and... And uh, Tom was too much of a gentleman to say the chiropractor was lying. And he's, he's in there with his white coat and his little... ...took some x-rays of me, and, and uh, Tom was too much of a gentleman to say the chiropractor was lying. And he's, he's in there with his white coat and his little stick that he points at stuff, and he's pointing at this x-ray, and he said... He shows me this x-ray, and it's all clear. And he said, Steve, I don't know what he's looking at, the chiropractor, because it's altogether different on the x-ray that the orthopedist took. Well, I don't, know who's, I don't know anything about all of that. All I know is that periodically my neck hurts. And a lot of times I'm not aware of it if it doesn't. But somehow I think I keep that alive through tension. You know, I think that that's where the tension in my body goes. And it goes all kinds of places for other people. But the best thing that I've ever found for that in my life and the most healing has ever been is just that simple meditation. I think it's good for me. My life is extremely busy. I mean, I've got a, uh, I've got a real active AA life. I've got a, I'm married to a wonderful woman. Best situation I've ever had. Best thing that's ever happened to me besides Alcoholics Anonymous is the woman I'm married to. I mean, I'm involved with my grown children. I've got a job that's, uh, that, that's demanding. And after I moved, I've, I'm like 55 miles from where I work, so I've got to drive there and back every day. I mean, I'm busy, and I don't know anybody that's not busy. I mean, we're all busy. We live busy lives. The information age isn't all that good a deal sometimes, is it? It depends on whether it's, it, you know, it's like a lot of other stuff. It's both poison and blessing. I mean, all kinds. But we're busy. I don't know anybody that isn't. I'm not, you know, it's just, it's just the, the nature of the beast. But I don't know anything that's better that slow me down is just to put my feet up and go away, to quiet my mind. 
you know, to settle in. I think a lot of stuff gets worked out there. One of the great questions of life, if it is true, said yesterday that Bill Wilson said that the alcoholic more than most seemed to want to know what it's all about. And I think that that's been true in my case. I think it's always been true. I've always had a lot of questions. And I think when I just get quiet and I just let stuff settle in, then answers can come. It talks about in um, Alcoholics Anonymous literature, one of the things Bill Wilson said is that we do seem to get guidance for our lives to about the same extent that we quit demanding it. One of the things for me is has been good is there's no demand, there's no um, urgency in meditation. There's just a slowing down. You know, I want to know more about what God's will is. I mean, certainly one of the great questions of life is what's God want me to do with my life? Well, I think for me that's been answered. You know, to, 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 to be homeless and not have any sense of belonging was a horrible thing. And, that's a, and I certainly never want to forget that because I'm afraid I'd be forced to relive it. But to know what my purpose in life is now, to know that my purpose is to stay sober and carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, and there's been great reward come out of that, then there must certainly be worth, great worth in knowing more of what God's will is for me. So that, that shows up for me when I don't try to choke it out or demand it. You know, sometimes I'll ask questions of God or I'll just hang out with God. My sponsor's big on just saying, spending time with God. For no other reason. You know, not wanting anything. I mean, the gift is already here. So I think it's been good for me just to quiet my mind down and, and to settle in a little bit. Also, uh, it gives us instructions on how to move forward into the day. What to do. In thinking about our day, we may face indecision. We may not be able to determine which course to take. Here we ask God for inspiration and intuitive thought. We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. We're often surprised how the right answers come after we have tried this for a while. Now, that's a novel approach, isn't it? That's almost like self-support. You know, that had to be a novel approach, didn't it? Getting alcoholics to pay their own way. You know, that we pay our own way. And that's, a, that's not only a good concept or a good principle in, in alcoholics. And honestly, it's just a good principle in life, isn't it? Well, it's certainly a novel approach for us that when we're in front of a problem, not to struggle. Again, I don't know many problems that I haven't made worse by working on them, by trying to make something better. By the time I get done strangling it, it might not have been that big of a problem when I started, but it certainly is when I'm done. So just to believe if I pull my energy, I'd like if a resentment. If there's nothing attached to it, the resentment dies its own death, doesn't it? You know, if I don't have anything in there, it just goes away on its own. So, the, you know, one of the great things of life, one of the great things you have to learn is, is the ability of being quiet, the ability to do nothing. You know, the ability just to let things happen. I had, you know, I told you about that recovered priest that heard my fifth, uh, first fifth step. I told you what a grandfatherly old gentleman was and how important he was. And it was a short interaction between him and I. And, and um, I moved on and I moved to another town. And, and um, but I never forgot one of the things he told me that he shared with me that day we did an inventory. He said, you know, and he was the pastor of a giant uh, Catholic cathedral. He said that, and it makes excellent sense to me, he said, you know, one of the things I found out, he said, I never could have been the pastor here, even if I'd have never been, a, even if it had not been for my drinking, without, except for what I learned in AA. And he said, because if it wouldn't have been for what I've learned in AA, I would have thought I had to do too much here. And he said, what I found out I have to do here is come down here every day and show up and kind of allow life to happen. Well, I mean, that's not a prescription to be irresponsible. I mean, that was a man who understood the spiritual life. His job was to get out of the way, quiet down, and allow God to do, the, do his work and to be a vehicle for that, to be in partnership with that. So there's, um, if anybody's interested in that, on page um, 
it's on page 85, 86, in there, 87, it talks about that and um, goes through there and tells us exactly what to do and how to do it. Here's another thing that's talking about the same stuff. It says, when we go through our day, we pause, pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. We constantly remind ourselves we are no longer running this show, humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, thy will be done. We are then in much less ang uh, danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. I love this line. I love this because I'm certainly, I mean, I live the busy life and I have a lot going on. And, and um, here's where it tells me some of the payoff of this. It says, we become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange lives to suit ourselves. You know, I don't know of anything for me more draining than being mad or being scared. You know, it's the difference between night and day. I don't know anything that saps my strength more. What this tells me, as long as I'm doing God's work, the energy is going to be provided. You know, if I get tired, physically tired from just, you know, doing too much, I go to sleep and come right back up. I've got my strength again. If I'm drained down because of fear or anger, that's a whole other thing. That's a whole other feeling. Feels different, sleep different, and everything else. There's always been something about that, you know, how our body is connected and all that. I've always had, I, you know, when I'm, after a weekend, like on Sunday night, my body feels different knowing I'm headed back to work in the morning than it has over the weekend. It's hard to fool ourselves, isn't it? We do a good job of it. I mean, we work hard at it, but it, but, um, it doesn't work. Okay, we need to, um, we need to head into step 12 and, and um, take our next two hours on that. Again, raw power and talking about step 12. It says, practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. The, um, you know, the 12th step says um, in its entirety, let me read it to make sure I don't screw this up. Um, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. I had a lady tell me one time that the most important word in the 12th step was the word the. And um, I know that that was just her take on it, but I, you know, I, I would have guessed almost any word in there, and I suspect anybody else would. And I asked the question, I said, why is the word the? the most important word. And this lady was an English teacher, and she said, well, because the word the explains where a spiritual awakening comes from. It tells that a spiritual awakening is the result of the first 11 steps. So again, it's not about effort. It's about just doing what the book Alcoholics Anonymous says. It says, the, the step literally says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So what that means is, if I want to have a spiritual awakening, I do the first 11 steps as a way of life, the spiritual awakening moves in on its own. It can't not move in. It shows up on its own. It's like the, the 12 promises we were talking about last night at the bottom of step nine. For me to go out and search for those things or to try to make those things happen is a whole other thing. It's probably not going to happen, is it? You ever heard that story about the, the guy that searched for happiness? And I think the, the thing I read, it's probably a lot of these stories, said he searched for happiness for 16 years. And he sat down one day on a block and said, and he just gave up. And he said that happiness can't be found. It's impossible and I, I'm, I'm done. And he woke up the next day happy. Well, we know what he'd done is he'd surrendered, hadn't he? But again, you'd have to ask, what, what part did the first 16 years play in that? Kind of like our drinking, isn't it? 
There's no gift of sobriety without, you know, the devastation of the illness of alcoholism. So I think that ours is much more a thing of, it's kind of like trying to get through a wall. If there was a fire on the other side of that wall, I could run all day long at that wall and never be able to blast my way through it. But in turn, I could walk right through that door. I could open it. I could turn the handle and go right through. So it's a matter, I think, of doing less, of, of but doing what it is that we do less correctly, allowing things to happen, allowing things to move. And I'm certainly, uh, I'm, uh, I've had enough um, spiritual movement in my life to be extremely interested in it. I love that quote in the back of the big book that talks about there's a, a bar against all proof or all information and whatever it is. It's contempt prior to investigation. And I've certainly had my share of that. You know, it, when I really look at my trouble in life uh, prior to Alcoholics Anonymous and since Alcoholics Anonymous, I've had much more trouble in my life with what I've known that was wrong than what I've not known. You know, it, you could almost say that AA is, a, is, an, is an unlearning proposition, isn't it? It's a clearing out. It's getting the field. It's, it's, it's getting things cleared out there so that the grace of God can have its way with us so that we can begin to understand that what our job is is to be available to each other, to be of service. You know, that that's how I get mine by doing something else. And that's what the spiritual life is all about. It's about being responsible. And it's about clearing away that stuff. It's about being quiet and beginning to understand and that there is, that there's great benefit in, in, in that quiet, that stuff starts to get worked out. Again, that's one of the ways that I get my energy and my fortitude and my power to go forward is that quiet heart that comes out of that. So we know where our spiritual awakening comes from. It's not elusive. We don't have to hunt for it. It'll happen automatically. It's a direct byproduct of the first 11 steps. I do those things and the spiritual awakening shows up. And certainly that has to be... Um, Tended. Most spiritual awakenings are not what Bill Wilson had, are they? You know, they're not the, uh, the spectacular spiritual experience. But if you look at, you know, and that's another interesting thing. If you look at, if you really look at the history of Alcoholics Anonymous and you look at that history and Bill's spectacular spiritual awakening in Towns Hospital and what went on there and all the people he worked with, and then you look at Dr. Bob's spiritual journey in Akron, there's some very telling differences there. A lot more people stayed sober in Akron. Uh, certainly, Dr. Bob was a lot different character than Bill Wilson, wasn't he? It's been well said, you know, I think Dr. Bob's son said that, that um, there had been no Alcoholics Anonymous without Bill Wilson. But without Dr. Bob's influence on Bill Wilson, there'd be no telling what Alcoholics Anonymous would have been. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, a, there's, there's a differences to the spiritual life, and, it, you know, that, that it's not going to redo our personality. What it's going to do is it's going to make us more effective. My job is not to be Bill Wilson. My job is to be the best that I can be. My job is to do the stuff that's in front of me to do. Well, it talks about intensive work with others as being what my job in life is, and that's how I have immunity from drinking. When all else fails, that's the one constant. That's the one thing that will stay in place. We tried to carry this message to alcoholics. How do we do that? Well, what we're doing here this weekend is one example. In our home groups is another example. Um, and 12-step calls and trying to be of service. You can carry the message in any kind of a way. It depends on what the message is. What we're talking about in Alcoholics Anonymous is, I guess the message of AA is that AA is more powerful than alcoholism. I would say that's the message. And again, there's so much work to be done. You know, AA is a household name today, but I don't know if it's any clearer in people's minds what AA is than it was when I came in or not. There's still all kinds of misinformation in there about AA. We spend a lot of time in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't think it's as bad as it used to be, but we spend a lot of time criticizing what other people do. 
with alcoholics, whether it's ministers or whatever. And, you know, it's a good time for me to check up and figure, have I 12-stepped my minister? You know, what about, uh, there's so many things that can be done. What about uh, lawyers' offices or just doctors' offices? Do they have any Alcoholics Anonymous literature? One of the things we did, I recently, last year in April, I moved from Wilson, North Carolina to Raleigh, but when I was in Wilson, one of the things we did is we, we made a concerted effort to get AA literature into all the doctors' offices, to get into the lawyers' offices, to get it into the motels and all of those kind of things. There are so many ways to carry the message. Well, our message is, is that an alcoholic doesn't have to drink. But the people that will see alcoholics all the time, for example, ministers and doctors and lawyers, have I made it my business to inform them about what we do? And the book is clear on that. It says that ministers and doctors are confident that we can learn much from them. But it, it also says that because of our own experience, we can be uniquely useful. Well, what a wonderful thing. We spend millions of dollars in this country trying to puff up people's self-esteem. I mean, to be uniquely useful. And all I have to do to that is practice the 12 steps. I mean, it's hard to be uniquely useful drinking booze, isn't it? Again, it's just the exact opposite. So to carry the message, I've had uh, several experiences this year of trying to carry the message. I, um, uh, there was a young kid, uh, I mean, of, trying, of, of active 12-step calls. I, you know, I, that's another thing I hear. I hear all kinds of stuff in AA that just is not my experience. I, I hear um, people say that, that we, we don't have anybody coming in anymore that's just alcoholics. You know, I just don't believe that. I mean, it's just not my experience. I mean, people may have tried some other stuff, but if you listen to somebody for a few minutes, you can generally tell where they belong. Um, I hear all kinds of people say that there's no evidence, there's no 12-step uh, no calls. When I sobered up, I went, I, after I got where I could, um, knew the you know, way back and forth to the, to the meeting and, and um, knew what I was doing on a daily basis, I was probably taking on an average of one or two active calls per week for the first couple years that I was sober on somebody still drinking. And it, for me, there was great value came out of that, and I still look for ways uh, uh, to do that. My wife had a friend of hers, a lady that used to, she used to work with, a um, 20-year-old son was in a horrible car wreck recently. And uh, we were able to intervene on him, and, and uh, he nearly died in that car wreck, and within about a week, he went from being a, um, you know, having a horrible drinking problem to thinking that he might have um, overreacted a little bit. Maybe he wasn't. Uh, but, you know, we were able to work with this guy, and Robert and I 12-stepped him and, and uh, went out to his house. And, um, you know, we listened to him for a little while, and he told us, you know, before he'd go to school in the morning, he'd sit in the parking lot drunk at 7.30 in the morning, and we listened to him tell us he wondered if he really was, if he really did have a drinking problem, if he'd just been on a little bit of run of bad luck. But, I mean, it's good to know that, you know, the stuff of alcoholism doesn't change. That's the same stuff that I've always been listening to on 12-step calls. Well, we were able to get him into meetings and take him to a few meetings, but then he decided that, you know, he wasn't interested. A friend of mine recently had, um, she thought she was going to fire this guy, and, and uh, ended up he was not fired. He was, I think she suspended him or something, came to work drinking, and um, she called me. And I was able to meet that guy at a Burger King and spend a lunch with him and talk to him about Alcoholics Anonymous. And there are all kinds of, um, a few years ago we went on a 12-step call, and well, I was getting ready to go into a talk that night about 50 miles away, and this guy was a little bit too drunk. We thought about taking him along, uh, but we told him we'd be back at midnight to call on him. Well, by the time we got back, he had slit his wrist and uh, had been hospitalized. But, uh, you know, there's all kinds of avenues to do active 12-step work. There's all kinds of stuff. There's halfway houses. We're talking about uh, somebody at, at breakfast. We were talking about 
whether or not there's enough weight in meetings to hold, whether or not there's enough strength and purpose in there. I mean, that's a wonderful way to carry the message, you know, to set up like little panels or something to go on, um, to go to the club and to hold meetings on sponsorship or what is an AA group or how is a meeting supposed to be conducted. I mean, if people don't know, nobody can know what's going on coming to AA. I mean, I didn't know if I was on foot or horseback. I mean, how could I? You know, I'd been drunk since I was a child. I wasn't very good before I started drinking. So how could I know anything? So it really becomes our job to start to try to, um, to show those things. So there's all kinds of ways to carry the message. Everybody carries some kind of message in life. One of the things um, I like to, uh, in airports particularly, are interesting to me. Uh, I know you, um, Bruce, I think you travel a lot, a lot more than I do, I'm sure. But I, in airports, I like to think, you know, everybody has a story. Everybody has stuff going on. Everybody has stuff they're interested in. You know, everybody has problems and concerns. And it's a lot, you know, you can make somebody's load a lot lighter just by interacting with them. You know, you never know. I was um, guy I was, a guy I sponsored. Tell you a quick war story about that. I was, I was explaining to him that one of the things that I like to do that has to do with how I see amends in life is I, I like to just interact with people or... or um, I call it just pushing them around and make their load a little bit lighter. Or uh, for a few years ago, we were going through a serving line at a thing, and there was a um, about a 65-year-old woman working on the serving line serving food. And the guy right in front of us—I mean, here it is. She's sweating back there. She can't see. It's all steamed up. And the guy right in front of us got mad because she put the wrong stuff on her plate. So uh, when I got up there, I said um, I said something about it, and she kind of laughed. She said, "Yeah." And I said, "Well, we got a guy with us that'll take him out." Uh, I said, if, uh, I mean, that guy's out of line. I said, you give the word and I'll have it handled. And, uh, you know, just that kind of stuff. I mean, I just like, the, and it doesn't take much. I'll tell you a quick war story of something that really happened about that, about a men's, a guy I sponsored was working with him, and I was sharing some of this stuff with him. And you never know how God is going to work stuff out. The reason I never say no, I was taught in Alcoholics Anonymous, I never say no to an Alcoholics Anonymous request, is you never know what, 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 what you're supposed to do there. I mean, you may go there to make a talk or you may go there to meet somebody and something else altogether may happen. I mean, if the spiritual life is not a theory, it's about showing up. It's about, you know, being available. It's not about what I know. If it was about what I know, I'd have been dead a long time ago because what I knew was wrong. But I, was, I shared this with a guy I sponsor, and he was, um, he was doing some amends work, and he had tried everything, and I had tried everything that I could think of to tell him so that he could contact the man that he had stole his shoes. He had stole these guys' shoes. And he had sold the shoes at the university. I don't know, got 100 bucks for them. Some of those tennis shoes are expensive now. But anyway, he had tried everything in the world to contact this guy, and they'd run, he'd run down all kinds of false, false leads, couldn't find the guy. Well, I had been sharing with him how I like to interact and push people around and stuff. So he, he was um, back at school, and he walked up and sat down beside a guy that was sitting on the steps and just started doing the same stuff. Part of it started pushing the guy around, talking with him. I guess you can finish the story. Lo and behold, this is a perfect stranger. They started talking. The guy knew this guy, how they ever got around to him. So within about 20 minutes of that conversation, he knew how to get in touch with that guy in another state. Tracked him down, told him what he wanted to do, cleaned up the past, paid off the stolen tennis shoes for clearing that amends. You never know. You know, the spiritual life is not a theory. God works stuff out a lot of ways. A buddy of mine used to say that God writes in straight lines but very crooked. You know, you just never know what's going on. So, <laughs> important stuff. That is my job in life, though, is to carry the message.
and to practice these principles in all our affairs. You know, what are my affairs? My affairs are all the things that I do in life. Somebody once described, um, one of our presidents in the past, somebody described character as what you are when nobody's looking. You know, I do the right thing simply because it's right. You know, during the Vietnam War, General Westmoreland used to talk about that, and there was stuff that I made fun of. He said, you do a good job for the sake of doing a good job. No other reason. doesn't matter what you get. You know, my job in life is not to worry about what I get. My job in life is to do what's mine to do. So to practice these principles in all our affairs, it means that I have to do the right thing regardless of whether I want to. And my affairs are just whatever life is. My affairs this weekend have been to be here with you. That's it. I mean, that's been my job this weekend. My job now is to go home and, and, and get settled in and, and, you know, just live out the rest of the day and try to, you know, try not to get in anybody else's way. It's not a complicated thing. What happens to me, what, what I've learned out of my surrender and what's made it so worthwhile is, is that no matter how difficult and bloody that surrender has been, is, is what's came out of it. Life has gotten much easier for me. Life is easier for me today than it's ever been doesn't mean that there's not a lot of problems. The last year, we've had a lot of work problems. I've been on the same job for about 12 years. And uh, the last year has been fine, except it just hasn't been fine in my mind. You know, we had some things go, and it just didn't work out the way that, that, um, that I had thought it was supposed to. Um, and, you know, if it would have went the other way, I'd have had a lot more to say about things. But, um, you know, <laughs> I'm still there, but... Um, I'm more like a dead man. I'm there and things are going fine and all of that. But, you know, again, my affairs are what I do. My affairs, I told you I recently participated in my daughter's wedding. I was able to take her down the aisle. I was able to pay those bills. I was able to do the things in life. And so the spiritual life is about simply doing the right thing. And there's a design for living here. You know, we don't have to wonder how to do it. Alcoholics Anonymous is, is passed on very often through an oral tradition, but it's a written program. I, don't, I can't think of a single problem that has not been presupposed in Alcoholics Anonymous. Singleness of purpose, how to conduct ourselves, how to do meetings, how to do service work, everything has been written down. If we'll take the time to read our literature, uh, we'll know. I, um, I want to um, close up and, and uh, could if I, just, if I could just spend a couple minutes. Um, I want to thank you and tell you how much this weekend has meant to me. I'll never forget this. I... Um, I don't know if anybody else has been helped out of this, but like I said Friday night, I'm pretty sure I haven't hurt anybody. Um, anybody that's an alcoholic, I mean, I, I'm not going to make you any worse, but it's really been great for me. It's, um, I've been the beneficiary of this. I want to thank you for it. For the airplane ride, um, anything I love to do is ride them airplanes. and uh, um, It's almost like having sex. It's just, you know, it's one of the great benefits. And, and um, it, um, I want to thank you and, and tell you how much I appreciate it. And to, and to say, that again, that the, that, the, that the 12 steps are available to us and that they'll change problems. If there's hope for, for alcoholism, it says this several times in our literature, that if, if there's recovery from alcoholism available, then there surely must be hope for any problem. So I don't know of anything that can't be made better through the power of Alcoholics Anonymous because, I mean, if, if, if it's just available to us, and, and so it, it's here. Might as well use it. So thank you, and I hope we all have a great um, ride home.